Our new partner who I'm really, really excited to announce we are working with. Super, super stoked. Thank you, Angie Huberman, for this connect. It's incredible. Uh, AG1 Athletic Greens. I've been using them for a while. I have them every morning on an empty stomach. Basically, take one scoop and you put it into a uh, cup or glass or mug of eight ounces of cold water. And this is all your greens for the day. You're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. Every day I take this. It's so good for my digestion, my energy. It's simple. It's easy. I don't like taking a lot of vitamins. This has been really, really helpful for me. I've had a lot of stomach issues my whole life, and ever since I've been gluten-free and taking the AG1s, it's really helped me in my stomach in the mornings. I love it, and I'm so psyched that they're part of the One Life One Chance podcast. I'm sure a lot of people don't like eating greens, let alone drinking your greens, but I can tell you straight up, it's got a mild tropical taste, and the taste is actually really refreshing, and I really look forward to it each morning. Don't, don't think it's just going to be just straight bland. Um, it tastes really, really good, um, and it's good for you, so remember that. This one blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. It's incredible. Just one scoop, especially for musicians who are vegans or just musicians in general who want to get those daily greens. You can get the packets. It's incredible. I just gave some to my friend Derek from Sepultura. He traveled the whole entire world this summer, and he had, he had those every single day. He said it saved him. I bring AG1s with me when I travel. It helps me stay healthy. You know the deal. If you're on tour and you are uh, a picky eater, but you need to have your greens, sometimes catering doesn't have greens. Sometimes you miss the catering. Sometimes you miss the backstage food. Sometimes it's too late after the show to go get food that you like. So if you just have a, a scoop of uh, AG1s in your hotel room before you go to bed or you're in the hotel room at night and you're starving and you want something healthy, boom, life changer. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with some convenient daily nutrition. That's all you need. One scoop in a cup every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. This is it. I'm super psyched. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit drinkag1.com slash OLLC. That's drinkag1.com slash OLLC. Take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This is incredible. I love it. It's just basic greens. For me personally, this has changed my life tremendously. I'm not a junk food vegan. I don't eat a lot of fake meats, so I'm strictly, strictly greens. And this has been a wonderful, wonderful new addition to my life. So once again, visit drinkag1.com slash OLLC. That's drinkag1.com slash OLLC. Get one free year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. That's drinkag1.com slash OLLC. Yo, yo, Liquid Death, thank you so much for hydrating all my guests, taking care of me and my family and my friends. Love your water, love your brand, love what you stand for, love what you give back to the community. If you want to learn more about Liquid Death and how it started, listen to episode 115 with the co-founder, owner, and creator of Liquid Death, Mike Cesario. Just a punk rock skateboarding kid from Delaware with a dream. It's an incredible story, incredible journey. So if you go liquiddeath.com slash Toby, you get free shipping on any items you order from liquiddeath.com. And if you want to get water, Liquid Death water, go to amazon.com. But for merchandise and other things that's not water, go to liquiddeath.com slash Toby and get free shipping. Thank you so much, Liquid Death. Death to plastic, murder your thirst, stay hydrated. You know, H2O saves lives. She's talking about like 
Bad Pipe Freddy, yeah. Jean Michel. Yeah. Ta- like Ramelzi's in the video. Like yeah. it's literally the birth of all that stuff. So she's the original white rapper, Blondie. <laughs> I had Yellow Wolf on her a couple weeks ago, and that's what he said for the first white rapper. That's amazing. You know what I mean? So we're recording now. Let's start this podcast. Um, Let's do it. Welcome to the One Life One Chance podcast. I'm your host, Toby Morse. Today, I have my friend, Justin Warfield here. Thank you so much for being here. Dude, it's an honor. Thank you. I was thinking about where we met. It was at Brooklyn Projects. I'm not sure what year it was. <laughs> just skating together. I mean, we didn't really know each other, what band we were in or anything like that. We were just skating. Yep. I forgot. That was a long time ago, man. So it would have been 2007 or 8. Okay. Probably 8. Um, yeah. Seven or eight for sure. And it was after the, well, there were several incarnations of the BP ramp. But it was. That one was right after we built at the second location of BP on Melrose, Brooklyn Projects, for those listening. Yeah, Great skate Luka. shop. Um, we built the spine ramp. And it was primarily yes. Muska and Braden Safransky who helmed it. And then I helped build it with, probably like a ton of people but that spine ramp was gnarly and it, it had sick. one side that went up to the brick wall yep and then the extension yeah but i met you skating there and that's so so cool like that that was it really it's like such an interesting thing because skateboarding has always been in my life for my entire life since i was two um but there's been phases of it and the, the phases mark like chapters of my life and that yeah. was a really good one yeah, that was really fun. Uh, I remember Muska would do wall rides onto that. Oh, my God. Off the ramp. It was just really fun to skate with all kinds of people. Then you just, oh, I'm so-and-so. So you don't ask what they do. You're just skating. You're just hanging out. It was a great vibe. Met a lot of cool people there. Met so many people there. But he has a ramp now, too. There's a newer mini at this spot, right? I've yeah, much more one. skatable, much easier. But mm. we're older, and it hurts more when you Have you slam. been to that new one and skated it? No. The first time I went was when he built it, and I rolled up in some... Um, in just some like boots, like like <laughs> boots with heels, and I grabbed somebody's board and I just roll. I just started skating, yeah, and I grinded one side and ran out of it and rolled my ankle. Oh man! And and I was we like, be careful, man! Literally skating in a in a boot with like a one and a half inch heel and grinding, <laughs> coping, and just ran out of it like it'd be okay. Wow! Yeah, and that was recently. No, that was like right when he built okay, the ramp yeah. years ago. It's crazy when we get older. Like for me, I'm like, I don't want to really skate and get hurt because I want to be able to still work out or go play shows. Like now I'm concerned about it. For a long time, I really didn't care, you know? Yeah, the last time I skated, skated was my friend for his 50th birthday a couple of years ago. Um, his wife rented the Pink Motel, like that famous motel Ooh. in the valley. Yeah. And so we all padded up, got helmets and skated it. But I had a surf trip plan and I went real chill. Like I did not want to bust my shit. Like that yeah. would be scary. You a good surfer? No, I'm a very mediocre, like a lifelong <laughs> mediocre surfer. <laughs> it's so fun, though. It's I, the best. I started during the pandemic. Well, I tried a couple of times. I stood up. It was beautiful, man. I've been surfing my whole life, like, very, very poorly. Okay. <laughs> but you still love it, though. Yeah. I mean, it's just because some people rip. But it's like, I could surf, but, like, I'm not good, good. Mm-hmm. It's like I get up and turn and do, do what I want to do. But it's all about the conditioning and positioning. And also mental. And the older I get, the more I get sketched out by large waves or hold downs. And like a large wave for me is not a large wave for most people. Like, yeah. I don't like going overhead high. I never want to feel like, am I going to make it in? <laughs> yeah. I, I was surfing like in the white wash because I was just learning. Yeah. But my son was surfing the other night at 10 o'clock under the moon in Malibu with his friends. I'm like, that is, to me, that sounds crazy. It's crazy. You ever surf at night? 
Um, I've done like after it, the sun has gone down and like, okay, we should probably go in, but I've never done a pure night surfing by the moonlight. Dude, it sounds beautiful, but it sounds like, amazing. I just, I, mean, I don't know. I've always had a fear of sharks. I'm sure a lot of people have, but I still go in the water. I still love the ocean. Fe- feeding time is actually early morning or sundown. They're, cr- they're less likely to attack you late at night. How come surfers go, they go surfing like five or six in the morning. Cause too, that's when is- the tides are best. Mm. And also, like, when you surf, you just have to know that, like, they're always there. We just don't know it. Yeah. And, like, that makes me feel okay. Because it's not like... Because they're always there, and there's so few attacks. True. So, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in the valley, San Fernando Valley. Um, now they call the specific area uh, NoHo, or West Toluca Lake. Mm-hmm. Which is a bougie way of saying, <laughs> we don't want to be considered North Hollywood for our property value and the taxes. And you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. if you own a house over there at like, you know, let's say like Riverside and Vineland or something, you want your house to be more valued than somebody at like, you know, Lancashire and Satakoy. So okay. that was all considered North Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, primarily um, working class, um, predominantly white, bordered by very 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 hispanic neighborhood so i grew up like around like a like a very like 70s brady bunch um sort of like you know people were there like i mean like irish catholic italian catholic you know like yeah. german catholic it was like <laughs> everybody there was like like predominantly like white european catholic and then there was a ton of uh latin families and i grew up yeah, I grew up there until I was, uh, I'm going to say, 15. And then we moved to the top of Fairfax, Laurel Canyon, um, up in the hills. And I had a weird experience, too, because, like, that was all going on where I was, like, a kid living a suburban skateboard lifestyle in the valley, right? Yeah. But my grandpa, who is from Brooklyn, right, who is from Brighton Beach, um, lived in the valley but had a condo in malibu during the summer so i also had this beach life that most people in the valley weren't really privy to because back then in the in the mid to late 70s if you went to the beach like there were signs that like graffiti said like vows go home yeah and like people took the bus like people in the valley took the bus but like i had like a pass (laughs) like a beach pass yeah hobie then super young i was born in 73 so like you know I remember the 70s and I also always tell younger people that like even in like 1980, 81, all the cars were 60s and 70s on the road. So it's like even if I was like too young to truly experience like like, you know, listening to the pod with like Dante, like he's a little older. So like his 70s experience were like 70s. Mine were like, I remember the 70s. I remember what it was like to be a young kid. But like I really, really was like by the time it was like, you know, 81, 82, 83. So I grew up in that time and. Also, like culturally, I was like on some completely different shit and very different experience because my dad is black and from South L.A., which they used to call South Central. Right. So my dad is an Angelino. His family's from Mississippi and Texarkana. um, Right. So like my dad grew up in the heart of South Central, like went to like Dorsey High and like all the like really like L.A., L.A. Right like the east side is what they call it. Mm-hmm. Like if you're from South LA or like, are you a west side or east side? Right. Yeah. So that's like a little bit the, like the, the, the east side, I believe I'm not super well versed in South central, <laughs> but it's like closer to, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's sure. not far from here. Not Truly. Far, you just go a little far. bit South of where we are right now. Right. So, actually, right. Yeah. So like, and then my mom is from Brighton beach, Coney Island. And so I grew up in the Valley 
with like all of my grandfather's friends who were like, this guy's a car dealer this, in Vegas. This guy is from Atlantic City. This guy is connected. There's like a lot of like all Brooklynites. So There's when I was disposal, dude, like it was crazy. <laughs> like the people that my grand and like, so like my mom is, my mom is Jewish and Russian too. Yeah, 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 yeah. But like nobody's like really, really Russian. Okay. It's not like from <laughs> Russia style. It's like very yeah, like because yeah. because both of my grandparents on my mom's side are from Brooklyn. Legit, like, yeah. right. They're really from Brooklyn. And so my mom's a second generation Brooklynite. Right. Uh, Jewish, Russian, Romanian. My dad's black, South Central. They met at L.A. Valley College in the 60s and were hippies and then moved up to the top, up to the, the, the hilltop. Uh, above like Franklin and Vine, there's a street called Vista Del Mar that used to be called Hippie Hill. And it's above that famous diner, the 101. That's now yeah, the Clark yeah. Street Diner. So they lived above that diner like back in like Summer of Love, 67, 68, 69. Amazing. And so like my experience was super informed by like those mixing cultures of like, I'd spend time with my family in South Central. I would spend time with my grandpa in Malibu where all the Brooklynites and like the sort of super connected weird, like everybody was like, it was like a Woody Allen movie meets Goodfellas where everybody had an accent. And when I was very young, it was super weird to me because there was no delineation between Jews and Italians because they all just had New York accents. <laughs> so if, if I saw somebody that was Italian, like I learned what the horn necklace meant later, but if I or or the you know Star David, but if I saw somebody with an accent, I'd be like, oh yeah, like you're Jewish, They're like no, I'm Italian. But it's like I just grew up around so many old New Yorkers, <laughs> awesome, man. Yeah. which most Californians didn't. But like when I say a lot, it's because my my grandpa entertained a lot, and he was like a real character with this beach house and. Like he was in the porn industry. It's like a whole. Wow. Yeah. Like he didn't make them, but he distributed them and he stocked sex shops in like the Valley and all throughout Los Angeles. And so he was like very, very well known in the adult entertainment industry. And plus he had friends that were like not Jewish who were Italian who were in different industries. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so like I grew up around a lot of really interesting things like that. But then on the flip side, I'd be in South Central. And it was just like all of that, like in just a very suburban world and my world was just like that was family that didn't influence anything except who i was as a person and like what was normal to me right yeah but then like so much culture around you though man so much culture but then my next door neighbors because i'm an only like oh, so that's your only child now. only child i have a brother now who you know which is great like when i was 26 he was born so there's a huge age gap so it's almost like like it was like having a kid when i was when he was born it's like yeah. oh i get to babysit and cool but i grew up an only child but the block I grew up on is actually sort of famous in some circles of the valley because there was um, it was like all public school kids, which I grew up going to private schools, but it's all public school kids. And they were it varied in age from five or six years younger than me to 16 or so years older than me. So when I moved to this block when I was two years old, my next door neighbor had a quarter pipe. And like long curly hair like Tony Alva. And Same. he was 13. So he was 11 years older. And he became like my big brother. So that's the first dude that like put on Van Halen. That's the first dude that put on like Boingo. That's the first time I heard metal. That's the first time I heard punk. That's the first time like I got my first skateboard and went to Val Surf and like got Val kitted Surf. out. Val Surf. It's like great. Like I think a mandatory thing of any pod should be what's your first setup? Like even if it's not a skate pod, right? Yeah, man. So when I was listening to Dante, <laughs> like my first setup, I still wish I had it, man. It was a Logan Erski, 100% wood. It's a plank, barely a kicktail, right? Okay. 
no concave, completely flat plank, right? Logan Erski with Bennett trucks and Kryptonics wheels, but because I was literally like two, right? Like they like they're like, yo, get them every color. So I had like red, yellow, green, blue, Kryptonics, cryptos, we called them wheels. Good bearings. We're not talking about clay days, right? I'm still yeah. 75, but I pushed around on my knee in the backyard. And so from it sounds crazy to like before I could walk, but I was pushing around on my knee down the driveway. Yeah. And by the time I was like seven, eight, nine, all that skating and grew up just a hardcore skater. Like all I cared about in life was skateboarding, um, hip hop and breakdancing and new wave. And yeah. like, those were all the things that, right. That's our age. That's our yeah. thing. Like punk wasn't my thing. So the area I grew up in because it was all these Valley kids, a lot of below the line families, which people don't know what that means. It's like if you're working in film, but you're like not the director, the actor, but like the grips, the drivers, the people who actually make a movie happen, yeah. like all the union people. A lot of people in in the Valley like are into that. This was like a very working class area. But what was cool culturally for me was like all those mixes that I already had when I started Little League. It was like 75 percent um, Latin. And so like all the Mexican and Salvadorian and Guatemalan and Honduran kids that I met through there, I like experienced Cholo culture in a very, very real way. Sure, yeah. And that was like dope to me because it was so different. And so like, I was just like, those were my boys. And it just so happened that like the dudes I played little, little league with became like the predominant gang in the Valley. So I sort of had like this pass with them for a while until I didn't. Wow. <laughs> So you kind of, they were your friends, you protected, you didn't have to worry about nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Like where, where it was cool where like normally people would be like, oh, don't go past this block. But I'm like, yeah, but like I know those dudes. Right. So it was kind of cool. So I was always around much older people, which gave me crazy access. It was a lot of Heshers. It's like it's that 70s. It's like, you know, it's like the the rat patch on the on the <laughs> jean jacket with the leather jacket yeah. underneath and the long hair and the you know, the smell of bong water and, 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 and metal. And I remember the first punk thing I think I ever heard was probably fear, which is really just rock and roll. I mean, they call it a punk, but totally it is. Yeah. But like, and that was just my scene. And, and like, I guess the other significant thing underneath all that is that my dad worked at a record company. What kind of, what kind of record label was it? So my dad started, um, he worked at 20th Century Records, which is famous for Barry White. And the first record he ever broke as a promo guy was Kung Fu Fighting by Carl Douglas. What? And so he did that song and promoted it. Like basically like my wow. dad, my dad was like, my dad was an actor and he was in like a bunch of 70s shows like Mod Squad, Ironside, did like a exploitation biker movie. And he was just like, he was working as like a tour guide on at, um, Universal um, Studios tour. And he was acting and then he was doing pretty well with that. And then there wasn't a lot of opportunities for black actors at the time. It was like pretty limited, very limited actually. And then they were like, let's have a kid. And he's like, all right, I got to get a real job. And he's like, I don't know what to do. And his friend was like, why don't you just work at the mailroom at this um, record company? He's like, okay, I love music. And like, he had had roots in music because like, it's a crazy story, but like basically like his favorite group was the temptations. And my dad looks a lot, or back then looked a lot like Richard Pryor. And so he went to see the temptations with my mom back in the day and he rolled up and somebody thought he was Richard and they were like, Oh, right this way. And they got him a table and a bottle and the whole deal. And like, it's a long story, but basically then he ended up going backstage afterwards and no he way. met them 
and like hung out. And then they're like, yo, come back to the hotel. Did they think it was Richard Pryor too? And so he goes to the hotel. He hangs out all night, right? I think they even shouted him out on the mic. And it was like on the Sunset Strip, like not the Roxy, but somewhere like that doesn't even exist anymore. He just rolled with it. Rolled with it all night, hotel. At the end of the night, he was like, yo, I, I got to tell you guys, I feel really guilty because um, I'm not Richard. And like, my name is Reese and I'm just like a huge fan. You're my favorite group and always have been. And they're like, oh, dude, we know, but we just love you. We rock with you. Like, it's all good. We figured that out a while ago. Wow, man. And those became his lifelong friends. And one of those cats, like, basically was somebody we called my godfather, who is the baritone Melvin Franklin of The Temptations and literally became like a lifelong friend just because they like. And that's That's super crazy. Right. So he was a music fan. So then years later, he starts working in the mailroom. He does well. He quickly ascends. They're like, yo, why don't you just become a promo guy? What do I have to do? Oh, take this record to the radio station down the street and tell him to play it. So he leaves that label and goes to CBS Records, which probably like the Jacksons just left Motown. They became they, they, they couldn't be the Jackson five anymore. They had to be the Jacksons. And uh, for legal reasons, because yeah. the name was owned by Barry Gordy. And so if you look at the first Jackson's records, the S at the end is actually a five. It's super low key. Mm, but if you look at the way that, that the layout, the graphic design, it's not always an S. Sometimes it's like a, it's kind of a five. Wow. And so the Jackson's signed to his label. And so they were like, you're going to promote the Jackson's. And then Michael's like, I'm going to do solo record. And so my dad really made his bones in the industry when Michael doing the Jacksons, doing Earth, Wind and Fire, Barry White, Isley Brothers, Earth, Wind and Fire. Wow. But then what happened was the label split and they were literally sitting there have a conversation one day at a conference and they're like, all right, we're going to become two labels. We're going to be, we're going to be Epic and Columbia now. Right. And they just sort of like raised their hand, like who's going to what team. So he went to team Epic and they got Michael. <clears throat> so he promoted off the wall. He promoted thriller. He promoted Dude. bad. He promoted all that. And so the backstory of wow. what was going on for me as a kid was growing up in the Valley, being a skater, being into like whatever, just kids, kids shit, Dun- yeah. Dungeons and Dragons and like computers. Right. Cause we're like the first generation that had like dope computers and yeah. atari just kid shit super basic right like i always had a drum set or a guitar amp could never play but i knew i i like music but i couldn't really do anything yeah i skated well i was an incredible break dancer that was sort of my best thing i had going i was an okay skater Were you competing in break dancing too no but I, like i tried out for like the la breakers which was the la division of the new york city breakers and like there was always rock city crew in new york city yeah, yeah, like yeah. the battle in beat street and i always liked them a lot but i kind of leaned towards new york city a little bit for whatever reason yeah even though i think historically we look in crazy legs and rock steady's really the preeminent crew i think that at the time i liked the flavor of nyc breakers better and then they started the la chapter which was sort of i think supposed to be a sister thing to it and i auditioned and i got it but i think by that point i burned out on uh breaking but i mean i was dope i was like the guy who could do like do 20 egg rolls and just without stopping and like wow. windmills everything all that yeah yeah well say it was the same thing i think egg rolls were just maybe you had your hands on your crotch instead That's of gonna ask you yeah. yeah what is the difference yeah wow. yeah yeah so i think windmills you just had your arms different but i was great at that and i was super little and i couldn't do like anything on my hands like handstands but i could like spin on my hand like i was just like up rocking didn't do head spins couldn't do head spins or vertical hand spins, but I could do crazy windmills forever and like come out of it into a hand spin. Like I was like real ill. Wow. Is there footage of this somewhere? No, I wish. But like there was times like wow. in my thirties where somebody would like, we'd have this conversation. They'd be like, do it. And I would go down and still do a windmill. 
and the last I last time he did it probably in your 30s yeah no late 20s and i like did it on hardwood and it hurt Damn. it worked That's so but cool, it man. hurt dude i could break dance too but with nothing like that i'd be more like just yeah but wow. like culturally it connects it with me right because like my dad's doing all these records and i go to the world premiere of the thriller video over here on wilshire <laughs> and i go to see like the jacksons on tour and he does billy jean and beat it and when the whole world changed for all of us the two things that really and it's great now because people can go back on the internet and instagram and like TikTok and look at this stuff but Questlove posted about this the other day the two things that really shook me as a kid like culturally like earthquakes were when i saw flash dance because jennifer beals and her homegirl are walking down the street and it's this great like grainy footage when you look at it now it's shot super wide in a way that like most movies would ruin but it's so cinematic if you watch this clip from this movie flash dance which was a very stylized silly romance movie yes. with a lot of dancing but out of nowhere she's walking down the street jimmy caster bunch it's just begun plays one of the most classic you know breakdown songs of all time and just a crazy breakbeat that people love and it's playing and there's just street dancers dancing and it was crazy legs from the rock city crew and they're on cardboard in the middle of the street in a, and it's not even new york city man she was like movie takes place in pittsburgh which is so crazy i, like, I, I think know that. yeah 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 because yeah. like steel mill it's like crazy right oh, yeah yeah and she's like downtown pittsburgh there's the rock city crew <laughs> like i never <laughs> even thought about that and so wow. he's breaking and she's watching and i think that was 82 80, no, maybe 83. And so that's like the first time that mainstream non-inner city audiences saw breakdancing, mm. right? And I was like, whatever that sound is of that song and whatever that dancing is, that's it. Like when somebody hears punk rock for the first time or when somebody, yeah. <clears throat> you know, whatever it is. For me, that was like the electric guitar. Like that was like... Because my mom was a folky. She worked in coffee houses in Hollywood and hung out with Mickey Dolans from the Monkees and and bikers and and would like, you know, she was into like Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young and she was into like Joni Mitchell and, and folky stuff. And my dad was, you know, making history with these Dude. black artists. I go up to Barry White's crib and first concert I think was Earth, Wind and & Fire. So like I was immersed in it. Jeez. But like that was like, that's my parents' music. So even though it's cool... I was like, what's my music, right? Because even though yeah. the neighbors, like Van Halen was probably my first real, like, oh my God. <clears throat> but then like new wave happened, right? So the, the convergence of, of being in LA, Southern California with K-Rock being this radio station that's changing the world, right? Totally. For, for what's played nationally and, and, and overseas. Yeah. And also K-Day as a hip hop station. Now, K-Day is one of the stations that's in my dad's rotation as a promo guy. So before my dad became like an executive and had people doing the promo work for him, we would go around to stations. So my dad would like hand me a record and be like, yo, we're going to KGLH, which was the, the call letters, but it stood for kindness, joy, love, happiness. And Stevie Wonder owned it. And it was on La Cienega. Damn. It was like right down the street. Damn. And I'd go to KGLH. I never saw Stevie there. Uh, met him later. But like we go there and my dad would be like, here, hand them the record. And it was a total manipulation. Like I'd walk in, be like nine years old and be like, play my dad's record and hand them the vinyl. They would like go, Hey, what's up? Reese Warfield's here, blah, 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 with his son, Justin say what's up. And I go, hi. And then they go, Hey, you brought in a new record and they'd play it right there and he'd get a spin. And then like, there was a, there was a restaurant on Coenga called Martoni's, which was where all the record industry people hung out. And it was like super, super, super hardcore East coast Italian. Mm. And, 
I basically like grew up there, had a charge account. And like I was around the craziest radio dudes. But what was crazy is K-Day, and nobody really knew this, like K-Day was actually in Echo Park. Okay. And so the hub of LA hip hop was coming up from this hill that's above Glendale Boulevard and Echo Park right off Alvarado. And there's these towers there where you can still see the, the towers just by the two overpass the freeway. And my dad would take me to K-Day and I'd do the same thing. Hey, play this. And there's a DJ there called Greg Mack. Excuse me. And Greg Mack was the person that really broke rap in LA. He took the chances when other people, because there was like a real division that people don't know now. People think like R&B, soul, hip hop, it's all connected by yeah. by race. And, and it's it was so divided where the old guard, even my dad was like reluctant to embrace hip hop because he was like a melody guy, a soul guy. And he's yeah. like, I don't get this. But like for me, right, being a kid that was like, that saw flash dance. And I was like, whoa. And then this documentary came out and my mom taped it for me. And she's like, check this out. And it was called Breaking and Entering. It's like not breaking, it's with an apostrophe. Yeah. Bre- breaking and entering. Two apostrophes. I think it was a, a German or European-made doc because they always get it first, right? Yeah, totally. And they came to LA and they went all over Los Angeles, everywhere. And they filmed every relevant breaking individual, every crew, everything, and completely documented it. You can see it all on YouTube now. Okay. But breaking and entering is a real snapshot of what Los Angeles hip hop culture was at the time. So you had poppers, lockers, and breakers. You had Latin to a lesser degree, some Pacific Islanders. It wasn't really, now it's such a huge Asian thing breaking. Yeah. But back then it was more Pacific Islanders, like guys like sugar pop and like people, people that like, I actually think he might be Latin, but there was like an influence of, of this other culture going on. And so I watched breaking and entering and I'm like, that's what I want to do. Like whatever this feeling is. And it wasn't, I want to be a breaker. It was the same feeling I got when I saw Flashdance. I, I heard that. Right. And at yeah. the same time, concurrently, Michael Jackson gets up on the Motown, whatever, 20, 25th anniversary and he moonwalks. Yes. And those two things, Flashdance and Michael Jackson moonwalking showed the world what was actually happening on the streets that no one knew about. Right. Yeah. And I didn't know. I lived in the valley, like super sheltered bubble life. I go to South Central, nobody's breaking on the street. People were more breaking in the valley, right? Yeah. Like, because mind you, South Central, nobody's breaking on the streets right then. It was literally like the end of heroin, the beginning of crack epidemic, crazy gang banging. Nobody's hanging out on the corner breaking. They would have got blasted, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. it was just not something that happened, yeah. at least not to my eyes. Yeah. So when I saw that, I knew that that's what I wanted to do and I couldn't even articulate it. And then at the same time, my dad was like, yo, do you want to be in a music video? I'm like, I guess. And so he's like, there's this artist I have, Tyrone Brunson. He's got a song and he played it for me and it was called Fresh. And it was a ripoff of Rocket by Herbie Hancock. Great song. Great song. I used to break dance to that song. Yes, you did. It's a great song. There was another moment that happened around the same time. I feel like it's all probably 83. I'm not great about exact years. Sometimes I nail it. But like Lionel Mm. Richie all night long. Okay. Like he had like, um, he had like these, these breakers. I think it was like Lil Pop, Lil Pie and Coco who were like later in the movie break in who were also in breaking entering. Um, these kids who are young pop lockers and he had them in the all night long video. So like we're getting these glimpses of this culture that if you're not in the South Bronx or in like Manhattan or something like you don't know. And how do you yeah. know in LA, there was no pipeline from LA to New York in a real way. So then my dad's like, come be in this music video. I'm like, okay, cool. We go down to like, 
I feel like it was just like just south of it was like somewhere in Koreatown. It definitely wasn't like the hood. It yeah. was like one of those old apartment buildings. How and old we, are you now at this at this point? Like probably ten. Okay. Damn. Ten eleven. Right. Uh, maybe like 11. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's like 83. Actually, I think it was, might've been 84. So like 11. So I go be in this video and I get there and there's a guy who's playing like a mad scientist in a laboratory. Who's also scratching records played by a guy named Tracy ice T. Wow. Ice T's playing the DJ, <laughs> right? They got him because he was, a, he was the MC at the Radiotron, a club that I was I don't want to say I was too young to go to because it was all ages, but like literally the only time I'm like, dad, you got to take me to the radio tron. That's the place that DJ from the thing played at. Like we got lost downtown because he doesn't know downtown. Like <laughs> yeah. couldn't find which seventh, uh, you know, which seventh street. And we, yeah. so I never went, but that was the hub and the, like the cultural center that the movie Breakin' was based on was the radio tron. So like Ice-T was the MC there. It was like where breakdancing started in LA, but I didn't go. So I meet Ice-T, he's in the video, this guy's playing bass and he's doing like a Herbie Hancock rocket rip and the same dancers from Lionel Richie All Night Long are in it. And I'm, and I'm just watching them, I'm not trying to dance. I'm like, I'm not this good yet, right? I'm like, those kids <laughs> are pro. And I'm around it and I'm like, yo, he's scratching the records in the video. And I'm in the room. We're filming this. And it's on it's on YouTube. Like, it's like, it, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's scratching the records. And this guy is playing the bass. And the kids are dancing. And now I'm in it. I'm not watching it, right? I'm like, I'm, I'm close to it. I could smell it and taste it. And I meet Ice-T. And I'm like, yo, like, also, like, I tripped out because I could tell he was mixed like me. So I kind of liked that. And it made me feel like, oh, there is an entry point here, mm-hmm. <clears throat> right? And it, and it was just a lot of things happening subconsciously. No one's thinking that at the time. Yeah. So like all those pieces together and then like my dad's like, yo, do you want to go audition for this breakdancing? And I do that. And like all these things are happening. And a couple of years before Jam On It put out Nucleus, which to me is really the gateway drug of everything. Yeah. You talked about that. You guys were oh, talking about Jam On It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, because when I heard that, Insane. it was the pitch voice. It was the yeah. bass line. It was the electro beat. Yeah. And then like Beat Street comes out <clears throat> and now I get the New York version. Right. And even though it's like a very, very, very cheesy movie with like a bad plot and everything, <laughs> the subway battle mm. and the and the club battle, the two significant because because like I guess like another significant thing has sort of happened through all this is like my mom was like a was like very, very literate, put a lot of books in front of me and put a lot of movies in front of me at a young age. Like, yo, you should check out this Woody Allen movie. You should check out this Hal Ashby movie, Harold and Maude. Like when I'm like a kid, like I'm watching like crazy European films and Mike Nichols and all this like really serious like like dramas and like really interesting comedies from a young age which my dad is not into at all but my mom is like this like total Jewish intellectual like New Yorker who's like feeding me like here's Allen Ginsberg like here's you know like great literature and great um, cinema so like I'm watching movies like anybody else but like my memory is something that I'm starting to realize. Like, I don't know if I see, I don't know if I see the world in the same eyes as other people. I start realizing mm. that the way that, the way that I have a, like, I don't have a great memory, but I have a great memory for certain things. Yeah. Like if you said, yo, that movie, blah, 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 I can go, okay, here it was on this, it was on a wide shot. They start here, they move there. The cue of the song starts on this downbeat of this bar, and this is the lyric that's playing under this dialogue. So Jeez. now I'm starting to realize that, like, all the movies that I like 
I know exactly where the music cue starts. I know everything about what's happening in the frame. And like, I start realizing that the way that I process music and film is not photographic, but I see it differently than the people I'm talking to about it. So when I'm talking to my friends, they're like, what are you talking about? Yeah. So when I would talk about the way that like, oh, like I just heard this song, like uh, Tainted Love, and I couldn't articulate the way the snare drum made me feel. Mm. But I was addicted to that. Like most people were like, that's a cool lyric. Yeah. But I was like, no, like the way the synth hits on this part and the way the snare drum and hi-hat pattern comes in and the way that it's EQ'd and the way that that little machine sounds up against his voice. And then I started noticing that sound that resonated with me in like other new wave groups, excuse me. And then it also, because early hip hop was, was not samples. It was electro. Right. I noticed that the same connection I felt listening to the music in beat street by like Africa Mambada or the soul sonic force or nucleus and the stuff I was hearing when I was breakdancing made me feel the same way that Duran Duran and, um, and tears for fears and soft cell did. And I started recognizing that the synthesizer thing that was happening in drum machines was sort of my music and not my parents' music. And so it's interesting because all that stuff, right, is just background story for like finding your thing that, yeah. that resonates with you. 100%. And what about like craft work? Really, really late to craft work. Shoot. It came like I was way later. So sampled by hip hop. It's crazy, man. I only knew it through samples. Yeah. But I really missed it in real time. Hmm. A lo- because of the pre- probably did too, yeah. the prevalence of the internet now is such that if a kid gets into punk rock right now, they can experience Sham sixty nine, the germs. They can <laughs> everything at once, and there's just no like zines. There's no going to a store to get a bootleg. And some older person pulls your collar and goes, "Yo, kid, do you know about this?" Or walking into a music shop. There's no education process. It's instant. And I think that there's so true. And it's it actually like. It's microwave culture. It's not real. It doesn't grow into you and mm-hmm. soak into you. Like probably like when you discovered punk rock and hardcore, if you could digest it all by watching a video on TikTok and then you spend a weekend deep diving into it and then you go out and get the uniform because every everybody's on the same playing field now because of the internet and because sure. of the prevalence of mall culture and the prevalence of Etsy and the prevalence of eBay that like you can have the shirt, learn everything you need and fake your way through it immediately. Damn. It's really true. Like it's totally microwave though. It's not a part of you. Like yeah. the reason why I still make hip hop and new wave is what I just told you. Like yeah. I didn't just see a video and go, <laughs> yo, like that's dope. And now I'm going to base my identity and my thing around it. Like it's years of, and it is, man. It's a real discovery connection. And searching and all that stuff connecting. Discovery. Yeah. Discovery. Discovery Check special. Out the thank you list on the back of the record, or the, the liner notes, or the T-shirt the band's wearing on the back of the vinyl. All oh, what's that shirt? What's that band? You can't Google it. You have to find it. Search for that band from Com- the record store. Completely. Yeah. It's like you find it. Like for me, when I fell in love with something, it was obsessive. When I Same. when I was when I heard Easy like so jumping forward, like hip-hop. like I love hip hop. I love new wave. If you would have asked me at 11, am I going to be a rapper? I would have been like, no, I'm going to be John Taylor from Duran Duran yeah, yeah, yeah. or Nick Rhodes. Cause yeah. to me, those white 
dudes from Birmingham with their weird hair and the makeup. Like that was it. That was to me like guys like Kiss and I had pictures of me and Kiss makeup as a kid. I think that music's super corny and like I think it's just so <laughs> whack. But like Duran Duran was my was my Kiss. They were wearing yeah. makeup. They were like British and it's no mistake that like my singing voice is um when people hear me they're like oh I thought you're gonna be British and it's like it's a super simple thing it's like Mick Jagger when the Rolling Stones started they were into Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf true and he was a white dude from like you know Knightsbridge or some really posh like London area he was an accounting school guy and he heard these black artists and he mimicked until he found his own voice and he really did mimic and it's okay because he's a legend but like we we always get it twisted when if you saw if you hear mick speak no part of you thinks that he's going to sound the way he does right yeah and so when brian jones was like at the forefront creatively of like leading the stones and they had helen wolf and muddy waters like play with them live and you know later like chuck berry and like all this stuff yeah. and like paying homage to the black southern artists that they in, were inspired them they definitely paid homage, right? Gave credit and tons, all tons. Yeah. It was never, it was never like minstrelly or like messed up. But the fact is, is if you see Mick and he's like, oh yeah, and he speaks like this, and then he goes, I was born in a crossfire cane. <laughs> like yeah. that is yeah. not the way his voice sounds, yeah. right? Like, Great point. like he is and his put- dancing style too. James Brown, all that. And stuff. Tina, Tina Turner, yeah, right? So, Damn. so like. When for me, I wasn't listening to Southern artists from the Chitlin circuit, like a British dude wanting otherness or or something different across the pond. I was hearing the soundtrack for Pretty in Pink or, uh, you know, these 80s movies. And I was going, oh, like, who's the psychedelic furs? Who the Smiths? And so really, to me, Bowie was it that like my mom's brother played guitar and he would show me chords on a guitar when I was very young. And he gave me two albums, the first albums he ever gave me. Three, actually, sorry. He gave me Jimi Hendrix, uh, Electric Ladyland on vinyl. He gave me David Bowie, The Man Who Sold the World. And he gave me Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere by Neil Young. And I was like really young. And the Bowie one, I was like, oh, I know him. We listen to him all the time because it was 83, I was 10, and Let's Dance was the biggest record in the world. His first number one hit, Bowie. Wow. So like the gateway for all of those things. And I didn't recognize at the time like, oh, he's having Nile Rodgers from Chic produce. He's doing a black disco record. He's But he's making it pop. To me, I just knew that my favorite songs were by David Bowie. And now I had this other record to dig deeper into. So when I learned how to sing, I wasn't singing along to um, the Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath, right? I was singing along to... Um, the Power Station, The Smiths, Duran Duran, The Psychedelic Furs, a lot of Tears for Fears. Um, that was really the stuff I came up on. And then like, but the entry point seemed very high. Like, I don't play an instrument. I'm bad at drums. I don't have the discipline to play guitar. You tried it all. Yeah, like barely. Like, eh, this <laughs> is hard. I don't, you know. And I was a good skater, like when I was a kid. Not like, you know, this is before we were flipping the board around and stuff. So it's like, I would like go charge a ramp and do a big backside air. And so like, I was a good awesome. enough skater as an, as like, un, I mean, in our world, we're friends of pros, like we're terrible. But like <laughs> yeah. back when you're a kid in the neighborhood, it was like, oh, Justin bust a big backside air three feet out. I do it. It was cool. So I was good at something. So when I picked up the guitar and it was hard, I was like, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. Like it was too hard. So like sometime around then, like my... 
my my uh I went to this school like I, I was, was like it I, private school you said always private school always private school Did I mean you there's like that I mean dude like honestly like, knew back then yeah. yeah but like the like at some point I'll like write something or tell the story but like <laughs> people always like love to say like I grew up in a cult and it's like yeah sure you did but like I kind of grew up in a cult like too okay and it sounds like super like like soundbitey and like you know clickbaity but the truth is is like I kind of cult my parents like after like Hippies. their after after their hippie thing they were like yo like we moved to this neighborhood when we were really young and there was a church that was like there was a guy around the corner who lived who was like the pastor at a church and everybody was like oh this guy's got this church and it's really catching on and it's really cool and you can have long hair and be hippies and go and like they don't care like if you like smoke dope or whatever like it's like not in the church but like they're not going to yeah. judge you're not going to hell and like you know because all the pastors are drunk anyways like yeah. so they're like yo like so they they for whatever reason, because my mom was like a spiritual seeker and into Eastern stuff and all that, she's like, I'm going to check out this church, which is super weird for like a Jewish chick to be like, I'm going to go do this. Like, <laughs> so they go to this church and at first it's like super cool, but it's like very insular. And then like mostly the people and then they're like, yo, there's a school. We're going to put you in the school. So like I dropped out of like the like or they pulled me out of like the the, the preschool, or whatever I was in, which was like a pretty like nice valley like posh preschool and they're like yo you're going to church school and it was cool and then like the leader of the church was like this super charismatic like southern holy roller speaking tongues like all that kind of shit like apostolic pentecostal like southern baptist holy roller crazy like really gnarly like but he was cool and everybody like put him Until on this he wasn't or no 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 <laughs> okay no it, that's what it would normally be like yeah everybody put him on this pedestal but like he lived around the corner from us so like we were kind of had that access where he'd like come to the party when my parents were like have people over smoking joints and he'd come in and he'd have a drink and he was chill because so everybody put him on this sort of other level pedestal yes which i was like yo that's just the dude who lives down the street it's all good so i went to this school and then he died and his wife married uh a guy who was a former cop who worked at the church and so now you had this like former cop and like this lady Macbeth character running the church and the school, he was like the principal of the school and it sucked. It was just like a super religious, mm. super dogmatic, really Christian school that I just was really rebelling against and, and fucking hated. And it got really weird. We're like, they just did weird stuff in it. And like, it's actually registered as a cult now. And there's all these people who have been a part of it and are like, oh yeah, that is considered a cult. And you can read about it. Wow. But like, basically like there was things like, oh yeah, like you're gay and you're gay. Like you guys are getting married. Like you're going to be heterosexual. You're together now. Cause they're not doing that. Or, oh, like this person left the church. Like don't talk to them anymore. And people wouldn't talk to them. Jeez. And it was like this really weird stuff that I was like, this is crazy. And honestly, like, I think to just like, I think my parents were sort of one foot in, one foot out. And so we never really got affected like most people yeah. because there was also the entertainment industry and all that. Right. And like also like I also still have a grandpa that's in the porn industry. Right. Yeah. So it's not like. Yeah. Right. So it's like a week. But that's like another element that's crazy. Dude, right. Yeah. So like those kids like I couldn't rock with and I had no connection to. And I was like, I'd break dance and they were like weird or I'd be into run DMC, which is probably the gateway of all gateway drugs for me. Right. And I yeah. memorize every lyric and every drum fill and every pattern. And so like anyways, so like wasn't like trying to be cute. Like I really was growing up in this cult thing. And so then when I left, I was like, I don't want to be in the school anymore. This is terrible. I'm out. They're like, great. Where do you want to go? And I picked this school and it was like a super like competitive prep school in the Valley and it was expensive. My grandpa's like, I'll send you there. And I went there and there was a bunch of other people like me. And the first day I got there and there was like 
more black kids. One of them came up to me and was like, yo, what's up? Blah, blah, blah. Like, I see you're wearing bandanas and parachute pants. And he's like, you break and we're breaking. Sick. And then another friend was like, lived in the Joni Mitchell, our house song and like Laurel Canyon that Graham Nash wrote about. And like, we discovered Prince together. And wow. so like, all these things are like, they're not special, but they're unique. Like everybody yeah. has their own origin story. And totally. mine, mine was interesting because I had all these different things going. So now like I had like a double life where I was like in this really fucked up school that was really conservative, really repressive. I can like play the role really good and like memorize the things. And they're like, Oh my God, you're so good at this, Justin. But like, I didn't believe any of it. I just was like, as long as it keeps me out of trouble and you leave me alone, I'll like yeah. play so the you were role. Good in school, getting good grades, all that stuff. I was pretty good at that. Yeah. And then when I went to this, but I had a double life because like, I remember going like, yo, I went to this, um, I went to this premiere, man, and I saw this video, and they're like, what's that? I'm like, I don't know, but it's not a movie, but it's longer than a than a music video, but it's shorter than a movie, and Michael's in it, and he's with a girl at a movie, and then he's a werewolf, and they were like, Terrible. they were like, literally kids would just be like, stop bragging, because they had no connection to the industry, so it felt really weird, because I couldn't share this part of my life with my school friends, yeah. who were like, let's play sports, let's play Star Wars, whatever, mm -hmm. and I was like, yo, like, I was but at I, the thriller premiere. I was at the thriller premiere, <laughs> right? So now I go to this school in the Valley, Oakwood, and like, everybody's like, whatever, dude, like, we're, they're doing just as much, if not more than me, so I had yeah. these peers that were creative and interesting and challenging people that have gone on to do so many amazing things like mm -hmm. all these people that i grew up with are like amazing musicians and artists and heads of film studios and like doing really cool stuff now because i grew up in this in this world and so all this stuff is happening concurrently really fast where it's like hip-hop new wave and this is all high school now right high no school. this is still junior high Jesus, so, this is still junior high so then <laughs> the real big jump was i'm at that school and i'm like i i I don't want to be here anymore. I start getting bad grades. Mm. A bunch of stuff goes down with my. Are you partying and stuff and wilding out at all? No. Super straight edge. Wow. Like, Sick. Like the dude who was like, no, thank you. Like, I think that like I tried like 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 a, like a toke or something when I was a kid, but I was like, that's not my thing. Nice. Right. And I was like, because I just like, I was really focused. Mm -hmm. Right. And I was just like. I wasn't like X on my hand straight edge, but like yeah. what I recognize now is I was considered, like I considered myself, you know, I was just like, I don't want to do anything else. I don't want to drink. I don't want to get high. And I saw the kids around me doing it who are just like, I also saw consequences. Like I remember yeah. like when like a kid I knew went to rehab when I was like 10 or 11, I was like, whoa, that's crazy. And it like was sort of heartbreaking or, you know, it was after school special era. So you'd yeah. hear about these things. And I was like, I don't know if I need all that. And so I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I'd experimented, but it wasn't for me. And I was like, no. Um, and I was like doing my thing. I was like, school sucks. My grand, my grandma died. My grandpa went downhill super fast Damn. and like all kinds of crazy stuff went down. And he went from like super, super, super wealthy condo in Malibu. Like we're killing it to like living in an apartment in the Valley broke. He's heartbroken. <sighs> He's like, yo, we can't really afford to keep you in the school right now. Do you want to be here? I'm like, no, I want to bounce. And like the craziest thing that ever happened was I had a homie. I had, so like my grandpa remarried and he had this, uh, he had this, uh, this is so crazy. So he had like this, uh, through marriage, he had like this stepson and kid was like a compulsive liar, like the worst fucking okay. dude ever. The fuck, just the worst fucking dude. And he's like, yo, I go to the school in the Valley, bro, blah, blah, It's so cool. And this kid goes there and they're into hip hop and they do this. And he would spin these tales about these kids who were his friends at school. 
And I was like, that sounds really fun. So eventually I'm like, I'm going to go to school with you because it sounds better than my school. Yeah. So I enroll at this private Catholic school in Burbank Damn. for my um, sophomore year. I'd gone up to Oakwood until freshman. I go sophomore year. And he drops out right before I start. Uh. And so I go to school. And the first day this dude comes up to me, is like, yo, you write graffiti? I'm like, I do. And uh, so we start writing on, on, on my black books together because I was getting really good at graffiti by then. What was your, ta- what was your name? So embarrassing. Like my first, ta- <laughs> it's like so corny. Like when I was like really young, like 12, I think it was like Riddler or something. It was like terrible. And then it was like Rid looks cooler. And so I became Rid. And then I became Cirx, S-E-R-X. And it was only because I liked the letters. It kind of looked like sex, but you threw an R in and it was good. Gotcha. So like my dad's secretary at the time, which now I call assistant, was like her, he like her boyfriend was this crazy graffiti writer and he did like a piece and it was like my name and I got gifted it. And I'm like, this is crazy. He's really good. So my dad introduced me to him and he's the one who started can control magazine, which is the pre Okay. Right. So power power. Who's one of the legends of Los Angeles graffiti was going out with my dad's assistant and he started taking me out bombing when I was like 12 Jesus. to the Belmont yard which is now like a condo, but it's where the Chili Peppers filmed the Under the Bridge video, and it's where they film Colors when the like oh, wow. when Pac Man like sprays paint in the kid's face. Yeah, damn. So the first first tag I ever threw, like a first piece I ever threw, was with Duke, who is a local legend of graffiti and power. Now I'm 12 years old, and this is '87. So this is really early for Los Angeles graffiti. So I'm really into that. So I go to this school and this guy's like, do you tag? I'm like, yeah. And we start doing it. And another kid comes up. He's like, yo, you like hip hop? I'm like, yeah. What do you know about hip hop? And he goes, you want to borrow this mixtape? And it says, Dr. Dre, Rhodium Swap Me mixtape. And I borrow it. And it's one of Dre's mixtapes that he's making and selling at the Rhodium Swap Me in Compton. So I dupe it. I make a copy. And I'm like, how do you have it? And he goes, we have a crew and our DJs in NWA. And I was like, I want to be in your crew. So <laughs> I start I start hanging out with these kids, right? Still, new wave, hip hop, all this stuff I'm into, break dancing, graffiti. Skateboarding, but I can't dude. do any of it. I can't execute it, right? Yeah. But there's something about my mind that's connecting to these elements, and I don't know what my thing is yet. So I start hanging out with these dudes, and they're like, I'm like, yo, you know my cousin through marriage, Sean, blah, 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 and he told me all about you, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, yeah, fuck, we hate that kid. And this is what the craziest thing about life is. This kid who is like my my cousin through marriage would spend hours talking about these kids who he loved, who were his friends, and tell me elaborate things about their lives. Mm. And he must have been some sort of talented Mr. Ripley because he wasn't even a part of their crew. But he clocked so much of it, and he sold this story of these great kids to me who came to me when I went to the school because they identified me as somebody who was into cool shit. Damn. who actually became my best friends so it's now sad, man yeah it's sad but he was like a <laughs> he, buster anyways but he, he you, ratted but he, me out on some shit later okay, okay, okay. Yeah, he sent people that. to my crib oh sure right. he's dead to me then dead to me he's he's he he terrible and <laughs> okay. i literally said to him i'm like you're dead to me never talk to me he literally sent some people to my <laughs> he just wanted to be part of it so bad he made up these stories wow but okay. it was important because he told me and i changed schools based on stories dude yeah and i go to this school and we're hanging out. And then we go to Compton and we go to the swap meet and we go to this guy DJ. Is your first time going to Compton? Yeah, of course. Wow. And I go to Compton and I go to the Rhodium Swap to go to the Compton swap meet, right? And then I go to this guy DJ Speed's house. And DJ Speed is like a member of NWA, but like not Yella or Dre. Gotcha. Right? But he's on the he's he's name checked. 
They even make fun of him on like uh, Easy Does It record. Yeah. They're yeah. like, uh, they're like, yo, you're on the radio with Easy E, and he goes, yo, can we talk to DJ Speed? And he's like, yo, it is DJ Speed. What's up? And they go, the joke's on you, Jack. Oh shit. <laughs> well, that was my DJ. Okay. Wow. So now I'm 14 years old, right? And I got a DJ in NWA, and we're in a rap crew. And so I'm like, when are we going to record? And these dudes never recorded. And I was like, they were like, I'm like, when are we going to record? When are we going to record? Are you rhyming at that time? Starting to write raps. Okay. And I'm like, when are we going to record? And they <laughs> never record. They get beats from, from the dude from NWA. And these fuckers never record it. And I was like, they're not taking it so seriously because I want to do this. I mm. want to make the sounds I'm hearing. So one day this kid comes by who doesn't even go to school. And he's sitting in the parking lot. And just open door in the car, blasting beats and everything. And he doesn't go there. And he's there at lunch. And I'm like, yo, who's this? They're like, yo, this is Kev. This is our boy. And this is like all this. This crew is like white, Asian, Latin. And now this black kid comes to school who's like super cool. He looks like a fucking star. And I'm like, yo, who's this guy? Like, he's cooler than all of y'all. And so he comes up and he and I immediately like lock eyes. And he's like, okay, you're a real one. And there's just something unspoken past, right? And he's a little older. And so like he starts hanging with us after school and chilling. And so he becomes my boy. He doesn't write graffiti. He doesn't break dance. He goes out to clubs and he rhymes and he makes records. So one day he's at my crib just hanging, just being like older brother. Yeah. And he sees a piece of paper on like the bar at my parents' house. And he's like, yo, what's what's this? And he reads it and he goes, who wrote this? And I said, me. And he goes, it's a rap. I said, yeah. He goes, will you rhyme it for me? So I rhymed it for him. And he goes, why are you hanging out with those dudes? Like, I'm like, what do you mean? Those are our boys. He's like, yeah, but like, you're really good. And they're in a joke crew. Damn. Mind you, the name of the crew is the 69th Street Ghetto Style Posse. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that's that's amazing. That's because on the back of the two live crew record, they actually shout them out. And my friends were like, that's going to be our crew name. Oh, okay. They took it. (laughs) They took it. In Burbank, and see, so first, corny. Is this your first time rhyming in somebody in front of somebody too? For sure. Okay, but but I'm already like doing demos. Yeah, I already have a drum machine that I borrowed from my cousin in a four track, and I'm doing demos because I'm like, I think I can do this. My mom bought me a drum machine. My right before my folks got divorced, I said to my dad, I want two turntables. He's like, What do you mean? I go, I want two techniques, turntables, and a mixer. Because this is the way I can make music. And he didn't understand it, but he's like, fine. And he used to get me doubles of vinyl because he worked at a label. Yeah. So he got me doubles of Bismarck, he going off. He got me doubles of Cool Modi. He got me doubles of all these records that he had available to him. And my whole record collection was like promo copies I got for free. Awesome. So I, up until that point, I had a direct drive turntable that I put, you know, like the plastic that the sleeve of record comes in. Yeah. I cut it out in a circle with like an exacto knife to be round. And then I would put baby powder on it and put another one on top so that it would have the, the smoothness and the friction so that I could scratch on a re- old school wow. wood, like 70s. Is that a thing people did back then? Is that a thing? I don't think so. so. You did. I wow. just needed to figure out how to make it scratch without scratching the, the needle. Wow. And so I was like, dad, like there's fucking baby powder all over my setup. Like, it's just crazy. Like, can you get me? And so he got me two turntables and needles and a mixer. And I was really good at like juggling beats and matching. And I kind of found my thing. And so I started DJing the parties in the block with friends and like very like pedestrian, like we're talking like Brady Bunch neighborhood. This How old wasn't you like, now, like 15. It was all still 14. Dude. And I'm doing like, and so like. You did so much, man. It's crazy. It was a lot of that prepared me for what came next because so, what, yeah, what yeah. came next happened fast. Okay. So I'm doing that. It's all cool. Kev's like, in that same sentence, he's like, 
I don't think you, I think you should leave their crew. I'm like, okay. He's like, I have a real crew. We're called the all in all posse. Sick. <laughs> it's 87. It's just 88. Posses were big. Posses were big. <laughs> and so he's like, you should come up and meet my producer. And I'm like, you have a producer? He's like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, you know, the homie Kadada's Kadada. I'm like, Kadada Jones. Yeah, she's great. He's like, her dad is Quincy Jones. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know. He's like, sure. well, Quincy has a son that just moved from Sweden and lives at the crib in Bel Air. He's like, Quincy's my producer. He's like, I'm going to bring you up there and introduce you. So he drives me up to Bel Air, like probably the next weekend. Cause you know, it's like we're kids and like, I don't drive. I'm 14. He drives me. You never heard of Quincy Jones before at that point, right? Of course I did, because he okay. produced Thriller oh, and oh, Off yeah, the Wall. Yeah, 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 but yeah. I didn't know him. Still though, it's so I go up to Quincy Jones' house, right? Dude who created Fresh Prince of Bel Air, and now I feel like what would soon become Fresh Prince of Bel Air, because I walk into Bel Air where I'd maybe been to the crib before with Kadada and the homies. So now I go up to the crib, and I go into the studio. Quincy Senior's not there, and I meet. This guy who is like, yo, what's up? I'm Q. And he goes by QD3. Reasoning is that Quincy Jones, the producer we know, like, is actually Quincy Delight Jones Jr. Quincy Jones is actually a junior. So okay. his son, right? I'm sorry, he's the second. Okay. He's the second. So Fuck. so this dude I meet is Quincy the third. He's like, oh, I'm QD3. I'm like, nice to meet you. He's got dreads. I'm about to rock dreads, like trying to knot my hair up. I'm like, yo, nice to meet you. He's like mixed like me. He's like Swedish and black. And he's like, yo, cool. all right, let me hear you rap. And I'm just like, uh, beat. He's like, nope, just rap. And I was like, oh, shit. So I just bust a rhyme and he goes, all right, let's get started. And we're in the basement of like this like back house at his dad's crib. There's a there's a one inch 16 track reel to reel machine. There's um, he didn't have an MPC 60 yet. He had like a, an old school drum machine and an Akai S900 or S950 sampler. And I started going there on the weekends and I would write all my raps. And he helped me with like arranging, like this is too long. You need to do, he helped me with bars cause I would write too much, but I understood hooks and choruses immediately and all. And I understood what he was doing production wise. And I started asking him questions and going like, why this, how this, and asking him to show me how to work the sampler and drum machine. And I learned all this stuff from him. And like the only thing, like going back, like my dad, people are always like, oh, your dad was in the music industry. You must've grown up around studios. I'm like, no, I grew up around radio stations and I grew up around concerts, promo side. Right. Yeah. Just like, oh, your grandpa was in porno. Yeah, but not movie sets, distribution. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was never in the room. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when I was at that church, the only thing that kept me sane going to that church was I'd be there for these sermons and it was so whack and so oppressive. But there was a recording booth up top above where they captured it all on reel to reel. And there was a couple kids that were about seven, eight years older than me that were like these older teenagers and early 20s guys who were the recording engineers. And I realized quickly that not only were they funny and cracking jokes and not buying into it all, but if I went up to the booth with them when they recorded, I didn't have to be in the church. True. So there also was an offsite facility where they took those recordings and made mass produced cassettes that they would distribute to the church people. Wow. And my mom worked at that building where they, where they did it. And so when I would go see my mom to go, get like carpool before she take me home from school i would just go chill in the proper recording studio there and watch so i always loved the recording studio but i didn't know what my place was in it so now quincy qd3 is teaching me about it it's awesome at 14 at 14 and what are like some of your first like what are you rhyming about at 14 like what do any of the topics you're writing about like, oh, had, oh, yeah. had you ever been in love yet or like, or like what are you 
No, bro. <laughs> I, 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 I was. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke weed. I was a virgin. Wow. I was like. I was like. I was like. Like you know. It was just dumb rhymes like yeah. J-U-S-T-I-N. I'm hard hitting. <laughs> like it was like, you know what I mean? Like it was just about being hard. OK, OK, OK. Yeah. I mean, because so everything cool. goes back to LL. Mm. You know, no rapper can rap quite like I can. I'll take a muscle it's band man and put his fate in the sand. Not a last mafioso. I'm an MC cop. Make it say go LL and do the walk. Right. And my dad worked at that label. So I had the red Kangol and bad. Right. And all that. Right. So like LL was the god. The God who doesn't who doesn't get enough props to, in in this in these days I don't think I think he's still underrated I don't know why yeah, he's putting the goat anymore. dude he says if you think you cannot rhyme me yeah boy I bet because I ain't met a motherfucker, motherfucker who can, can do, do that, that yet. yet dude I know. he's so dope before Rock him there was him for me if you real like there's a million little things we could talk about but the real ones were Run DMC right because to me like jam on it i kind of still put that like we're talking about in the new wavy yeah, electro freestyle yeah, right run dmc i knew every, i knew every snare i like it always puzzled me when i was a kid how come it went boom tat 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 boom boom tat 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 one more rotation then kings from queens from queens come kings who are raising hell and i was like wait a minute why is there so many beats before like i thought about that That's i didn't really realize cool that, that i was like becoming a record producer so now i'm with quincy and he's teaching me so there was there was l and what kev introduced me to was three things that changed my life okay kev turned me on to when we went to music plus on ventura and laurel canyon i bought three tapes with him that completely changed my life i bought by all means necessary by boogie down productions <laughs> Perfect album, dude. <clears throat> I bought Paid in Full. Perfect album. By Eric B. Kim. And I bought um, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. Another one, dude. Now, I had, ar- I had already had Bring the Noise as a 7-inch because the Lesson Zero soundtrack was on my dad's label. Mm. So I had doubles of Bring the Noise. I had ar- It was Rebel is the song that I hadn't heard that Kev turned me on to. And, I, and Rebel, to me, Over the pause. was the most punk rock thing I ever heard in my the life. The band was punk rock. <clears throat> Fuck. Public Enemy did something for me that Run DMC and LL couldn't. And so when I heard the trifecta of BDP, when I heard KRS and I heard Chuck and I heard Rakim, I realized that LL was great, but it was also like a little bit like you might have liked hair metal, but when Nirvana came around, you're like, I'm getting the flannel. <laughs> like, mm, great, so like great analogy. Yeah. it was like it kind of made LL seem old school because you didn't want to hear an MC Shan type rapper anymore. You didn't want. And look, I still love the Juice Crew. I still loved all that. Yeah. Because the thing is, is like my thing with hip hop before I was in the culture, when I was an outsider, I like like you are talking about liner notes. I didn't care about i mean i love the lakers and i grew up a hardcore basketball nerd um but like i didn't collect sports cards i looked at records and i knew the engineer in the studio and the the shout outs and the the little inside jokes and the the, here's the hidden thing on the record and i like but just like a fan yeah like all of us yeah so when i started working with with q and kev mentoring me yeah 
Kev's also like, yo, let's go out to this club. There's this club at night. I start going out to clubs and now there's like going out to clubs and there's dancing in clubs and there's performing at clubs and there's girls and this whole world opens up. Now I'm doing live shows with Kev yeah. playing like a carnival and like rhyming in like the hood and Pacoima for like all these cholos and rocking crowds and doing shows around Hollywood. Now I'm like 15 and I'm like 15 and getting into clubs under age and going out to dance clubs and hearing DJs that are changing my life. But when Kev played me, I didn't know Eric B and Rock Kim when when my melody and Ooh, and all that came out. The first song I heard from them was "I Know You Got Soul," right? Incredible, so, man. So when I heard "I Know You Got Soul," it's like one of those things where when you get into a group and then you go back and discover the old stuff. Yeah, I discovered them on on "I Know You Got Soul." and paid in full from the clubs. Then I went back and discovered them. I discovered KRS from my philosophy, and then I went back and discovered Criminal Minded. Incredible. The man. only group out of that trifecta was I had Yo Bum Rush show on vinyl. So PE I was in from the beginning. Yeah. And I also was really in from the beginning because I had and still have the first record they ever did when they were called Spectrum City, which was mm. a song called Check Out the Radio. So I already knew Public Enemy and I knew his voice. I'm like, oh, that's Spectrum City. Those are those Long Island dudes who put out that and they were DJs and he put out that song. Wow. So I knew them and Chuck resonated with me so much that I started to model my production and making beats after the Bomb Squad, but I was modeling my rhymes after Rakim. So... I started making demos and I didn't have like the ability to sample. So I would speed, I would slow down the tape on my four track and I would record my alarm clock going off and then I would speed it back up. So it'd be a high pitched sort of siren. So I could try and replicate the sounds that like the bomb squad were doing. Wow, but then I was rhyming, like just basically trying to sound like rock him, just completely <laughs> ripping off rock him. Like all I wanted to be was baby raw. Like yeah. I was just like, you know, I remember like, I literally had a song called Riding with the Rhythm that was like, just like, let the rhythm hit him. Like, it was just yeah, like, yeah. you know, riding with the rhythm on the plane, just trying to space. Look at the mind, the mind at the time of space. Look back, 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 checking the backtrack. Feel the kick of the kid with the bass stack. Like, I was like Sounds dropping like, yeah. my voice and I was like, so dumb. And I loved it, right? And all of that was great. And so now I'm making records with QD3. Where I'm playing shows with Kev. Trying to find your voice too, your style. And yeah. So far from finding my voice. Mm. But doing something making music not yeah. like i want to break dance i want to do graffiti yeah. i stopped doing graffiti a little bit after right, right. bunch of our home homies like our our dance crew got real gangy and like a lot of like not cool stuff happened and i was like i'm out like i'm 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 not going to like I got in a car accident getting chased by somebody who's trying to be a hero and we were out tagging one night Damn. and the car ran us off the road and we crashed this old car Magia and like basically accordioned it and I my head hit the window and I busted my nose and I was bleeding and like I was like trying to th worry about throwing away this the cans so in case the, like the cops came yeah and these cholos pulled over it was by the Hollywood Bowl and they were like yo where are you from SA and like I'm like I'm bleeding like leave me alone and like like <laughs> we're almost you. getting we're getting checked Jesus. and I was like and the next day after this whole thing I hit my boy and I'm like I'm out I'm not writing anymore no more graffiti because I concurrently with all the hip-hop stuff i was hanging out in like like yards with dudes like who were writing graffiti like all the dudes who like really 
were the illest graffiti writers in LA and the Valley all over Los Angeles. I was discovering West LA and the deep Valley and writing with dudes that were like way older and like sketchy dudes. And I was mm. running with like gnarly dudes, like not like killers or anything, but like really gnarly, like yeah. bad things street were happening. Yeah, street yeah. dudes. And I was like, I'm so drugs and violence and all that shit. Probably no drugs then okay. lots not, of violence. Not you, but around me. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. They weren't even doing drugs. Okay. It was like, cause everybody was just like, they just wanted to write graffiti. Yeah, like yeah. it was so focused. But there's beefs, this physical beefs. Oh, dude. Like the, the Beat down, shit, stomp yeah, outs. Yeah. Then it's guns. And I was like, I'm out. And so I, I completely, that was really what made me take hip hop serious. Wasn't like, I'm going to get a record deal. I'm going to be in the industry. I'm going to have a career. It was like, if I keep hanging out in the clubs, which was super fun or running around with the dudes I'm hanging out with. And I'm a little bit of an instigator, like bad things are going to happen. Yeah. And they did, but I got out and stopped hanging with this particular crew and I took my music super serious. So Kevin, I start recording and then one day Quincy goes, yo, my dad wants to put out a compilation record of all, um, of all the artists I work with. There's like four or five. Now by this point, we're going out to the clubs and we're dancing and hanging out and there's a club called Water the Bush and United Nations that are at the time run by Africa Islam of a Zulu nation right now so islam is ice t's producer okay. and he's also the the west coast chapter president of the zulu nation just Damn. like africa bombada and the west and east coast like so, five percenters and stuff like that no just okay. like straight zulu nation okay. just the hip-hop unity breakdancing right. b-boying graffiti right and so i'm going to this club and everybody's performing like everybody would come through and it was like the illest club i'd ever been to and i went to a lot of clubs but Water the Bush and United Nations were special. And they were both at the building where Jimmy Kimmel's taped now with the four pillars. Gotcha. In the basement. Huge auditorium, stage. Madonna would come, every celebrity would come because it was the illest. And I knew Damn. the doorman. And at that time, one of Kev's dancers was uh, what was called a Zulu king, meaning he was just like in the hierarchy of the Zulu nation in LA. And he put Kevin I on Zulu nation. So I got my Zulu medallion. <laughs> so now I'm 15 years old. I'm in Zulu Nation. Wow. I'm hanging out at the club. Not even graduated yet, <laughs> dude. And so then all of our homies, down, yeah. all of our homies, are well. There's this dance crew over there, the Romeos, who becomes Farside, right? There's Eric, who's like signed to Ice T's thing, right? Like Rhyme Syndicate, Everlast, House of Pain. There, Everlast. Like these are all the homies, right? Rhyme Syndicate. There's like all there's there's this dude who was one of my biggest influences who doesn't get a lot of shine who really really affected me early in hip hop. So when my dad was still working at Epic and doing all that, he was like, "Yo, there we signed another rapper." And I'm like, "Who?" And he's like, "This guy Donald D." And I'm like, "Oh, cool." And I listen to him like, "Yeah, he's pretty dope." And he's like, "You want to come to the video shoot?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, let's go." So I go, and it's like Ice T's Rhyme Syndicate crew, and I'm like, "Yo, dad, you know this guy who." this big guy iced him like that's the dj in that video we did back you know five years wow. ago he's like whoa so i go to the donald d thing and then i i start seeing that like now everlast is a part of that because the rhyme syndicate and so all that was connected to water the bush so i'm doing all that and i'm in all that and it's cool but still not like it's still la now i'm going with my homies from school and after school i'm like yo you want to go to k-day they're like dude you liar dude you can't get us in k-day i'm like let's roll up we'd roll up i go to k-day i'd go in i'd see the dj we go right into the booth he's like yo what's up justin i go you want to get on the mic i'm like yo what's up want to give a shout out to boom 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 and i'm like he's like what do you want me to play and i'd be like play that new easy -E. and so they're playing records i'm in that scene but still outside 
and me and Kev are doing our own thing. So, so QD3 puts out a compilation record. Yeah. And it's called QD3 Sound Lab because that was the name of a studio. And I do a song and like, this is how crazy it was. One day, and I'm, I'm like very impressionable. One day I'm sounding like Rakim, right? But like my favorite hip hop group is this group from New York called the Jungle Brothers. Of course, man. Come but like on. people in LA don't know. Don't by the force of nature. Yes. Before. Before. Yeah, yeah. So my boy comes back from New York with a couple of cassettes. And one of them is this record straight out the jungle. Out the jungle and yeah. I looked at the cover and the it was airbrushed. And I'd never seen colors like that. Yeah. And I was obsessed. So I listened to this and I burned this tape out with him until he was like, dude, I can't listen to that anymore. But there was a <laughs> song on that called The Promo which is produced by a guy called Q-Tip and Q-Tip Rhymes. And his voice completely hit different. And I was like, whoa. Incredible, dude. Like, that's a crazy sound. And I knew this record so well. So at this time, I'm hanging out with Kev and our friend Carmelita Sanchez, who's like a radio personality and like a really influential uh, Latina woman in LA who was really connected. And she's like, Yo, this is my homegirl, Sophia Chang. And I'm like, oh, cool, blah, blah, blah. Sophia works at this record label, Jive. It's like KRS, all this, right? So my world is like LA at this time. It's like, it was before Black Eyed Peas. It was before yeah. Will, Will was doing that. Like, honestly, like House of Pain wasn't even out yet. Like, Eric was putting out records as Everlast. I got the knack. Yes. And his slick back hair. I remember that, man. Yeah. Yeah. And QD3 produced Terry B, his girl. Okay. Right. Who was like gangster mall image with the like Tommy guns and he was like the boxer, right? And all That's that. That's right. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 So QD3 was connected to that world. And also Eric and I had the same lawyer. Now, at this time, I go, Kev is like, yo, we're going to go hang out with Carmelita and we meet Sophia and this dude, Sean, the captain, Sean Karasov, very legendary guy. I would later find out he was the tour, he was the roadie for the Beastie Boys. He uh-huh. roadied for the Clash and then he was the tour manager for the Beastie Boys. And then he was involved with signing everybody at Jive. Sophia Chang is this incredible Asian woman. She's super cute. She's cool. She's like the coolest chick in the world. And I meet her and she's working out in New York and she comes to LA. And they're like, we're going to pick up this artist from the airport and go down to the show in Compton. (laughs) And I'm like, who is it? And she said, a tribe called Quest. Oh, man, dude. So now it's, it's 89. Yep. I'm two years into recording with Quincy, sounding like Rakim. <laughs> but you I, love the native tongue stuff, obviously. Yeah. There was no native tongue. Oh, before that. There was Jungle Brothers. Jungle Brothers. JBs. And so everybody's like, who's, who's a tribe called Quest? And I'm like, he shouted it out. So the way that you and Dante were talking about how, mm. how Tip gave Busta the, 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 the scenario. Right. He gave him the platform and the jump off. Yes. And he said, shine, do your thing. He became a star. Killed it. The Jungle Brothers knew Q-Tip was the man and he was this low-key incredible producer. So when they did the promo, it's literally called the promo. Mm -hmm. And he goes, he goes, and they say something like, um, now we got another Jungle Brother. And he goes, me, Q-Tip. And he he introduces himself. They say he's a Jungle Brother. And then he says, from a tribe called Quest, oh yes. And he says it. So they literally allowed him to promote his record. Amazing. That was in like 88. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So then... So cool. That's on Zomba. That's like some weird Idlers, Warlock records. Then they're like, yo, Tribe's coming to town. Everybody's like, who? And I'm like, you could have told me that fucking the Beatles were coming to town. (laughs) 
and like Elvis, like for people. Yeah. I was like, whoa, I'm going. So we pile in a minivan, we go to LAX, and we pick up Q-Tip, Ollie, Fife, and Jerobi from the airport. And it's the first time they've ever set foot in Los Angeles. And I, I'm like around all the homies, but they're homies. Like I'm, even though people were like better rap, like Everlast was a better rapper, Farside wasn't even out yet. Like they were literally doing music that sounded like BBD at the time. Like, yeah. and I was around them at the crib, but now I'm like, wait a minute, this is crazy. So we pick them up and we go to Compton because KRS-One is getting the key to the city from the mayor of Compton for the Stop the Violence movement. Ooh, great. The show's called Coolin' in Compton. The only footage of it online did like these gangster rap dudes with like Raiders hats and like, you know, completely like, like thugged out, like performing. Tribe Called Quest goes up and performs before BDP. And Tribe Called Quest is wearing head to toe, kente cloth dashikis and looking like the, the way they did on the, on the promo materials for the first record. Yeah. They only have a single out called Description of a Fool. Yeah. Right. They go up and they do like two or three songs and then I instantly meet them. Give them the props, blah, blah, blah. And then something like, so now I'm 16 because it's 89, so I can drive. So Jerobi and Fife are like, yo, can you take us out, right? Like Fife's like, I want to find New Balance. I want to buy shoes. Like they can't buy them in New York anywhere. Take me to find New Balance. And I want to play ball. And like Jerobi's like, let's just hang. So I branch off with them because Tip was with my friend who he was dating at the time. So he was off with the girl. These Ali was just always to his own thing, doing his own thing. So Jerobi and Fife are my dudes. And I'm driving them around town at 16, still in high school. Dude. And like they haven't dropped anything. There's no low end theory. There's no people's instinct of travels yet. Mm -hmm. And so I take Fife to this pickup basketball game in Burbank and it's like Robin Harris from like uh it was my local game and it was like Robin Harris from Do the Right Thing it was Martin Lawrence it was all these black comedians and like we're balling and they're like Robin Harris and Martin Lawrence are capping on us and like these incredible formative times with with Fife and Jerobi but I start spending more time with Jerobi so inevitably inevitably I just say yo this is my cousin I start you know this is my cousin. This is my cousin Jerobi. So I just start saying, this is my cousin Jerobi. Introducing him to people, it's easier, shorthand. We start going out to clubs, boom, 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 boom. So in the Zulu Nation, hanging out with them. And I was like, then they dropped their record. And between the Jungle Brothers, now putting out Done by the Forces of Nature, which had come out. And right? People's Instinctive Travels is the first tribe, right? Yeah. And then, and then De La. So I realized that like I might have wanted to be in Duran Duran when I was 10. Yeah. But at 16, I wanted to be in the native tongues. Yeah. And I actually had the ability to. And so you were there you were hanging with him. Yeah. man. Right. So I say, OK, like I'm going to be that's my voice because it's my vibe. I'm listening to fucking Jimi Hendrix and and hippie music with my mom and at this point i lived in laurel canyon at the time i was like come on like these are like black hippies this is me this is my mm -hmm. thing rock him i'm not head to toe dapper dan like you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah. it just wasn't me and vocally it wasn't i had to drop my voice to do it right so Start rocking the medallions and all that huh i was already rocking it zulu yeah, nation right. all of that right like medallions no gold yeah i already had dreads the whole deal so we start doing our thing i get this manager by the name of Steve Rifkin. <laughs> Dude. He, he was doing something called Steve Rifkin Company. Yep. And he's doing the Steve Rifkin Company. 
and it's promotions and street promotions, his first street promotion team, right? So he starts doing his whole street promotion thing. He starts managing me. And Quincy, we, I do a few more songs with Quincy. We sample JB's and Tribe and the hook of the song. We do a song called Season of the Vic. Wow. And we do another song. I do a music video. Looking like some like Lenny Kravitz, like you know <laughs> what I mean, it. like dress, dressing like Jim Morrison, looking like Lenny Kravitz, and I'm just being on my own shit and the most me I've ever been. You think but, this dude's like you, like West Coast is rocking that style at that point? No, no, yeah. like but, you're really onto the New York shit, yeah. I'm onto the New York shit, and like nobody's really like trying to like everything is still really gangster rap yeah, at the time. Yeah, out here now. By this time, like Far Side's doing things, and House of Pain's doing their thing, and like there was a couple of other people. But like I knew that I was ahead, but it wasn't like it was because I had that weird background. So when I yeah. when I just said stop trying to be Chuck and 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 raw, yeah, I was like, who am I? And I'm like, well. I would actually, if I had the ability, I would be making music like Jane's Addiction or The Doors. So maybe just be that over beats. And so we sampled Tribe and De La, So there was never, I'm sorry, it's Tribe and, and uh, JB. So there's never like, it was obvious in the hook of my song, Season of the Vic. So anyways, we do this video. We put out the songs. Kev's on the, you know, Kev who walked me through the door, all this. He's on the compilation record too. He puts out some videos. Rifkin's like, yo, I'm going to manage you. I was his first management client. Um, You're still a teenager now Still in high school 16 So Quincy puts out the single And then The single blows up And now I'm on MTV Raps I'm on BET What year is this? Like 90? 91 So now I'm like Blow up in the sense of what? Like you're making money? Like you're playing shows? Like you're So all this stuff happened really fast Where like I put We do the record It takes years at this point We're doing these records And we do this one I do two songs that are like They're cool It's alright And then I do this song Season of the Vic We sample Sly and the Family Stone From the Fresh record The song You Got Me Smiling We clear the sample Because we are The record came out through Warner Brothers Who had just had the Just a Friend Beef with Biz Marquis So they're making you clear everything So we cleared our samples We put out the song K-Day starts playing it. All the black stations in LA playing it. The Bay Area starts playing it. New York radio starts playing it. BLS, Kiss FM. So I've been to New York with my like stepdad who is from Jersey and with my mom. But I And I'd been there to do like a weird documentary with Kev like on like some German film crew doing a hip hop doc um, yeah. that we did in like 88. But like I'd never been to make music. So the song blows up. Quincy's like I want to sign you Not QD3 His dad is like Damn. I'm going to sign you To Quest Records Who at the time Was just like me And New Order And a couple of other groups So QD3 is like Okay cool I'm your producer I'm your mentor I'm going to produce your record And I was like Yeah but I want some other flavors For my record And he's like Okay cool whatever He wasn't too happy hmm. But it's like You know I was like expanding And I wanted to do Some of my own shit So I say to Jerobi Like I want to Like now my song blows up Right. So Joby's like, yo, bro, like, hell yeah. Like baby brother, like you're doing it just like us. Like, yeah. So I'm like, I want to make a record. Um, I need producers. I'm like, how do we do that? And Joby's like, you just come through the city and hang. And I'm like, okay. So I book like two weeks in New York in a hotel. I'm just 18. Right. I, a year out of high school, I'd done like a semester of community college. I'm like, I'm going to get a record deal. I bounced on community college. And then I'm like, I go to New York. I stay at the Paramount Hotel in Midtown. And and I'm like, yo, Jerobi, just 
just bail Queens, come stay with me. So Jerobi leaves Queens and he comes and stays with me for two weeks. And like first night, I'm like, what do we do? How do we like set up meetings? He's like, we don't set up meetings. We just go out. So the first night we go out and, and Jerobi says, I remembered it to be Latifah's 21st birthday. Jerobi says it wasn't for sure. And that it was an MTV event honoring Latifah. I was like already super fanboy on Princess of the Posse and Wrath of My Madness. So we go to this party and Jerobi and I walk in and it's this huge New York club. It's 1990 or 91. I think it's 90. Oh yeah, my single came out. So it's probably like 91. And and by the way, I've already like done club dates in New York at this point. Yeah. Like I've already gone and performed at like Sheets and Pillows and all these crazy. Sheets and Pillows has to always go to those clubs. Wow. Yo, I have the flyer. Stretch Armstrong, Guabito, all that stuff. I have the flyer. Wow, Bill Spector in those clubs. Wow. I still have the flyer. That's so amazing. I'm, I'm like 18. I'm no, I'm seven. I'm 17, alone in New York, Damn. playing Sheets and Pillows with Jerobi as like my boy chaperone everything. So I start playing clubs like that, and I just go up and do one song. People like because it was a hit, right? Yeah. So I was like, "Damn, this is crazy!" Like hit song, hip hop. You know, back then it wasn't. It wasn't. Hit song was different back then, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like recognizing the streets, like, oh shit, like in Harlem, like, yo, what up? And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. So we go to this club, Latifah's party, walk in, and it's like, Lakim Shabazz, Chill Rob G, Latifah, like everybody, like, oh my God, like the whole, like her whole cruise there, like, you know, like all these people. It, it, the closest thing for me was like when I look at like, when like Henry Hill and Goodfellas like walks in mm. and like is led into the room, like with the mobsters, yeah. like it felt different than being in LA. It felt different than being at the clubs we went to in LA where I had that entree. Cause now I'm in New York. Cause I was always the dude where people were like really into gangster rap and I was not with it. I was yeah. into East coast rap and I was just a fanboy of that. And so with the flavor unit, that's what it's called. Yeah. So flavor exactly. Unit. So the flavor unit was there. All these people. Yeah, I was trying to think of that. Good, good call. And so <laughs> all the flavor unit was there and more. So we're walking through the crowd and all of a sudden he's like, yo, check it out. He's like, yo, what's up, Paul? What's up? Drove you. He's like, yo, it's my boy, Justin Warfield. And he's like, yo, Justin Warfield season of the Vic. That's crazy. And I'm like, yo, you're Prince Paul. And he's like, yo, <laughs> I love your shit, dude. And I'm like, dude, you're, three feet high and rising changed my life. He's like, yo, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm in New York, like meeting with producers. I'm making my solo album. And he's like, yo, I want to produce you. And I was like, come on, done. So (laughs) he wrote, he grabbed a pen. He wrote down his number on a piece of paper and over the, so like now I'm tripping and and like, he's like, come through my crib in long Island. I'll play you some beats. I'm like, okay. And Joby's like, see dude, all we got is chill. The next night we're at the club and I'm like, I'm smoking a blunt with Guru and Premier. And like Premier's bro. Premier's like, yo, your single's crazy, bro. I want to produce you. And like we're rolling a blunt and we're hanging out, and we're chilling. And I'm like, damn, like, I'm like, yo, like your beats are incredible, dude. I've always been with you guys. Like, just to get her up is my song, blah, blah, blah. And like Best. And I'm just like, I can't believe this is my life. I can't believe this right now, man. And I'm dude, 17. Like and like I'm not on some addict shit, but I'll like I'll smoke weed and like me and Jerobi are drinking forties now. Smoke guru, bro, that's amazing. Yeah, and I'm like, and I'm like, you know, by this point, I'm like a little bit getting into that stuff, and I'm like, all right, so people think 40s it's and blunts. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, blunts. Oh yeah, yeah, me and Jerobi had a routine. We would just go like we would, <laughs> we would just get blimpies and forties. 
Plimpy. Yeah, so we so would just go get we would just go get like hoagies and like a forty, and then like go down and try and buy weed in Times Square, and like just <laughs> go up to Harlem, nickel bag of funk they called it, and we would just like we were rolling blunts. So we were just the time of our lives, bro. Yeah. So then like people were always like, "How could you pass on Primo to do beats?" And I'm always like, "Because it wasn't my vibration." Mm. I knew who I was as an artist for the first time. Yeah. And like, he's the dopest hip hop producer maybe ever. Yeah. But like, that wasn't like Prince, the opportunity to be a part of the native tongues, even tangentially. I was like, I'm in. Yeah. So I go out to Paul's, plays me these beats. I'm picking beats. I'm like, amazing, 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 amazing. We start recording demos right there. I go back to LA. Now Tribe puts out Low End Theory. Yeah, yeah, dude. And like go to the record release party, hanging with them. That's all happening. Now there's this pipeline happening to when those dudes are coming to New York for to LA. Now I'm friends with Ayla. Now I'm friends with Black Sheep. You're their dude when they come in town. Yeah. Or just they know me. And yeah. now it's not like there's that kid who drove us around the show. They're like, and so like I'm getting a lot of flack from like the source and like Bobby to all these people who are like, yo, that kid's like a, like a biter. He's just trying to be tip. He's trying to be tip. And like this crazy really? the source was saying shit. Wow. The source hated me. And they also had like a, they had like a, like a gossip thing where it was like, no one really knew who wrote it, but they would just like take jabs at people. And they were like, oh yeah, blah, blah, blah. Like just trying to make false drama between tip and I. And it really, it really hurt me because like, I went from like unknown to like, oh shit, like you're the man I'm on. I'm on like MTV raps, like all that shit. The box. B E T. The I was all over the box, all that, and I was like just out of high school, and now everybody's like shitting on me, like about sounding like Tip, and I'm like, damn. And so when I go to New York, I end up seeing Chris Lighty, like one of the most legendary and most important people in hip hop. Right? Yeah, rest in peace. An amazing dude. So this is a crazy story. So like, I see. I see him now. I know him because he's the the bodyguard for and tour manager. He's a tour manager for the Jungle Brothers, and he started out. You know, there's an incredible long uh, podcast about him that's out there. But like, he started out being like when Red, they carry records for Red Alert and be Red Alert Security, and they're called the Violators because yeah, the they're like the hardest crew in New York, except for like there's a crew called the Decepticons that like every, oh yeah I know yeah that yeah too, yes. right. So like that was the era I was in New York, bro. Like yeah. as an LA kid from Laurel Canyon, North Hollywood, all the yeah. shit I told you. Decepticons now I'm out at clubs. And dudes are like, watch out, dude. Those guys might be decepts and they have razor blades on them and shit. And don't violate. Don't violate. You get violated. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And bro, like, imagine this. One day I'm doing all my LA thing, blah, 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 Hollywood kid. Because the other thing I didn't really say is like through that this whole time, all my friends are child actors who are now blowing up in movies, TV. Uh -huh. So we're running around movie sets, going to clubs, getting in bars in LA, ropes opening up, crazy real like nepo baby shit like i'm not gonna front like yeah. our, our world was crazy yeah but now i'm in the club i'm at red alerts club the red zone and some shorty comes in and throws the 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 thing that holds the red rope throws it through the window and me and jerobi like duck and a glass breaks and pop 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 and they're shooting in the club and now one of our boys gets shot and i'm just like really hiding behind a bar <laughs> having the best night of my life at this club with red alert spinning and then the next thing you know people are getting shot and like so i was like in like for a kid from la like there was no more la but like then then i'm like yo you have a show with nice and smooth in the bronx Oh my god! And Tim Dog has fuck Compton out. So sick. And there was so much beef. I remember that, that. Like, just so you know, too, when the New York rappers would come to L.A., even I won't call my, my, my name, but the New York rappers would be so nervous 
Even like the guys who like the hearts. Yeah. No, it's just like New Yorkers. Yeah. They were like, I heard Tim dog got stepped to a couple of times for sure. Dude. When was- New York rappers would come to LA, they were super shook. Cause colors came out in 88 and everybody who wasn't in inner city or gang banging started a gang after colors came out. It was the most lawless time in LA. It was crazy, yeah. bro. And Damn. we all got caught up. Everybody got caught up. Tagging turned to tag, tag banging. They called it. Everybody got militarized and like completely. Um, everybody, um, everybody changed up their whole shit with with colors. So Damn. W- even like when like Tip and them came, they're like, "Yo, are they gonna be drive bys?" And we were like, "We're in like this is like La Siena and Olympic, bro. Like we're good. You know what I mean? Like we're like we're straight. You know what I mean? Chilling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're at a hotel. Like, or I drove them to UCLA when they played their first UCLA show, and like, but Just like, like the not knowing in the movies, not, and not knowing. Yeah. And 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 I'm like, yo, if you go down some back alley or like some neighborhood in South Central, it'll be ill. But like, and so wow. I'm in the South Bronx with like nice and smooth, hanging out. I'm playing shows with everybody. I go to the Bay Area and like now like. Bro, like, I met, I met the Hyro crew. Well, first, first I met Dell because he was in town and Jerobi and I bumped into him. We're like, come through the hotel. So we had Dell come over to my hotel and we smoked out. We were both tripping out because we both had dyed hair. We were both Mm. weird. We both had nose rings. We were like outsiders. So then when I go to the Bay, I met Souls and we performed at a club together um, called the Upper Room. And, and, And I played with Souls and they had just they had just dropped 93 till infinity. This was a little bit later and I had dropped my song. So we were like, Oh, we're peoples. Like yeah. we knew each other at the time. Freestyle fellowship was like originating everything in LA and pushing things forward. And that, I mean, far side was hella influenced by freestyle fellowship. And like people that really know, know that was like the good life cafe scene in LA, which I wasn't a part of, yeah. but I had my people there. So all this ha- was happening culturally and happening. Then I'd be like, dude, like I remember being in New York city and well, I found out who Wu was because I was playing a, a club show in Philly and, and Rifkin called me and he was like... Yeah, about putting you on a show that grew from Shaolin or something, right? Yeah, yeah. So Riff, <laughs> I told you this at that festival. So Riff is like, Riff is like, yo, bro, um, I'm starting a label. It's called Loud. And he gave me a box of cards and it said Justin Warfield A&R. And he goes, you're going to find groups for me. And I was like, I don't, I, I don't really know wow. if I have the bandwidth for that. And I didn't do anything. But technically... <laughs> literally the first box of cards printed for A&R was for me. Wow. And I'm like, I told Riff when I saw him, like we had lunch last year and I was like, I would do anything to have one of those cards still just to like, yeah. it was Frame so, you know, yeah. threw them all out. And so I was like, <laughs> he's like, yo, you're playing a show in Philly to come see this group, like stick around after you go on. There's this group that's super dope, man. I signed these guys. There's like eight of them, dude. And they're from Staten Island. They're crazy. Oh and I was like, God. all right, cool. So I perform, I do my two songs. I'm in the booth of like a DJ booth above a club in philly in the most ruthless part of north philly near temple and like i'm playing and then i turn behind me and i literally hand the mic to like i think it was raekwon because i was like i've never seen anybody as scary in my life yeah (laughs) and like these dudes are lurking behind me and it was all of them and they got on they gave them their vinyl and they did protect your neck and Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with. And people were like, what was it like? And I'm like, I don't know, dude. I was talking to girls and I heard them in the background. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like how crazy is that I literally passed the mic to the Wu and I was like, and Rifkin told me, he goes, they're going to change hip hop. 
and Damn. I was like, okay, cool, bro. Like, like yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. What like, so about it? I, I didn't know what was happening. So then the next That's time insane. I saw Wu was I knew Busta because I was a huge leaders fan. Love I'd never met too. Dante through any of this, right? Crazy. I never knew Dante Ross. I guarantee you he was, of course, he's in the same room with the Latifah party where I met Prince Paul, right? So Just like, another case of that PTA. That was their single member. Bro. Bro, still have still have my vinyl of that. I love leaders, yeah. Love leaders, right? And so I'm like, okay, like that dude is the illest. I see leaders perform best hip hop live show. I think. Also, Charlie Brown was sick too in that group. Charlie Brown was sick. I mean, to me, I always felt like he was just like a more animated Chuck D. Mm, Good point. The group was always busted to me. Like, no disrespect to them. And like, this what happened to those dudes? I wonder who knows. But yeah, like I'm watching them, and I'm like. It's the Busta show. He was amazing. And they were good. And they can like ding dong and like do the lines yeah. around him, right? But yeah. like he was the guy. True. There's no question that in school I wrote notes past those from Shakespeare. And other, like yeah. they had some flows. They were good, right? But yeah. like, but Busta was the guy. So I had seen leaders and I was like, LONS is the illest live show, blah, blah, blah. So one night I'm walking around with Jerobi and I see like a little cypher and I'm like, oh, cool. They're freestyling. And he's like, no, no, no. That's some like God shit. So we walk up and it's God shit. It's fucking Busta and ODB in a 5% battle. Wow. And I'm fucking 17 or 18 and I'm standing there just watching. And it's the first time I ever heard 5% like knowledge being broken down in person. And bro, like when you're a kid, like sitting in your room trying to like emulate rock him. And then years later you're listening to like, ODB and Buster Rhymes, two of the illest to ever do it, and two gods break down the stuff that was like, I've only heard on records. I can't even express like being allowed to be around that mm. was so special, right? Yeah, special moment. It was special, dude. Like I was around so many, so many things like that. And like, honestly, like there's only a couple people like there's always like sometimes people are peripherally involved. Sometimes you're in the room. Sometimes you're in the room doing things. Sometimes it's like those are your people's you're hanging around. Yeah. Like there's few people like Dante Ross who like made the records help shape the culture. But I was doing things at a time where the culture was still being developed. Right. True. And because I did it at such a young age, whether it's graffiti, whether it's breakdancing, whether it's hip hop, people bug out when they find out the eras in which I did my things because it should be that I'm 58. Right. But I just did it so young. So young, man. So all this is happening, working with Riff, all that. I end up making the record. I do these songs with Prince Paul and like, man. Was that a great experience? It was just incredible. Like we're hanging out like Green Street. We're hanging out at like all these studios and Bobby Simmons, a drummer for Stets coming in and we're talking about Stets of Sonic when I'm hanging out with Chris Parker from Public Enemy. Uh, Damn. I mean, from BDP. And I was just like, I'm hanging out with Daylaw and getting close with Mace. And I love Mace. That's my dude, man. Shout out to Mace. Such a great dude. Awesome. Dude, like I was just at Coachella and I had the most. The amazing- gorillas, right? Yeah. yeah. And I wanted to go backstage and see them. But because like Bad Bunny or somebody was headlining, they, you know, when the headliner puts it sure, on lockdown. Off, yeah. So I couldn't even with the artist pass, I couldn't go back. And so I was like, oh, well, I'll see him another time. And i coming out here Wu-Tang in a couple months. Oh, we yeah, that's go. right. Let's yeah, go. yeah. Go. I'm definitely going. Dude, for sure, we got to roll together. And so then I'm like, I guess I already sent my condolences about Dave. Mm. And then the next day I'm sitting there watching a dinner party, this incredible like jazz super group. And I'm standing there side stage with my son in one of the tents. 
And all of a sudden I look over and it's Mace and we just run to each other and hug for like five minutes. And then it's like, yo, Poss is here and Poss rolls up. And I just got to spend like a good 10 minutes catching up, talking. They were explaining to my son, like, yo, you don't even understand. Like, bro, like, I'm like, yo, you know that when I met you, I was a year older than him. And like, we had this thing. And then like, it's crazy. I got to take a picture of like my son between the two remaining Daylaw dudes. And like, there's so much history. And like, the thing is, it's like from being a kid who's driving around listening to that record, feeling like you and everyone else who was weirdest fans to being allowed in the room and being a part of it. I made my records. I did my thing. I made my solo album and like shit changed a lot because like in the time I was making my solo record, like four or five songs didn't clear. And I, I had, Mm. I had to, I'd run out of budget. And so I couldn't really have anybody else produce. Quincy did a third of the record. Prince Paul did a third and I had, space that I needed to fill and I had been making beats. I got an SP 1200. I had an S950. I had a drum machine. I'd been getting really good at making beats. So I just was like, I booked studio time. I called Everlast. I'm like, yo, my studio's booked. Cause I worked at the studio in Los Feliz called Echo Sound, which is no longer there. It's across from what like is a Best Buy now on Los Feliz mm-hmm. Boulevard. At the time it's where, when I used to record there with Quincy routinely, Cube was there, Too Short was there, Pac was there, DJ Pooh was there, Battle Cat was there. It was like one of the three LA hip hop studios that people trusted because the engineer knew how to do the low end. And so that's where we worked. And like, just like little crazy anecdotes, like, dude, I remember sitting there and I was in the parking lot, like, like, just like eating Thai food or something. And like, (laughs) and Ice Cube was like, yo, come here. And he like yelled to his boys and he brought them out to his car and he blasted the song. And I watched like as an onlooker, I watched Ice Cube play DOS effects. They want effects for his crew for the first time. Wow. And then he comes out with with his next record, yeah. which was like hella DOS and like the Predator. And they're like, <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden he had that flow and I watched that happen. Or I remember like being with DJ Pooh and he's like, we're sitting outside chopping it up. And he's like, yo, man, I'm about to make a movie. I'm like, that's crazy. Like, what's like? He's like, it's like a black Cheech and Chong, man. It's going to be funny as hell. We just wrote it and we just sold it. And like, uh, and then Friday came out. Damn. And like, or all these moments and times you're there yeah. where I was just like, wait a minute, that's the movie that he was telling me about. And yeah. like, that's not my boy, but like, you know what I mean? I mm-hmm. know him and I'm there. And so all of these things culturally were happening. And then like the big shift for me was how'd that record do your, your solo record. So I make this solo record. Oh, so I go in the store, I hit Everlast and I'm like, echo sounds booked. I need a studio. He's like, yo, there's this other place. And this guy knows how to make beats. Like he's like good engineer. You should go. So I booked a day, maybe two at the studio. I have to like make four or five songs. I have no idea what I'm going to do. I lay down like five beats and I do all these. And I just took every page of rhymes that I had. And I did about four or five songs in like two days. And they ended up being on my record. And that's how I learned how to produce like trial by fire. And I Mm. did some of my favorite songs from my solo record. At this point I'd started playing guitar at this point. Like, even though like, I don't really like rock with what he's doing now that much musically, but like at the time, I was like super like Lenny Kravitz's first record hit me in a crazy that love way. Rule? Craziest record. Oh my god, it's perfect. He played all the instruments on it, everything, dude. So like while I'm doing all this hip hop shit, like I hear Let Love Rule and like honestly, bro, I was like I kind of feel like that's what I need to do next. I need to like pick up guitar and play. And so like mm. I started playing guitar and by the time I was making my hip hop record, I was already doing instrumental things that were like either ripping off Zeppelin or Jane's addiction and trying to <laughs> get out of it. So when it came get out of the hip hop. Yeah. And so I started playing shows to, to, and I was like, this is boring playing with like a DJ or a dat or like vinyl. And so I formed a band and I was like, 
I want to rock with a live band. And at the time, the only people doing that were like, um, LL Cool J had done like a unplugged. Yeah. Like, remember that. Right. And like, I saw rage play one of their like first five LA shows at this club on Highland. Um, and like, I knew I didn't want to be heavy like rage, but I wanted to make music and I, I started figuring out. So I just had like musicians who I met on sessions and we started a band and I was the one inch punch. No, no. I was playing these with the band, just playing my own solo shows. And eventually I was starting weeding out the rap songs and writing new songs until mm. I was literally people were like, how'd you stop rapping? I'm like set list changing until the new songs were gone. Wow. And so that record completely stiffed in the U S and I was like, I guess, is that my field trip to Planet Nine? Completely stiffed in the U.S. And so, like, I was like, damn. So, like, fast forward a couple of years, right? Now it's like, I had a couple of, like, years where honestly, like, I kind of had a real crash where, like, I thought that, like, I was going to be, like, the West Coast kid from the Native Tongues. And, like, you know, I grew up with all these dudes, like, KMD and all these artists. KMD, and and great, I thought man. I thought that I was going to be doing that. And when it wasn't as well received because I went so far left... I was like, damn. And also like, it was a function of like the label told me at the time, they're like, your music's too black for white radio and too white for black radio. And, and like a few years later, Beck came out with loser and nobody tripped. Right. Mm. Oh, but like the one thing I sort of didn't talk about, that's probably one of the most important things is like the beastie boys, because like, to me, they're like a desert Island group for me. And that like Paul's boutique, there's two records that I heard when field trips to planet, like it's actually really, tight end so i'm making this record i do these weird songs with prince paul and as weird as he was i pushed him to be weirder yeah and qd3 would be like yo you're weird i'm gonna make really rugged beats but you could rap about your weird shit mm -hmm. so when i did the songs on my own they were crazy sampling skate videos like i'd sample like pal videos and like all this crazy stuff and That's it was cool. like samples coming in and out and me rhyming about like acid and i'd never even done acid i was Supply like cash mixtape no, that's way later, bro. Damn, so like, so, so this is just all still 92 when I'm Jesus. making the first record. So I make that record. Nobody gets it. It's super weird. Goes over people's heads. But that happened because I heard two records that gave me license. That was the Jungle Brothers unreleased third record, mm -hmm. which never saw the light of day. You can get a bootleg now called, um, called Crazy Wisdom Masters. Okay. But there was a record they did for Warner Brothers that Warner Brothers said no. Okay. And I I got a cassette of it from my my people. Damn. And they were rapping over speed metal. They were they wow. were doing the craziest things you've ever heard. Holy shit. And then BC Boys at Paul's Boutique and check your head, right? And I was like, the door's open. Like I'm going beyond. And I did, and it was really too alternative. And alternative at the time was Jane's Addiction, it was the replacements, it was REM. Yeah. And mind you, I'm going to stores in LA now going oh, I want to like, what can I sample? What can I get? And I'm getting records and I'm like, what's Bauhaus? Psycom. Oh, that's Perry's band before Jane's. Um, learning about more punk stuff, like learning about, yeah. I'm going to like record stores in LA, like, like Vinyl Fetish and I'm getting like weird bootlegs and I'm starting to like get into like what would become grunge and I'm getting into all this music and I'm not listening to hip hop the same way I was and, and Sonic Youth is becoming my new like day law and wow. I'm, I'm really like changing and I'm also now like 20, 21 and now like I'm like smoking a ton of weed. I'm like super like depressed because my record didn't do well and I'm like crashing. I was like literally like I'm going to be killing it and the reality sort of set in and at that time a little bit later I meet this dude um, I had this band called Supernaut, terrible rock band, 
awful, unlistenable, but it was like, Super, no, I got it. Yeah. yeah. It, was, te- it was terrible, but it was just like me and my friends making rock music. Their contributions were great. The problem was I was in charge and like, I just, <laughs> I, I just wasn't ready to lead a band and I was all over the place. I didn't know who I was or what I was. I just knew I didn't want to do hip hop. I yeah. was still signed to a label. So they put it out. Oh, wow. It, it flopped. I'm hanging out at a birthday party with my boy Hayes. Right. Yes. Legend. Legend. Not only one of the most important, like, you know, graffiti writers, uh, creative directors, streetwear pioneers, graphic designers who helped design the look of the culture. We're hanging. He's like, yo, my boy wants to do a song with you. And I'm like, yeah, people say that all the time. He's like, no, no, no. My boy in London. I'm like, oh, I've always wanted to go to London. I'm Mm. like, who is it? He goes, it's Tim Simonon from Bomb the Bass. Now I'm like, wait a minute, bro. I love Bomb the Bass. And that's this whole thing that happened like before they called it trip hop or like uh it was like after stone roses this is like weird like breakbeat music my boy but this dude was doing so i go link him with me pre me having an email calls me sends me a cassette tape of these two beats i write a bunch of rhymes he goes i'm gonna fly you to england come out i want you to rap on this i'm not even rapping at the time and i'm like i don't really rap anymore he's like you're crazy you're a dope rapper i want you to rap on this i'm like okay because I love you and your music, I'll do it. He flies me to London. I go to the studio. First time in London. I sit down in the studio. Cool. He plays me these beats. I rap him the lyrics in the room. And he's just like, holy shit. So I go in the booth. I do them in like two takes. We finish. We're just hanging. We spent the rest of the week hanging out. And by the end of it, he's like, bro, like, I feel like we could do things. Like, maybe like start a group. Or like, I really... I really like feel a connection here. We should make music or do something. I'm like, for sure. I play on my super not record and I'm thinking he's going to be like, fuck yeah, bro. And he's like, Justin, this is really bad. And I'm like, what do you, he's just like, what we just did might be like a type of music that no one's ever done before. And what you're playing me is the most boring. Like it's been done a million times. Mm. And I was so devastated because I respected him. And I went back home and I played with that band and it ran its course and we broke up and I realized it was pretty bad. That song that he and I did, was called bug powder dust and it it came out and it blew up and two things happened there one is i met tim the second is i got a package at my hotel and it said hey justin i work at warner brothers records i know there's not a lot of communication between the united states and um and england as far as the labels but i wanted to make sure you got this press packet and so he sent me this press packet and i still have it and it was clippings from everything from music magazines to newspapers, articles, like pieces being written. Wow. That all were basically like, my field trip to Planet Nine is like if Jimi Hendrix and Bob Dylan made hip hop. And I had a whole cult audience in England that I didn't know about, That's which incredible. is why he brought me there to rap. Yeah. You didn't even know that at all. No idea. Like nowadays you'd be like, oh, you look on your Spotify for artists. You'd be like, it's popping there. I'm going there. Totally. Dude, no, 90, wow. 94. 94, yeah. And they're like, I have the articles where it's like the evening standard where it's like the love child of Bob Dylan and Jimi Hendrix is making hip hop in a way that's so weird and blah, blah, blah. And it's acid rap. And a lot of people claim that the term trip hop was coined from one of those articles. I don't know if that's true, but like that's what a journalist told me back then. So now I have this song with Bomb the Bass, Bug Powder Dust, which is blowing up in Europe. And it's like, yo, if it hits this position, we're going to perform on top of the pops. And I'm like, wait, what? And it like just misses it by one slot. And he's like, so I, I break up the band Supernaut and I'm listening to what Tim said. And also my girlfriend at the time was like, dude, you should be rapping. This band is whack. What are you doing? And I, <laughs> and I was like really defiant. 
And like my problem back then as a person was Rifkin would tell me things I wouldn't listen. My other manager who managed me with him was a guy named Steve Finfer who like completely changed the game and like publishing and did so many important music things. He was like everybody's lawyer back then. Like back then we'd hang out on Melrose and I'd be at Finfer's crib and I'd go next door to my boy Kev's house because Kev lived with, with, with this guy Paul Stewart who had a company called Power Move Productions who discovered like Coolio and put it like oh, wow. Warren G on. He managed him. But like he also lived with a dude, three of them, Skate Master Tate. Wow, legend. And so like I would hang out with them and then like these two dudes come <laughs> over like and play us their record and it's Cypress. So like all of that shit was wow. happening where like I'm smoking a blunt with Louie and Sen and they're playing me Killing Man and I look at them and I'm like, honestly, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, and so all those things were happening. It was back then too, that song. Illest thing ever. Crazy, Illest yeah. thing ever. I mean, Stone is the way of the walk was my jam. But, but like all that was happening. But now all those things I'm moving away and now I'm in London and I come back and I'm like, how like Tim's right. What do I do musically? I've got to stop getting in my own way. Like, mm. like, and I'm just like, now I'm like getting high and I'm drinking a lot and like all the drugs and alcohol is kicking in that wasn't earlier in life. And, and, and things are getting very unmanageable, but somehow I go home, I do a demo with my boy Gianni who is in super And I send this cassette tape to Tim and I go, yo, check this out. He goes, what is it? I go, it's called one inch punch month goes by. He calls me, hey, Justin, I'm like, what's up? He's like, hey, that cassette you gave me, what do you want to do? I'm like, I'm really into indie rock, man, like, and DIY, like, <laughs> I was, like, listening to, like, now, like, Drive Like Jehu, mm-hmm. right, going to Drive Like Jehu so- shows into, like, Guided by Voices, Pavement, Sebado. I'm, like, because I was producing this group that I got signed to my label, Warner Brothers, Reprise, Quest. I got this group signed who are indie rock kids who are college kids and they exposed me to tons of indie rock. Now I'm like in this super different world as like this weird B-boy, like who doesn't really fit with the indie rock world, but knowing more about the music than the dudes around me and like Weezer was popping off, all these things, Nirvana, everything. And so now I'm like, I'm going to get a van and I'm going to press up a seven inch and I'm going to make t-shirts and I'm going to go opposite of my major label upbringing. I'm going to get in a van and do that. And Tim's like, well, I'm sat here at Virgin records. They gave me my own label and I want to sign one inch punch. And he's like, do you want to move to London? (laughs) So in 96, I moved to London and over the course of two and a half, three years, Tim's neighbor was Nellie Hooper who was the name I think yeah so you and Dante were talking about it when he was talking about soul to soul right oh yeah soul to soul yeah, yeah so yeah. like when he, um, so Nelly Hooper I don't even know this dude as an industry guy we're hanging out at the clubs partying and one day I was like yo like what do you do and he's like he started cracking up and I'm like what and he's like I make records and I'm like oh word I didn't know that like I was just Tim's neighbor yeah and I'm like what's your last name he's like Hooper I'm like you're Nelly Hooper I'm like I always thought Nelly Hooper was like like a like a black woman and he just starts cracking up <laughs> and like we start working together and he's doing the soundtrack for Romeo and Juliet soundtrack and I'm he has me rhyme like the Shakespearean stuff for Baz Luhrmann on that and I'm hanging Jesus. out with Tim and Tim goes I want to play this record and it's Portishead and it's before it comes out and Tim and I now Everywhere I go, all over Europe, they're like, Bomb the Bass is a huge hit. And in 94, the year that Oasis put out Definitely Maybe and had the album of the year, the biggest music magazine at the time was called Select. And like, Bomb the Bass, Bug Powder Dust was the number one song of the year. And Definitely Maybe was the number one album of the year. 
So now I'm listening to Oasis and Blur. I'm oh li- I'm living in London. I discover Britpop and Pulp in these groups. I moved to Camden in 96 at the peak of Britpop. And three things were happening concurrently. Through Tim and Nelly, I discover Massive Attack and go back to the old Massive Attack. And now I'm hanging out with him and Tricky and these guys. Tricky, yeah. And all that's happening with Trip Hop. Tim plays me jungle and drum and bass for the first time. We're going to clubs while well, that's a brand new music okay. and Britpop is on the charts and I'm going to see these bands and, and, and living in the center of London during that. And one inch punch was combining all of the indie rock that I loved and all that Britpop and all my new wave melodies as a kid that I came up on with the grimiest hip hop beats I could do that were, were like, like if you mix like mob deep beats, mm. like product, like havoc beats with that. So I'm rhyming and then I'm singing and I'm doing, but it's not like rage or like rap metal. Yeah, yeah. I'm like singing some like weird Bowie ass melody. And then I'm doing a crazy 16 that sounds like a woo guy. And it, Sick. and it, and people there thought it was crazy and it got a lot of good press, but it went way over people's heads. And then I moved back to uh, LA a couple years later, having had the experience of like, Everything that happened with hip hop, like we can't make it a million hours, but I could tell you everything, everything that happened with hip hop happened for me in London with music. So like being now a 24 year old person, yeah, like being out at clubs and hanging out with like Jarvis Cocker from, from, from Pulp, who's like, to me, like the most important poet of that time or the guys from Supergrass or like oh, Supergrass, yeah. Every every group that was out there, I had I lived down the street from Graham from Blur. Like everything wow. you can think of, I was having these peak experiences, and then like the drugs and the alcohol got bad. And when, I when you came back from England, I was going back and forth. And in '98, Tim was like, "I want to make a record, and I want you to produce it with me." will you move here? And I moved there and things got really dark. You were back there then. Yeah. I moved back there. It got really, really, really dark. It was no longer like a party. The addiction took over. The drinking took over. Everybody around me was scared. It was like really bad. And like, wow. If you believe in the disease of addiction, it's a progressive illness and it progressed to where it was no longer manageable. It was scary. And I was actually like, when I moved to London that time, I had no illusions about coming home. Mm. Like for the first time, I was like, I don't think I'm coming back. And it wasn't like I'm moving there. Like I just was like, yeah. there was a darkness and I never really had that darkness. And also like even a lot of my like drinking and using was characterized by fear. Like a lot of people are like guns blazing, like fuck it. Yeah. I was never like a fuck it addict. I was always afraid. But when I moved to London the last time, I wasn't afraid. And that scared me. Yeah, you weren't afraid of dying or nothing. This is it. I'm going to go out there and right. just whatever happens, happens. Like if we're skating, yeah. you're like, I don't know if I want to drop in on that. That's like a 15-foot like healthy fear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Once you're like, fuck it, you can get hurt, right? If you're not, right? So I was like... What kind of partying besides drinking? I like to keep it very nonspecific, but it was bad enough. Okay. Like, no, only honestly just because I don't like to glamorize it. But no, what no, I do no. tell people is like, is that like... I was a drug addict and I was an alcoholic in, yeah. e- in equal measures. And if I could have just smoked weed and kept it to that or like drink like a gentleman or like have a yeah. glass of wine or whatever, I would have. But it took me to places uh, emotionally, physically, 
and spiritually that were so dark that I was like, it's only going to, the elevator's only going down at this point. So where, do, when do you want to get off, right? Yeah. So I'm in London and I was really in love with this girl for a long time who was in this band in Elastica, not Justine, Donna wow. Matthews, the guitar player. I'd seen her at Lollapalooza, like just fanboy. And my friend was always like, oh, you got to meet Donna. She's great because this was her engineer. And like one night I met her out at a bar and I was like, you're amazing. I've been in love with you for years. Everybody's been trying to introduce us. I'm going to produce your music. I'm going to be your boyfriend. <laughs> you're a genius. I'm a genius. Let's get together. And she's like, okay. And what? went back to her crib and I, and a couple of days later, I moved my things out of, I was living with my friend, Brian Malko from placebo. And I moved out of his crib and I moved into Donna's and it was a really, really, really crazy period of my life and her life. That was like, that's insane. Do you think that was going to be the reaction? Like I've always had a question. Boom. Okay. Cool. Sure. Let's hang out. That's I, crazy, I, I, bro. Two sober people would have never happened, but <laughs> yeah. Okay, oh, yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. I like, as like a total eighties kid, as a hopeless romantic, mm -hmm. as a, as somebody who's like, I'm, um, you know, this whole time I've been directing music videos. It's just like a part of the story. I don't talk about a lot, but yeah. from my earliest hip hop stuff to the present, I've directed short films and music videos, that photographic memory for film and the way it links up with music. Mm -hmm. So like the, the scene in Valley girl that when I was 10, when it dropped was like when Randy goes to the party and he waits in the shower for like Julie and like, she comes in the party and he pops out and he's like the air quote punk guy yeah. who like hits on her. Right. Yeah. And so like, I literally stood outside the bathroom cause I was like, where'd Donna go? Where'd Donna go? I'm like, damn, she left. And, so she walks in the club and she runs up to my boy, Tom. She takes off her motorcycle helmet, throws it. She's got on like a huge jacket, throws it at some guy who puts it away for her. She's got a long pink bob, braces, looks like a complete psychopath on drugs, walks over to my friend Tom, who's on my shoulder next to me, holding up the wall at the club, and is like, whispers in his ear and he starts laughing. And I go, I grab him by the shirt. I'm like, what the fuck did she say, Tom? He's like, Justin, you're never going to believe this. I said, what did she say? He said, Tom, find me a young boy I can take home. Before he finished a sentence, I looked for her, couldn't find her, waited outside the restroom for her because I was certain she was there. And when she came out, I grabbed her by the shoulders like, and she was so scared. And I literally was just like, and I was like, you don't even understand. I was here at Lollapalooza when you do the thing and connection and your band and you're amazing and you're the brains of the band. And Tom's been telling me about you and Nelly and, 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 and Noel and everybody and when you, when you blah, 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 and fucking Johnny Depp and blah, blah, blah. Cause like she was a part of this whole crew wow. there. And I was like, everybody's been telling me. Shot your shot. I was like, da, 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 you don't even know, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to produce you. You're a genius. We're going to make music. I'm going to be your boyfriend. And she goes, okay. Oh my God, bro. I grab all my friends. We go back to her crib. They're like, they're like, where are we going? I'm like, Donna's. And everybody knows I have a crush on Donna. And they're like, shut up. We go back to Donna's crib. She brags me up to the bedroom. I go downstairs to check on everybody. After two hours, they're like, we're leaving. What are you guys doing up there? And we weren't getting down. Yeah, yeah. She put a bass in my hands. And she put on music and she goes, do you know how to play? I'm like, yeah, she's like, sing along. And she was like, this is a breeder song. You're going to do the low harmony. I'm going to do the high harmony. She's like, have you ever heard of the fall? I'm like, no. She's like, I'm like, I opened for them, but fuck that guy. Like he was a dick and we almost got in a fight. She's <laughs> like, she's like, no, no, no. Listen to this. And she just starts schooling me on music and jamming with me and jamming. And Dude. I moved in with her. It was crazy love, love story. Crazy love affair. Crazy drug story. Drug story. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> how many years you guys together? How many weeks, bro? Okay, okay. So you guys went heavy, probably went, yeah, dived into it. That was right after Thanksgiving. I moved in. 
did Christmas together. Just one of the most chaotic and insane periods of my life. I learned so much musically from her. And then New Year's Eve, we go out to see the Chemical Brothers Underworld and New Order when it turned 99. And one of the craziest memories I ever have is dancing off our heads and it's New Order comes out and they're playing. And when the countdown happened for 1999, the year we're all waiting for, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Blue Monday starts. Boom, 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 boom. And it's flashing 1998, 1998. And then it's flashing. And then when the countdown happens, it goes boom, 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 boom. boom. It says 1999. Everybody cheers. And Bez comes out and he's going, how does it feel? How does it feel? And they go, how does it feel? Wow. At 1999, head exploding. As high as that was, two months later, in February of 99, I was like, I love you. You're a genius. This is amazing. We're going to die. I'm moving out. I got my own place. I got arrested for possession of weed. And I was like, wow, consequences? Like, this mm. sucks. And something just happened, man. And I was just like, this is not the way it was supposed to be. This is not the plan. Like, this was never like, I had so much control. I was like the dude who would drive everybody, the straight edge guy. Like, mm. this is insane. Like, my life's totally out of control. I'm doctors like, yo, you're going to die. Like when I got a checkup and I was like, called a number, sat down in a room, church basement, went to a meeting, picked up a chip, heard what they said. And on the ride over in the cab, I was like, Oh, everything's going to be okay. It doesn't have to be like this ever again. Like it could be like it was before. And you know, as a result of, you know, the work that I do in that area and feeling like there was a window of opportunity, all these incredible opportunities in my life. And I walk through the door and I walk through the door and you, you follow up that choice with work. Mm -hmm. You're like, I want to get fit. I want to work out. Well, you don't just get a gym membership. You have to wake up, get your ass out of bed and go, yeah. or you want to run. You got to break through the first mile. That's hard 100%. to get to mile seven. Right. Yes. And so as a result of taking that action and the willingness and, and, the willingness to be like, man, I don't have all the answers. I got to look outside myself and find some answers, you know, for the last 24 years. That's, that's been the, the wow. journey is like right, since 99 since February 16th, two days after a very heavy Valentine's day with someone else's girlfriend. Oh, <laughs> she's been sober ever since then though. Was that been sober ever since then? Yeah. Ever since I that's went to just cold Turkey. Was it hard? It wasn't, man, because like I was like, because I knew what it was like to be sober before. And I was like, this isn't my true nature. I'm not supposed to be this guy. This is what life circumstances, fear, resentments, disappointments, mm. not having the tools to deal with things, not dealing with the shit that was painful in my life, not getting the therapy I needed when I wanted, doing everything my own way. All the things that have happened in my life as a result of uh, all the great things in my life that have ever happened has there been a result of of either mentorship yeah opportunity right or the will and willingness and like one of the things that i've always had is one of the gnarliest work ethics that's like bordering on maniacal like honestly when people mm -hmm. talk about like kobe bryant and like the way he worked out and trained and everything i was like yeah that makes sense because that's the way i make music or that's the way that i, I hold myself to those kind of standards even though i'm not the greatest at something i i have the work ethic to put in that and like you know i've heard that like 
what is it like that um that like uh luck is the residue of what is it luck is the residue of hard work or, or something there's a great quote mm. that i'm butchering but basically like when i was younger it was like kev walked me through the door and i was like damn qd3 then qd3 was my mentor and yeah. then and then like then Jerobi was my mentor yep. and then <clears throat> all those guys and then rifkin was a mentor and then later in life like I was making this weird music that was like totally misguided. And Tim Simonon in London from Bomb the Bass was my, because dude, he was producing Seal. He was producing wow. Sinead O'Connor <clears throat> and he made me his guy. And I was working with him. And when I moved back, like I was living there. And when I got clean, he was like, yo, do you want to work with me on this next Seal record? Wow. And I was like, I would love to be a record producer with you, but I feel like I have to go home and start my life over. Like I was 25. I was like, you live so much up at Bro, 25. It's crazy. It's 25 years ago. So I yeah. moved I moved home and I I had no place. Moved back home. Wow. I moved back to LA. I lived on my dad's couch in his office. <clears throat> and a friend of mine was like, "Yo, I'm going to meetings, I'm doing this." Like I'm like, "Cool, I'm sober too." And like I started hanging out with sober and clean people. I started making music again, discovering my love for music sober. And like the great lie, like the great lie like if anything that I could ever share with people and like be of any service to anyone, it's that having like discovered my creativity and unlocked my creativity as a person that was young and making music on the natch and clean and yeah. like as a, as a, what I, you know, like pretty straight edge. Yeah. And then also making music as a, as a functioning and non-functioning alcoholic and drug addict and then making music after <clears throat> it's like the great lie is that like, I grew up believing that whether it would be like Perry Farrell or whether it be Jim Morrison or Jimi Hendrix or Kurt Cobain or um, Miles Davis or, you know, William S. Burroughs or <clears throat> any renegade outlaw, anybody that was outside counterculture, weirdo, hippie freak. I always believed from the earliest days in that neighborhood where the Heshers in my neighborhood were creative and turning me on to music and art and culture whether it be skateboarding, like, you know what I mean? You look yeah. at like the two thousands when I started skating again, getting hardcore into like Baker with like Jim Greco and like Andrew Reynolds and then becoming friends with them and skating with them. Like those guys were incredible skateboarders and they were like loaded, but like the great lie of all art and all creative people is that they're creative because of the drugs and alcohol. Yeah. When the truth is that they're creative despite the drugs and alcohol mm. and your creativity comes through you despite the things you're doing to get in the way and be an impediment to your art. So whether you're an athlete, whether you're a musician, whether you're a painter, whether you're a writer, alcohol and drugs start out as a way to release inhibitions and get loose. Um, but I know people that have written, you know, blockbuster films by doing jumping jacks when they have a writer's block not smoking a bowl yeah yeah yeah. right totally and i have friends that have made incredible works of art without having to drink a bottle of wine or shoot dope or whatever it is that someone's thing is and so when i started making music <clears throat> so then i come back to la and one of the people one of the people yeah sober so one of the people that i met in london that changed my life is a guy is a couple a guy by the name of atticus ross mm -hmm. and a woman by the name of claude sarn and they're a couple and they had a group called 12 rounds and I met them in London and they were actually the people that programmed bug powder dust, that big song, but we okay. never met. Okay. So I met them in London. We start hanging out. I'm like, yeah, like 
I'm like moving out of my place. I don't know what I'm going to do. And they're like, move in with us. So I moved in with them. And as crazy and chaotic as it was with, with Donna, who, by the way, right after I got clean, Donna got clean. Awesome. I was like, you got to get clean, blah, blah, blah. She's like, yeah, whatever. And I'm like, I'm telling <laughs> you. And then like she hit me afterwards. She's like, you're right. You guys still in contact? No, but not in any kind of weird way. Just like life yeah. happens. But like yeah. it was really lovely because when I moved back to L.A., I got a postcard from her that said, you were right. You're an amazing part of my life. And oh, we met man. for a reason. And I'm I'm clean and sober and awesome. hanging out with the same people that you got clean and sober with. And it was really amazing. Awesome. So I move in with Atticus and Claude and they're teaching me about music and programming. And Atticus is like not only a dude who like knows how to work in SB 1200 and lived in New York City during the like the late 80s and hip hop and his friends with the Beastie Boys and signed to Trent Reznor. But I'm Damn. just looking at him going like you're the coolest motherfucker i've met in years you're brilliant culturally artistically musically and he's like dude you should like play bass in our band and i start jamming with them and then i'm like i gotta move back home i moved back home on 25 i turned 26 a month after i move home i got like 60 days sober i'm 26 i start making beats making music skating get, again yeah, yeah. start skating again start living again and like all the music I'm making is dope and ill. And I'm like, God, it's such a lie. I never had to get loaded. Like I never had to do any of that. And I feel like a kid again. And a lot of people who get into drugs and alcohol, their emotions and developmental skills are so stunted mm. when they start and they yeah. pick up. So now I'm like learning how to be a sober person. I'm learning how to have a girlfriend. I'm learning how to get a job and, and like how to be a responsible person. Like they say, like a worker among workers and like of service to other people. And like, I start realizing the patterns of my life of like being self-destructive or like not listening to people. And I realized that like, I have talent and I have ideas and a crazy work ethic. And, but like, I also have to be teachable and not just feel like I can just dribble out the ball myself that I have to like have a coach Yeah, and like all those people I just outlined were those mentors to me. And I, I still find them. Yeah. I'm 50 years old and I still find them. Mm -hmm. And that's actually why I grow. Yeah. And that's why I, I go to the next level is meeting people who teach me about something and, and being teachable. And so I start a band. It's dope. We become like one of the biggest bands in LA. It's called tape. We make three EPs that we never released, but are all on my SoundCloud now. Wow. It's super fun. It's super dope. It's like garage rock. We become like a bidding war band. We go play CBs. <laughs> Only time I've ever played CBs. Wow. We played a Mercury Lounge and CBs for these like nice. showcases. And <laughs> Matt Pinfield brought David Bowie to our CBs show. Come on, dude. Yeah, fucking bro. Bowie. Dude. Your childhood the, fucking. Never <laughs> met him. Now, how heartbreaking is this? He was there. We didn't meet him. Wow. So it was like. This is 2001, right before, okay. right before 9-11. Yep. Some like cafe across the street on the Bowery. I'm having dinner. I come back over and I'm like, yo, why does everybody look at me like they saw a ghost? And they're like, should we tell them? Should we tell them? And I'm like, what happened? Is there something wrong? Or is like our slot getting bumped? Is it like a, one of the labels not coming to A&R's? They're like, Bowie's here. And I'm like, what does that mean? And they're like, David Bowie's here. I'm like, why? The gallery? They're like, to see us. They're like, we weren't sure if we should tell you because we don't want you to clam up and get nervous. Dude. And I was like, no, now I'm going to go harder. Yeah. And so Tape was a band that was like taking elements of like At The Drive-In, The Stooges, My Bloody Valentine, and like an, a rage-like energy. Yeah. It was sloppy garage rock. I would get up on the amp, on the bass cab, dive over the, jump over the, the drummer, kick a cymbal on the way down, hit a cymbal thrashing around screaming rapping singing it was combining Sick. all this shit it was really aggressive and, and really in, an incredible band like we yeah. were 
we were kind of a killing machine and we're playing CBs. And so afterwards, all the labels are standing there like, this is a noisy, weird band. Why are we here? <laughs> and they're all waiting to see what each other thinks. And Matt Pinfield comes out and he's like, dude, what'd you think? And I, I heard the story from Pinfield and other people. I wasn't there, unfortunately. Bowie comes out and he's like, David, what do you think? And he goes, it was brilliant. It was Bad Brains meets Bauhaus and I loved it. And I no was like, way, holy shit. And I was like, that is the craziest what? thing I've ever heard. And I was so stoked. <laughs> we play the Mercury Lounge, blah, blah, blah. We get offered a deal. The deal gets rescinded. We come back to LA. Our fucking bass player gets immig immigration problems. He's stuck in Australia. Like the craziest thing, dude. <laughs> so here's where it gets really, really nutty. I just want to pause and say I would get that tattooed. <laughs> bad brains the Bauhaus, you fuck. And the fact that even Bowie knows who the bad brains are, bro. I mean, which I'm not shocked, but like, there's pictures of Bowie wearing a fishbone hat. One of, another one of the greatest fucking men's, but the fact who I work with now. Oh, you do want to talk about that? But yeah. uh, uh, what's his face? Um, real quick though, bad brains and Bauhaus. That's an insane compliment, dude. It's crazy, From bro. Bowie. It's crazy, and like you know, like here's the thing. Like I know this is your roots and your culture. And like I'm, I'm a student of music and culture. Yeah. So like, <clears throat> I remember hearing like Minor Threat, not in real time. Later, I remember hearing Fugazi. Minor Threat, I like, but it didn't like hit me in that way. Fugazi, I became aware of because. When In on the Kill Taker came out, I bought it at the Virgin Mega Store on Sunset and, and Crescent Heights, and it was brand new. And I got it on vinyl, and I still have that copy. Wow. And I was like, this is unlike anything I've ever heard. True. Now, I didn't know a lot of the other Discord bands or mm -hmm. the other DC bands or the Unwound, all, all the bands that, you yeah, know, yeah. I didn't know about post hardcore. Okay. I knew about punk rock. I knew about LA punk rock because, I mean, any book that's been written, I've read. I like studied the hell out of it because I study L.A. And so anything that had to do with New York City punk rock, meaning like first wave 70s, like all the way up until 80s and Iggy, hardcore. Ramones, all that stuff. Yeah. Right. But the L.A. version, like all the art rock, the yeah. weirdos, the queer, all the weird before punk got aggressive in South Bay. Yeah. Right. In the early <laughs> before the South Bay, really before the jocks came. Mm. Right. Before. Black Happened flag. on both coasts too, for sure. That could type of shit. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. But when, but I wasn't a part of it. But academically, I study it because it's fascinating to me, and it's important to know your history. Totally. To know your present, your future, and also I just love biographies. I love reading about that stuff. So I knew all about DC hardcore by this point, right? Yeah. So I was like, okay, I know about it. It's not really my thing. Just like Black Flag wasn't my thing. But I started listening to Fugazi. And the musicianship and the dub influence and all these things start hitting. And then Red Medicine and then End Hits and then The Argument. And then I go back and I get 13 songs for Peter. And then I'm like, what's Right to Spring? And then I'm like, okay, emo. Like, this is real emo. Oh, gee, this shit, is. Bro. And I'm Embrace. like, and I'm like, dude. Yes. And I'm like, this is so powerful and so primitive and raw. And I'm, so when I'm getting into indie rock and the, 96 97 is when i start really 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 getting into that stuff and studying it right and then i was into a lot of other bands but the reason i bring that up is because like uh talking about like bad brains yeah. that was something that i that i knew peripherally or like hr would come by the, the like next door to my apartment in los feliz and yeah 
having a weird episode. And I'd be like, dude, that's HR from Bad Brains. He's sick. And like, I knew about them in the context of the history of Black Rock because when I was playing in Supernaut, we used to go to these nights that were called BRC and their Black Rock Coalition. And Vernon Reed started this thing with these other people. And it was post Fishbone. It was because like when I'm making all this hip hop, you have to remember it was Jane's Addiction, the Chili Peppers and Fishbone, along with like Mary's Danish and Thelonious Monster and other groups. But the three for me were the Chili Peppers, Jane's Addiction and Fishbone. Fishbone. And I got Fishbone because Fishbone was on Epic. Or at least I got the copy from my dad of the EP. So when that came out before In Your Face, the EP, I was like, guys that look like me, holy shit. Like I'd see them out at bars. I'd see Angelo at a club and he'd be playing sax over my boy DJing. And to me, they were these black mods that like the Untouchables were something that I thought were the coolest people in the world to me. And when I saw the Chili Peppers... And I was in seventh grade and I got a copy. I recorded my friend's copy of Freaky Styley. Um, I was like, this is like Fishbone, but weirder. And I was like, yeah. and it's super funny because as I get older, I realize just how deeply influential the Red Hot Chili Peppers are in my life in so many ways. They made it okay to be from LA. They yeah. made it okay to love the Lakers. They yeah. were freaks and and punks and weirdos. And those guys are so special. So all those records really up through like blood sugar sex magic were so influential to me and 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 i still have so much respect for them as a group and and they kind of blow my mind and their longevity and their most yeah. the most quintessentially los angeles group i think ever maybe yeah and uh and so all this was happening and i had this band and we played cbs and then we broke up because um bands break up and our our bass player was trapped in australia <laughs> so i'm sitting there trying to figure out what to do i'm working as a stylist assistant and I'm like styling models on fashion shoots. I'm working doing art department. I'm like three years sober. Me and a girlfriend go through like a big breakup. I'm like living at the apartment alone in the valley. And like I go to this barbecue and I'm hanging out with my boy who I had known who was an LA DJ. And like one of the through lines of this whole thing was like throughout even being like 10 or 11, I knew this girl who lived in the valley named Bree Delano who is like, the first girl who ever played me like the cure. And obviously I had heard mm. the cure on K rock, but she like played me the cure and she played me like probably stuff. I don't even remember like echo. We used to listen to Smiths and she was like a new wave girl who was also deeply into hip hop. And so we really bonded over music and we dated when we were younger. And then like, she became really close with tribe in the hip hop world. And she mm. was, she was a um, party promoter back then. And she managed this DJ named Adam 12. And so I knew Adam from like clubs cause I was a club rat. And so even when I was doing all the other things, like any of the bands, I was always going to clubs, club, 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 club. If I was single and not with a girl, I'd be at a club hanging out. And just because that's what my friends do. You know, you're locked away, your wife eat up and then you go to a club with your friends. You'd hang out, you see your old friends. But the L.A. clubs were like, you know, less like some were really about the music and amazing DJs. Some were like very celebrity and all that. But Adam DJed from the the grimiest hip hop to like the biggest celebrity stuff. And he had DJ for like Prince and he had DJ for um, Dr. Dre. And he was this white, white dude from the Valley too. And three or four times Brie was like, you should make music with Adam. So I go over, listen to Adam's beats. He'd be making these beats on an MPC 3000. It sounded like some DJ shadow type shit. They were dope. And I'm like, yo, I could probably rhyme over that. And then I play him stuff and you would be like weird. And like, I always got the vibe that he was like too cool. And I was like, all right. And she'd go, how'd it go with Adam? I'm like, he's weird. I don't know. <laughs> like, and he just was shy, but yeah. I didn't get it. And I didn't know how to, 
I'm just so like, yo, let's do this. Well, let's record yeah. right now. Like, I'm just like, let's go, let's go. Yeah. So we end up like, we had had three or four, like maybe, maybe, maybe nevers. And we never hooked up. And then we're at this barbecue with her. My band just broke up. And she looks at us. She goes, what are you doing right now? And I'm like, nothing. We're like closing down your party. She's like, no, like, what are you doing right after? I'm like, I don't know. Mm. She's like, you guys should go make music right now. And I was like, she's been trying to fix us up for years. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm like, I got nothing to do. So he comes over to my crib. We start talking about music. I play him a record. He plays me a record. It's like this weird first date thing. I'm, yeah, like, yeah. I'm like, okay, here's this weird, quiet dude. Hip hop DJ. <clears throat> but I know he's deep because... In 87, I was with my skate crew who were all older dudes and gnarly, like gangy connected. Like they would, one had, a, he had an Impala that he literally saw the roof off of and it had an indie truck on the hood as an ornament and indie stickers all around it. It was like out of the movie Thrashing. Wow. And he used to drive me to the skate park and like we were like a deep crew and they had a party that was like all Valley, New Waivers, gangbangers, hip hop kids. And this dude was DJing. And I remember, because I, I was like, play play this other LL song, play this other LL song. Yeah. But then he was putting on like Depeche Mode. And I was like, that's crazy. Like, I love all this music. And then he put on this song and I ran up and I was like, what the fuck is that? And he's like, cool guy, one headphone on. He's like, easy. And I'm like, what's the song called? He's like, Boys in the Hood. I'm like, that sounds like two groups. Like, which is the group, which is the song? He goes, the groups, easy, the songs. And he's like, give me the cool guy routine. So I write it down on a piece of paper. I go to the record store the next day. It's not out, not out, not out, not mm. out. Keep trying. Finally, my dad gets me an advanced copy because he knows somebody at the label or something. And I hear Boys in the Hood. And when I heard Boys in the Hood, it hit me in a way sonically that I was talking about Tainted Love did, the yeah. snare drum, yeah. or the way Nucleus did, the keyboards, the synths. And I was like, that's it. This is the what I need to hear. So I'm sitting there going, this is the fucking guy that played Depeche Mode and Easy E. So now we're sitting down. It's 2003. Like, I'm sober. I'm solo. No girlfriend. Nothing to do. Weird job guy. Like, <laughs> not making records and swore off bands. I'm like. And I'm, rhyming, too. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. I'm like, I'd made beats over the years, but I'm like, I'm not doing shit. I was like, I'm going to get in the union and, like, do art department. I had a script that I was writing that we were getting financing for because I was just going to, you know, when I was. Before I got a record deal, I was going to go to NYU and go to film school. Okay. And then I got a record deal, and I'm like, well, I'm definitely not going to film school. And so over the years, I just joined a theater group, learned how to write and direct, um, read everything I could, directed my own music videos, learned from directors of photography and people on sets, soaked it all up. So now I have a script that my boy's into. He's attached to produce. We have talent attached. I'm going to direct my first feature, and I'm like, I am not going to get sucked back into music because even though I... I felt like I had this thing with music when I was young. It was always connected to movies and like, because mm. the movies, because the way it hit and, and the way that the link between cinema and, and, and the dialogue, like yeah. even before I ever wrote my first rap, I would sometimes write out movie dialogue longhand okay. because I wanted to see if I couldn't find the script at the store in Hollywood, I would write it out the script longhand to wow. see the rhythm of the way the words worked. Mm. So all throughout my music thing, I had written like five or six screenplays. So now I'm making this movie and Adam's like, we start making beats. We make a beat together. It's a hip hop beat. I'm like, this is dope. Next day he's like, yo, you want to come? come? I go over to his house. We make a beat. 
Bree's like, did you guys work? I'm like, yeah, we made a really cool beat. She's like, I told you. So it was like this weird, like when Harry met Sally, kind yeah. of not right on and off. So now we start making beats and then I'm like, we should form a, a production team and just make a lot of money and just produce rappers. So the Neptunes are the biggest thing in the world at the time. Yeah. It was when hip hop was at that awful phase of just shiny suits, jiggy, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. really bad. Everything was like one hit wonder groups, except yeah. for like a couple of great things like clips and yeah. i wasn't really feeling anything trey was doing good music but underground was good but mainstream hip-hop you remember yeah. it was awful and so we're like well let's just clean up making a ton of money in mainstream hip-hop so we start making beats we do a production team and we can't like we don't have any rappers so one day i'm just like i'm gonna rhyme on it so i rhyme on it and we do this demo and next thing you know like i'm going to the, the roots put out a record and they like they do a roll call on it and that starts off and it's a nod to the warriors and it's like this is a role like the, like the girl who narrates yeah, the warriors radio, the radio job yeah, yeah. this is a roll call shouting out the architects of the culture and they just do an alphabetical roll call and there's a delay and at the end it goes it's alphabetical and it goes and justin warfield and my friend goes no fucking way, my friend dude. this is like i'm not even online this is like 2003 i mean i probably had an aol connection dial up they're like get the new roots record. I'm like, why? Oh, he goes, just get it. So I go, I buy the new roots record. I put it on, I listen and they say my name. And I was like, dude, you ever meet them before that? No. So now I go to the dude. Grammys as a stylist assistant. Cause my friend who I work for is styling, um, no doubt for the Grammys. Wow. So I get a job as a stylist. I'm totally like not in the industry. I'm just a worker bee. Like I'm, and I go to the Grammys and I'm there and I'm kind of like, damn, I kind of miss making music. And I'm mm. sitting there and I'm dressing Tony Canal, who, you know, is amazing. Shout out to Tony, man. Yeah. Shout out to Tony. Now, homie. The best. I'm just literally the guy he doesn't know who's like, oh my God. Yo, I'm dressing him in the room, meaning like he's like, what should I wear? And I'm like, rock with this, with this. He's like, hell yeah. And he's about to do, do uh, if you remember, they were doing a Joe Strummer tribute because he had just passed. Mm. Yep. Who I had met at a club in New York once where we had like a standoff in a, in a staircase of who's going to move. Mm. And I was wasted and he was wasted and he's just like, uh, you're all right. And it was great. And so <laughs> he's doing awesome. a, he's doing like a tribute. And I'm like, and he gets up and he's doing Clash songs. And I'm like, dude, you look killer. We're hanging out. And I see Eminem. I see all these people. And, uh, and then I see Questlove. And I walk up. I go, dude, my name is Justin Warfield. He's like, I know who you are. And I'm like, I don't under Thank you. I don't understand. And he's like, I'm like, why? He's like, we had to, bro. And I was like, wow. And I was just like, that's crazy. And it was one of the first moments where I realized that like my contribution at the time that it came was not only recognized, but valid and a part of what people would then go out call the golden age. Yeah, right? man, it's incredible. So Adam and I, while we're there, he plays the music for a friend from Def Jam and she's like, I want to bring you guys in. And so this group that we did as a joke called the Spits, based on like, a, we were like, we're going to look like the orphans and the warriors, like the total scumbags. And like, <laughs> like not like, because hip hop was so glossy. Yeah. I was like, what if I dress like how I dress in tape, which is a denim jacket, Ramon's uniform, Chuck's yeah. denim, crazy, crazy Afro hair. And I'm like, we'll write the spits on it. Like, you know, like, like in uh, Beat Street, spit. Mm -hmm. And we called ourselves spit because in Beat Street, that's the guy that crosses everybody out. The awful dude who crosses out. Okay. So we're like, we're going to shit on all modern hip hop. 
and but we're gonna do it over modern hip hop beats and we're gonna Trojan horse it so they don't know that we're shitting on them. Oh my god. And so we make this demo and Def Jam's like, this is incredible. I'd almost signed the Def Jam a few years earlier with my group Tape. Yep. A different incarnation of Tape where it was much more hip hop and Lior almost signed us. Jesus. And then they were in a bidding war with him and Jimmy Ivey and this whole thing. But then we wow. we dropped the hip hop and became this garage band, right? And then, <laughs> so I'm sitting here with Def Jam and I, and we get home and I'm like, yo, this music is stupid. And he's like, it's so stupid. So he does a beat for my friend, our friend Kenna. And he plays it for me. And like the quick backstory is the girl who I had just broken up with was like living in New York as an incredibly successful model. And she was like, dude, like I want to make music like Susie and The Cure and New Order and Joy Division. And I'm like, she's like, can you produce it for me? And we were broken up. And I was like, okay. And so I wrote like three or four songs for her. And I'd never tried to write music like that. Mm -hmm. And it came the easiest of anything I've ever done. Almost as easy as like early hip hop. Like for me, like I was like, wow. I later realized it's because it's the music I grew up on. It's the new wave. Yeah. And I just did like four songs for her. And I, and I, I sent them to her and she's like, this is crazy. So she flew back to LA in our old apartment where we used to live. And we recorded this, this four song demo for her of a group that would become called sex and cars. And she did all the vocals and I wrote the melodies with her and we did this incredible thing. She go, we got back together, blah, blah, blah. She goes back to London. I mean, sorry to New York. She plays it for everybody in the fashion world, editors of magazines. She's on like million dollar photo shoots. Everybody's like sex and cars is crazy. It's oh my God, this is amazing. So then like, she doesn't want to do anything with it. It peters out. So Adam does a track for Kenna and he plays it for me and it's fucking new wave. And I'm like, this is crazy, bro. I'm like, <laughs> where'd you, and I had played him sex and cars. So I know that it was in his head. Yeah. But I'm like, bro, this sounds like B movie, like nowhere girl on like Cody and it's slowed down and it's weird and it's dark. And I'm like, don't give it to Kenna. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I want it. He's like, for what? I'm like, I don't know. Just let me do something. Yeah. So I took it home. I played guitar on it and I, and I wrote these lyrics and I was like, how do I sing over this? And I was like, I want to yell, but I don't want to like lose my cool and yell. Like I want it to be intense. And so I was like, Ugh. and so I start doing this voice, singing it. And it's like all my British shit, all the stuff I grew up on, all of a sudden I start singing and I'm singing a new wave song over a beat and I record it and I go to his house and I go, I'm going to play you something. And I played it for him. He goes, this is, this is incredible. And he goes, let's do a group of just this. And so first time kind of really singing too for you. It's like not. Rhyming. No, no, I well no. Cause I had done like super yeah, and yeah, one yeah. inch punch, one inch punch. There's like one song. Like most artists can tell you when they discovered a riff, a style. Like I'm sure you as a singer did some song that unlocked something. Have you ever done a song that like you did something and you realized you were able to from doing that song? 100%. There was a bridge on a One Inch Punch song where I sang a melody in a different way. And I was like, that feels good. But I didn't have a producer to go, keep singing like that. That's a sweet spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I start singing this stuff, I'm like, Oh, like, this is my shit. Like, I have a low voice, right? Mm. And I'm like, (laughs) you know, I can sing. Instead of trying to sing like Perry Farrell or High Bowie, Yeah, I'm like, wait a minute. Or Low Rock (laughs) Him. Right. But when I sing along to Lou Reed and David Bowie and Jim Morrison, it feels good. I never had a vocal coach go, well, you're probably a baritone, Mm. right? So I'm sitting here singing this song, 
And I'm like, oh. And I play it for Adam, and he's like, let's make a group. So we do three or four more songs. I sing in the mall. I'm like, we should call it the Wonderland Murders. I was going to do that group with, with with my old bass player. He's like, that's so aggressive. It's so <laughs> and he's like, that's way too aggressive. He it's goes, pretty hard, though. it's hard. And we had a song. I think we had a song called She Wants, where I said she wants revenge in, mm. in the lyric. Where I said like, um, I gave her my heart, but then she took it away. I told her I loved her, but it was just for one day. She couldn't take it. She had to pretend something, something. Now she wants revenge. Boom. And so wow. he goes, how about something feminine instead of the Wonderland murders? And I'm like, okay, like what? He goes, like girl revenge. And I said, how about she wants revenge? And I wrote it on my desk and I looked at it, that hand style. And I'm like, that's it. And so we had, wow. we had Bree draw it up. The girl put us together <clears throat> and Adam made buttons and, and hoodies before we were a real group. Love that. We're DJing LA clubs together now. And we, we have first generation uh, iPods. <laughs> plug it in. Start playing our songs in our new wave sets. Wow, dude. And people are bugging on the dance floor. And they're like, yo, what is this? Where can we get this? And we're like, okay. So now we're like kind of big DJs in LA, like in the indie rock scene where it was like, us and Steve Aoki and Frankie Chan were doing the two back-to-back nights in 2004 on Cahuenga. So Steve Aoki hears our music and he's like, I want to sign She Wants Revenge. Mm-hmm. And we're like, it's not even a real thing yet. He's like, I don't care. I just signed this band Block Party. I'm going to put you on Dim Mock Records. So our friend, my childhood best friend who I had grown up with and gone to school with, Balthazar Getty, musician, actor, producer. Oh, yeah, I know that. Yeah. So Balthazar's like, he had gotten signed to Geffen Kenna, who was supposed to get our beat, Kenna was like, Kenna was mad when he heard that beat first off. He's like, I love your group. I'm glad you and Adam did this. Fuck you for taking my beat. <laughs> Kenna was signed. I had seen him on MTV and then made friends with him. And he was signed by Fred Durst to Interscope. Oh, shit. And I was like, that's so crazy that the guy from Limp Biscuit, I wasn't a Limp Biscuit fan at all. And I was like, that's crazy that that dude like signed Kenna. Kenna's like so different musically and like black new wave cat. So then mm. Kenna... Fred tells Kenna, if you know anybody dope, I want to bring your friends. I'll sign your dope friends. Because he knows the best A&R is like artist, artist. So Kenna goes, well, I have this guy, Baldus Argetti, who has a group with my friend Scott Thomas, and they're called Ringside, and they're dope. So Fred signs, Fred lets, Fred, Kenna goes, yo, here it is. Fred signs Ringside. Then they say to Baltazar and Scott, if you know anything dope, bring it in. So Balt was like, why don't you let Fred sign you? And I was like, well, I don't know. Steve Aoki wants to do something like a seven inch or something. And cool. like, I don't know if I really like want to be like aligned with Limp Bizkit. And like, I don't know if I want to be with a major label. And honestly, like I'm going to make a movie, bro. And like, you're going to be in it. Like, I don't even know what Balt was supposed to was like signed on to do it. And I was yeah, like, yeah. I don't even know if I want to do this for real. And Adam does. And he's like, bro, these songs are crazy. And mind you, we'd only been a group for like six months, a group, no live shows, just DJing. We started a club of our own called the panic room. And we would, the panic club and we would just play all these different records in lesson zero julian robert downey jr's character <laughs> does a club called the infamous panic club but it never goes and he dies before but he starts his club and he has flyers and cards so we were like we're gonna actually do the club he couldn't do so oh my we, God. we started this club and it was like everything from like soul funk r&b hip-hop goth new wave pure dance party in a mexican restaurant on melrose we'd push all the tables we would dance all night 
It was unlike any other club I went to in LA since the early 80s. It was amazing. So we had this hub for testing out our material and we knew that people were rocking with it. So then Balt says, let me play these songs for Fred. I go, let me think about it. <laughs> so I, I hit Adam and I go, yo man, let me, um, let me pull your ear for something. We go sit down at Bob's Big Boy. We have a coffee and I'm like, yo dude, like Balt wants to play music for Fred Durst. He's like, what does that mean? I go like, every time in my life I've ever given somebody music, I've had a feeling I've, I've had three record deal. I've, all these things happen, but yeah. I've also, I go, I have a feeling. And he's like, what is your feeling? I go, if Fred hears that he's going to want to sign us. And he's like, what are the pros and cons? And I'm like, Jimmy Iovine runs the industry and Fred's got the keys to the kingdom. Right. He's like, what are the cons? I'm like, some, some people are going to hate on Fred Durst and they're going to give us a ton of money. We're going to buy a bunch of recording gear because I'm not going to waste it on a studio. Mm. We're going to invest in ourselves as a band and a brand and do it more indie and DIY. And after two years, they're going to drop us and we'll be back to square one, but we'll have built whatever we built with their money. Good plan. And he's like, that doesn't sound like a con to me. And so he's like, okay. So I pick up my little flip phone. I call Balt. I go, you can play Fred the music. The next day was Adam's birthday. We go to Katsi off for dinner. We're at dinner. Next day, swear to God, we're at dinner, we're waiting for the check, dessert comes, my phone rings, Balt says, are you sitting down? I said, hold that thought. I slide the phone over to Adam, the cake comes, and I said, happy birthday, and he was looking at me, and I could see his eyes like bug out, like start to well up, and he's tripping, he puts down the phone, they sing happy birthday, blow out the candles, everybody at the table's like, who was that? He goes... First it was Balthazar, and then he put Fred Durst on the phone. And I said, tell everybody what he said. Literally, I was just, he said, are you sitting down? I handed the phone to Adam. That's yeah, how yeah. certain I was. He goes, hold on, someone wants to talk to you. And he goes, hey, is this Adam? This is Fred Durst. We're listening to your music now, and I want to sign you. Can you come over? Dropped off my girl after dinner. Went to Adam's, picked him up drove or he picked he drove he drove me over to the studio in burbank glenwood we buzzed the buzzer we walk in and they were blasting our music over the big mains and we had never heard it even except in a club we never yeah. heard it over a good system and they were blasting it i literally heard fred durst scream across the room because it was so loud hey jordan jordan was the president of geffen at the time this is the next group i'm gonna sign and we, he didn't know we were there and we walked in and we turn around and it was um, it was Will Forte from SNL. It was it was Christian Slater. It was Balthazar Getty, my boy Michael Muller, who's an amazing photographer. Yeah, no, Michael, I met him. Yeah, I met him through somebody recently. He's awesome. Yeah, you got to have Brian Bowensworth or through like yeah, yeah, yeah. Huberman. These oh, all these people know each other. Okay, he's okay. a cold plunge dude. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. And he's a surfer. Yeah, I met him through Huberman. Yes, he's he, mad cool. So he would go on to take all the album covers, the first two record okay. covers, and he was my boy, and he was Balt's boy. It was his bachelor party. And they stopped by the studio where they were mixing the ringside record. I was supposed to DJ his wedding the next day, which is New Year's Eve. So I walk in and it's all those actors <laughs> so for his surreal, bachelor man. party and they're blasting our music. And Adam looks like he just saw uh, like, you know, the ghost of, of, of someone long past. And he sits down and I sit down and they're all coming over high fiving and, uh, I was not shocked or surprised. It was like all these other weird times in my life. Adam's bugging. He's never had a record deal. He's never been in a band. You've been He's through never... a lot of things, yeah. And 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 I 
I immediately start talking to Fred. I pulled him aside in the hallway and I was like, we met before. I don't even actually know if I told him then because Jimmy Iovine, when he wanted to sign us, put us in a room together and it went really bad. And like, it was not cool. Here's what here, but here's how cool Fred is. I'm going to tell you this real quick. So I say to Fred, I go, listen, bro, I hear you like music. He goes, it's incredible. He's wearing a Smith shirt or something. And I'm like, I'm surprised you know this kind of music or know it. He goes, I love it, man. And I go, okay. You're checking his cred. And I'm like, what do you love about this? And I'm totally grilling him because I got nothing to lose. And I'm like. Are they huge at that moment? They're massive, right? Literally second record, the biggest. Yeah, yeah. The, just insanity. Totally huge. And I'm just like, listen, bro. Like, and he's like, it speaks to me on this level and the lyrics and the stories you tell. And like, he starts saying things like, bro, on this one song, you wait this many beats before the the, the rhyme drops. And I'm thinking like, he's analyzing shit the way I did. Like, yes, you did. Like, and I'm like, yeah. okay. And he's like, you wait this many bars. Like, you don't come in on a 16. You come in on like 18. That's crazy. And then when the guitar comes in this and the flow, it sounds like you're rapping. And he, Smart dude, man. he literally got it on all these levels. And I went, okay, if you give me the album budget, you let me produce the record and engineer it. You give me unparalleled like complete access to do whatever i want we hand in the record no like your executive producing it whatever it says our imprint our name before your like it'll say our label and then flawless and then geffen that's right, interscope. that's right i'm like you let me do what i want you let me run the ship you can have your final listen and ep it and then you like commit to tour support and do all these things and like i just gave and he's like you have my word we shake hands we go off the whole pitch that Balt was giving me for a year was, dude, he got us all this gear. He let us make the record he wants to make. He's the coolest. So I go off. Adam and I make the record. We take over a studio space that used to be like Remy Zeros and these other people's. We take over the space. We build out a studio construction, get all this gear, just load up on Damn. all just everything the dream the dream adam didn't know this stuff so i was like here's the gear list here's this we did all that we built up our dream studio most of the record was done because we did it in our apartments and we go in there and we just record and have fun for a few months we end up making this record fred comes in once and it's the end and he goes all right play it for me and he sits down and closes his eyes and i played the record from start to finish and he goes, that one song, that disco song, there's three verses, cut the third verse. I'm like, dude, it's so dope. He's like, it's way too long. And I goes, I said, what else? And he goes, that song shouldn't be on the record. It doesn't fit. I was like, that's my favorite song. He's like, you got to kill it. Wow. And I, he was right. And I was like, okay, I made the two changes. And that's all he did. Went in. The person who was the co-president of Geffen at the time ended up being my dad's old boss from Epic. So when I sat down with her and our manager, who was a dude who tried to sign me and bomb the bass years ago, this new manager I got who was so cool, he sat down. It's like all those things, serendipity. Yeah. Like yeah. I see on the back of a blonde redhead red red record, oh yeah, Tom Sarek is a manager, blah, blah, blah. Tom Sarek, like, yeah. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, Tom Sarek, blah, blah. He, he tried to sign me to do hip hop. Call him, hey dude, it's Justin Warfield. You're a manager now? I'm like, yo, I just got a deal with Gavin, blah, 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 putting on this record. We go meet him. Adam loves him. We put together a strategy. We sit down with the president at Gaffin. She's like, wait, you're Reese's kid. She's like, bro, whatever you want. I'm like, we want to we want to be on the road. Steve Aoki's like, I want to do your first show. We play our first show at Steve's club. 
Our first show was like a sneaky show under an assumed name to warm up at Dragonfly. Our first real show was at Steve's Club Cinespace. And then Steve, two people were there. The program director for Live 105, Aaron Axelson, one of the most influential alternative rock DJs in the country, and Simon White, who managed Block Party. And they both tripped. And Steve was like, let She Wants Revenge open up for Block Party for their first tour. Dude. And so they, they took us on the road. And we... <laughs> Very quickly, we toured in the core. This is what happened to this band in the course of. We toured with Block Party, and that was the first time I ever toured the U.S. because I'd only toured Europe, and we learned so much from them, and it was incredible. Sure. It was amazing. They were at the peak of their powers. Their single banquet was out. We toured with Block Party. We come home. Record comes out. We're touring. We open for OK Go. We open for the Electric Six. <clears throat> By the time the tours are over, our song is on the radio so much that we have to, that like people are walking out of the, the, the headliner show. And in the course of one year, after Cinespace, Steve Aoki and Frankie Chan's Club, we played Silver Lake Lounge, packed it. Played Spaceland, packed it. KCRW is playing us at this point. We're tripping that we're on the radio. Then Indie 103 starts, rev, changes LA culture. You remember? Does it tear you apart the first song? No. Okay. Before Terry. Walking Phoenix directs the video too? Yeah. So fucking crazy. So yeah. the song's the song's not even out. Okay. Bubbling. We're doing like it's a, it's another song. It's another video. Okay. KCRW is playing us. Then Indie 103 is like, we're gonna play this every day. <laughs> Somebody comes and sees us rehearse who works at Sirius Satellite Radio, which was in our rehearsal building. And he's like, this he's like, my friend's like, who was there when we were mixing? It's like, yo, let me hear the, play him that one song that sounds like The Doors. And I'm like, which one? He's like, I'm like, oh, okay. So we do Terry <clears throat> apart for him and he goes, the song is sick. I'm going to play it on the radio. He starts playing it on Sirius every day when Sirius had just really started. Yeah. So we went from playing Silver Lake Lounge. All these were sellouts. Silver Lake Lounge, Spaceland, The Troubadour, the El Rey, two nights at the Fonda, two nights at the Wiltern. We go on tour opening for Depeche Mode. We headline the outdoor theater of Coachella opposite Daft Punk and okay. Depeche Mode, who are the other headliners. Dude. We open for Depeche Mode and Dream North Dream. Massive Dream for you. Old friends too from London. Like old, old, old friends. All three of them. And then we co headline the Greek, like our peak holy shit with Placebo, who I used to live with in London all in one year and we do the we end up playing amoeba and it's the biggest in store that they ever had until paul mccartney broke the record there was over two thousand people in line and at the store wow you couldn't man. stand even upstairs at the at the video section yeah, yeah, yeah. we signed every autograph we we then we went back on tour and it was crazy and like life you know and that changed my life in crazy ways and, and that's like, just the first record coming out yeah right? and like the joaquin thing is because like joaquin was a close friend of Baltz, and joaquin directed their video so when joaquin directed their video i went to go see joaquin when they did the ringside video for balthazar's group and when i was on set i met this girl and i was like yo who's that blah 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 and she was working as a stylist and asked her out and we ended up getting married been together 
18 years. Oh, amazing, man. Through all of this, everything. Fuck. Like, I met her because Joaquin directed that video. So then when That's it came amazing. time for Tear You Apart, and Tear You Apart blew up because Indie 103 and K-Rock started having a war over us. Now I'm hosting Love Lines. I'm on K-Rock. I'm literally in the biggest band in L.A. And I was like, I don't even think we should start a band. And it's just like sober, married, like incredible man like all these gifts and things happening bro and the craziest thing is like since then there's been a million up and downs like i've quit the band twice adam adam and i have like gone to war we've been best friends everything about being in a band broke up came back twice yeah 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 in the middle of that i'm like i got off tour with peter murphy because we were co-headlining with peter murphy and i was like insane just to say that it's it's so crazy dude (laughs) like literally i used to sample Bauhaus records for fun and now like I'm arguing with Peter Murphy over like how many lights he'll let me use on stage. <laughs> like, wow. And like, it was like the dopest, like, dude, like we're, we're co-headlining you know, like, and we're like, Peter, you can go on last. You're a legend. So, but, but we have bigger crowds and we're co-headlining with Peter Murphy. It's not lost to me. And he's like, I want to do a song with you. And then we do the glass house in Pomona and I do dark entries with them and I get up tour and I'm like, I just did the gothest tour ever. And all I want to do is hip hop. And so like mm. I've been making beats. And so I made this, I was like, I'm gonna see if I could still rhyme and make beats. And so I just started making tracks and rhyming and they got better and better. And During so, She Wants Revenge, all that. All so in the middle sense. of that, I made the Black Hesh Cult mixtape. Jesus, bro. And I was like, I wanna see if I can rhyme. And then I, I told my friend and he goes, well, you know, it's a 20th anniversary of Planet Nine. And I was like, I didn't know that. So I wrote an essay about the old days and the rhyming and all that, and then dropped the mixtape on Dat Piff, like as hood as you can get. <laughs> didn't get a publicist, didn't promote it, just did it. And then I went back out and did She Wants Revenge. And like, wow. you know, a million things have happened since then, but like, it's all so crazy because the through line of that shit is like, not just like the fanboy in me who got to tour with Depeche Mode, have incredible moments with, you know, opening for The Cure, like, at festivals, or... How about a song with Timbaland or something? Dude, in the middle of all that, in the middle of all that, when we were doing our second record, we find out, somebody goes, hey, Timbaland, uh, she wants revenge is Timbaland's favorite alternative group. Come on, dude. We're like, bullshit. Like, swear to God, he's gonna call you. He wants to do something. So for months, maybe a year, we're like, be ready, be ready. One day, Fred's assistant calls and goes, Tim wants you to go to Chalice. I'm like, okay. I go, Adam's like, what do we do? I go, grab your bass. I'll grab a guitar, grab some pedals. We go over to the studio. We roll in, walk into the studio. Timbaland, Nicole Scherzinger from um, oh, yeah. Pussycat Dolls, yep. Polo the Don, before he's a huge producer. Polo the Don. Ton of hangers on in True. a big fancy studio. We walk in like these two fucking scumbag weirdos. <laughs> walk in, I'm like, what's up? And he's like, yo, what's up? Dab me up, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, I just want to say really pleasure to have you guys honored. You're my favorite group. And we're like, this is crazy. And like, I'm, 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 I'm real. I'm just like, I'm, I just say out loud. I'm like, this is crazy. Like I'm not being cool about yeah. it. And he goes, you guys know she wants revenge. You know? And he looks around the room. They're like, no, nah, no. Nah. He goes, check this out. He sits down at the console. He puts on one of our songs and he turns to the whole room, us included, and does the Timbaland and sings the song 
while Come doing on. the Timbaland faces, like what you've seen in the videos. Great faces, yeah. He's doing the faces and the hands, and he's going like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's doing the Timbaland, and I'm sitting there That's like. fucking surreal, dude. I'm like, bro, I've been in a lot of rooms. I've seen a lot of shit. And the thing is, this dude doesn't know that I'm an MC. He doesn't know nah. that, like, none of these guys do. Like, Jerobi's coming to Tribe, uh, is coming to, she wants revenge shows. And, and is he tripping on it, too? Like, yeah, he loves it. He always knew I was, oh, I was on. So, like, he was cool. like, he loves she wants revenge at this point he's living in atlanta every time we play atlanta he'd come beside stage and he was loving it so like, proud and, shit. Yeah. and all the hip-hop dudes in la were like yo adam 12 and justin those are ours those are hip-hop those are b-boys they're claiming like there are dudes yeah, yeah and yeah. we kept it super real where when people would think we look like two skinny black-haired like german goths when we would do interviews we're like we're just two b-boys from the valley and we kept it so 100. It's we're cool. like, we're like, we're fucking b-boys. Like we're, we came up on native tongues and this and that, but Prince, and we repped it to the fullest. We were like Valley hip hop b-boys who met at a party and we kept it real. Cause even so if, cool. and we just, because that's who we were. So when we do the Tim thing, he's like, I want to play you a song. And he puts on this beat and I'm tripping and he goes, what do you think? And I'm like, honestly, he goes, yeah. I said, it sounds like you're trying to rip us off. Oh. And he goes, for sure. He goes, so either, and I go, well, let's do it. He's like, what do you want to do? And I go, he goes, if you sing on it, if you sing the lead, it's going to be on your record. He goes, if I sing the lead, it's going to be on my record. And I go, you sing the lead. I'll do the hook. And we did the song right there, and it took us about four hours. Do you rhyme it all in front of him or no? Just sing. No. Wow. Because I'm, I'm like the dude who like... I love that though. It's kind of... I know, but dude, like... It's, it's secret life. <laughs> like, it's, it's such a secret life, and it's so funny because like... <laughs> I did a I, did, I started a project years ago that I'm always bugging these dudes to to do something with and they're so busy and they're so picky and excuse me brilliant one one year Dan the automator calls me and he goes yo um because we had done something in London before where I was doing a record upstairs. He was downstairs and somebody introduced us. I'm like, oh, I love you. Blue Flowers, Dr. Octagon. And he's Blue like, flowers. yeah, Woo. which I heard in a coffee shop in Amsterdam, stoned and was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. So then a month or two later, a year later, whatever, I'm sitting in a room with Dan the Automator. I'm like, yo, you're ill and you're down with Hyro. And I have a whole rhyme thing. He's like, I know who you are, bro. And he's like, I'm working with this group Corner Shop. You should come listen to the song. I listen to the song, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yo, you should rhyme on this. I'm like, okay, I go upstairs, I write the rhyme, I go down and do it. So for 96 to nine, from 96 to 99, I was the go-to guy if somebody needed a rhyme. So like if you look at like credits and they're like Chemical Brothers, Bomb the Bass, Corner Shop, like Rebirth of Cool, like there's all these things where like- Rebirth of Cool? Like all those like, uh, all those reissue things, I was all over those because I Damn. was the go-to like, yo, drop a rhyme on it, Kruder and Dorfmeister, all those. People heard my rhymes, so I, I had this secret career in Europe where people would just send me tracks and I'd rhyme over it. And I did two songs with the Chemical Brothers. I did so many different songs in the trip hop and electronica did era. Did people think you were from there at some point? Some people didn't yeah. know. But then I'm, so I'm talking to Dan the Automator and I'm like, yo bro, like what, um, like, what do you want to do? He's like, oh, he hits me. He's like, yo, I'm coming to LA Grammy weekend. I'm doing a project with Just Blaze. Nobody knows about this. Uh, Just Blaze. And I'm like, okay, that's fucking insane. He goes, I want to sit down. Do you have a studio? I'm like, yeah. So Dan and Justin come over and they play me this music and it's like nothing I've ever heard. And I sing all over it and we do three or four songs. And then I was like, but listen to my mixtape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Dan's like, Dan's like, Oh, it's too much reverb and echo on your vocals. He's like, it's cool though. And I'm like, yo, just like, you know, I'm an MC. Like, let's, let's do this. Like, I want to rhyme on this. So they let me rhyme on a little bit, but I mostly sang. 
but I was like tr kid trying to audition for just blaze, you know, he's like, yeah, yeah, just do that alternative shit. And so we did all this stuff and it never came out never saw the light of day. Damn. And I bugged them all the time. Like, yo, you guys are tripping. We got to do this. It's a super group. Let's do this. Let's do this. It'll be like gorillas, but iller and nothing ever happened. But the funny thing is there's all these people that come up and they're like, yo, like, like people started coming up to She Wants Revenge shows with my vinyl of my hip hop. That's fucking cool. And I would sign it. And then there's people that are like real, real day ones who are like, yeah, yeah. Like I know all your hip hop stuff. And like, it's cool to me because like, basically like there's always a type and they're like, dude, I'm from Florida and like my small town, we all had planet nine. It changed our lives. And that's amazing. And, and it's like, so a couple years ago, I started collecting vinyl from somebody I know was a producer and, and was slanging vinyl online. And, uh, and I started amassing vinyl to sample. And then I bought a reissue SP 1200. And I decided that um, I really wanted to release something um, like another hip hop album. And so one of the things I'm dealing with is she wants revenge is back together. We're, yep. we're making a new album. We toured last year and like, because we got so many syncs, like people don't know, like, you know, when your music is in a, a TV show or film, obviously. Like, yeah, American Horror Story. Bro, like, we were broken up. by Lady Gaga. We were broken up. It's fucking, I know, it's fucking insane, man. So the real story is the sound guy was like a dude who was a parent that our kids went to school together. Ah. And, and I was like, he's like, hey, you know, I, I work on the show. And I'm like, what happened? And he's like, because all I got was a music supervisor. You know him through the school through your kids? Like, just like. Yeah, yeah, like, wow, our, like, awesome. and, and like, so basically, like, this dad was like, "Yo, like, some a music supervisor hit me and was like, hey, we want the Samus Rotaria part for American Horror Story.' I'm like, done. Don't hear anything. Give them everything. Is it going to make it? Then I hear it's going to be in it. Here's how much money you're getting. I'm like, okay, cool. We're broke. We're like broken up as a band. I'm like, cool. This is fine. This is great exposure. I like the Hell show. Yeah. One day at school, this dude's like, yo, I do sound on Horror Story. I'm like, oh, that's crazy, bro, because I'd known him. Like, we used to record the kids' school, like, musicals together. And he's like, you want to know what happened? I'm like, please. He goes, so Lady Gaga, first day of shooting, hands me her iPad and says, there's a playlist in this. When we're filming and not recording dialogue, I need to get in a character. So just put this over through the sound system. And he does. And the first song is Tear You Apart. Ryan Murphy walks in the room it runs in and goes what the fuck is this and she's like really like this was like the biggest song like dude 10 years ago yeah you've never heard this he's like no it sounds amazing she goes put it in the show so when we tuned in to watch it I was waiting for it the show starts it opens up on her putting on her lipstick over just no sound no credits, cold open. And I'm like, whoa, they're ripping off The Hunger, which we ripped off for a music video. And then they go out and all of a sudden the needle drops and it's the beat. And I'm like, oh, they're going to play the track before dialogue. And then this whole scene happens and I keep waiting for the song to end. And they played the song from the opening beat to the last note. Oh, my God. And no man. one talked over it. And it was an un accompanied by dialogue free music video that played on fx to millions of people and to this day there are fans who come and if i say during a show how many people have seen us before what's so crazy is the band's been around you know almost 20 years right yeah how many people seeing us for the first time M more than half i'm like 
how many people know us from American Horror Story? A quarter. Like, it's crazy, that bro. Is so it's crazy. beautiful, too, though. And they're young kids who are, like, into, like, Wednesday Adams and Jenna Ortega dancing to the cramps. And they do TikToks of our song. And, like, yeah, dude, like, when you and I were just at that goth fest, Cruel World, like, it's so crazy to me because, like, most of the people are our age rocking to, like, Last year it was Blondie. This year it's yeah. like Billy Idol or, you know, Susie, all this. And it's yeah. like, it's Iggy. so Iggy. Yeah. It's so full circle because now like, I, I never take it for granted that I get to do this. Yeah. Like, bro, like. Also I'm, shout out to Gaga real quick for fucking being a fan and saying, put this in there. So I said to Brendan, the Fuck. sound guy. I want to come to set and I want to meet her because mm. Adam already knew her. Then the illest thing is that when, when she was on MySpace when she first put out Poker Face, <clears throat> MySpace, somebody said, go look at Lady Gaga's MySpace. And I'm like, okay. So I go and she has four influences listed. Swear on my fucking life. It says Jenny Lewis, Rilo Kylie, Justin Warfield. She wants revenge. Now, the, Ill, the illest thing is Jenny Lewis and I went to high school together. So before she did Rilo Kylie, at one point I had her audition to play bass in Supernaut. She was a child actor who went on to do Rilo Kylie uh, solo record. She's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant wow. sort of alternative Americana artist. Yeah. I'm like, why does she have Jenny Lewis? Why does she have me? And why does she have our, like, it was almost like a spoof account. Like someone's fucking with us and it was real. Yeah. So I knew she knew me and I was like, I don't understand how this is. Like, honestly, like, did I dream that? And so mm. I say to Brendan, dude, I want to meet her because Adam met her and he was trying to produce her through our friend White Shadow who produced her follow-up record. So Brendan's like, soon, soon, soon. And then he calls me one day. He's like, last day of set, you have to come. I said, okay. So I go over to the Fox Studios in Culver City. I roll up, I park, I go on set. They're filming like the last shot of the fucking season. And I wait for like two hours watching him film the scene. Of course. And then finally at the end, she walk like she walks off. She comes back in like a robe, got all of her costume off. And she just like pulled me aside and was like, yo, it's such an honor to meet you. Such a pleasure. And I was like, dude, like the honor's mine. I'm like, you don't even know. Like you changed everything like it's crazy like <clears throat> i'm like thank you so much like we just bonded we just talked and she was so cool and humble and amazing and so That's like awesome, a while man. later like my 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 drummer hit me and was like you know it's a 10-year anniversary of the first record he's like if ever there was a time to get it back together and play the front album front to back and do you know i was like yeah and he's like horror story and my boy was like dude as soon as, as soon as gaga dropped he's like i guarantee you're getting back together i guarantee it i'm like never gonna happen never gonna happen and then finally, I was just like, fuck it. Adam and I talked. We did a reunion tour. It crushed. We did it up until 2020. Um, our last show was like, honestly, like a couple of weeks before the lockdown in February. Wow. Um, we played like three nights at the Roxy and um, just like a little fun hometown thing. And then like everything that happened with COVID was so crazy for, for all of us. Yes. For me... I had to look at like the personal nature of the way Adam and I were interacting for years as friends and as a band. And even though we were getting along really good at the moment, there was a lot of like in any long-term relationship, there was a lot of stuff that we never dealt with. Yeah. In the past. And it wasn't like that big spinal tap dramatic stuff. It was just like, if you're married to someone and it's like, 
why are you looking at me like that? What do you mean? Well, you're raising yeah. your eyebrow in that way and doing the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like when you add like... Built up tension. And a lot of resentment and a lot of unspoken things and just bearing it and stuffing it to keep going and working. And yeah. I would quit the band before, but some things happened in me that made me realize like, dude, like I don't want to do this anymore. And I want to just like give myself over to maybe doing hip hop, maybe making films because I a mm -hmm. film and development and representation for that. And so long story short, I do a record in quarantine, like a total like a total like a uh, concept album. And it hasn't been released yet. I'm releasing it in a few months. And nice. it, I do this record. I didn't know I needed to make a solo record because I was always like, she wants revenge, scratches the itch of my guitar and alternative music. Yeah. And then I make hip hop. But I was like, well, that's so binary. Like, what if I made a record? So I make a record on my own. I love it. I have all these guest musicians play. I start playing live, uh, rehearsing for a tour with it. And then I was like, during quarantine, <laughs> like somebody's like, yo, did you see what Billy did? And so I look at Billy Eilish's thing on Halloween 2020 and she posts a story on Instagram and it's her just holding the camera up to her face wearing black eyeliner playing Terry Apart. And I was like, oh my God. And I was like, whoa, that's really crazy. And I, I got kind of emo about it. And I was like, I remember seeing her at Camp Flognaw at Tyler's you know, yeah. and then I remember seeing, and I didn't watch her whole set, but I saw some of it and I watched her entire set waited from the beginning. till after she left the stage, I watched all of her performance at the outdoor theater at Coachella. Cause every year my family goes Kills to Coachella yeah. and she destroys it. And I remember looking at everyone next to me and I go, she's going to be the biggest star in the world. And they were like, what do you mean? I said, she's going to be the biggest star on the planet. And I saw this moment where she heard the girl screaming in the front and she realized how big she was getting and it hit her. Mm. So I sit down and I always write like little essays and, and, and things on Instagram, a lot of just yeah. a lot of writing because that's been the consistent for me. So I write this essay and I, I take a screen grab of her playing Terry part and I post it. I don't tag her though. Cause it's not like trying to get attention. Yes. She ain't going to see it. <laughs> like I'm not thirsty. Yeah. Right? Or I post a picture of her. And I wrote an essay saying, I remember the moment that I realized she was going to be the biggest star in the world. And it's also the moment that she realized it. And I saw it in her eyes and the way she touched kids and she touched us and what she's done and blah, blah, blah. And I wrote this whole thing. And then I go, <clears throat> let's get, I say to Adam, even though the band's broken up, I go, hey, dude, because of what happened with Billy, let's get on an Instagram live and talk about the making of Terry apart for our fans. Nice. So Adam was promoting a solo song. I was like, it'll be cool. Like your fans, my fans, let's yeah. do it. So we do this live and people start tapping in going, yo, did you see what Billy did? I said, yeah, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. And my boy goes, no, no, no. Right now. So I go to her, her to her. <laughs> I, so I go to her story and she shared mine. I didn't tag anybody. Oh my God. I didn't even tag dude. She Wants Revenge. She shared my story. The story, when I say the story, the, the essay. Yeah, about yeah, her. And she does all these t crying emojis and she says, OMG, this man has no idea, idea this song changed my life. And she, and she read this and I'm just in real time trying to process this on an IG live with Adam and we're both like, whoa. People are like, oh my God. And over the course of like the next few hours, I got like a thousand new followers of all sure. Billy fans. I'm sure. And so then a couple days later, my homegirl hits me. This amazing woman and is like, 
how crazy is the Billy thing? And I'm like, how do you know? She's like, oh, because I sent your story to Maggie. And I go, who's Maggie? She said, yep. Maggie Baird, her mom. She goes, she's like an old friend of mine. I've known her since Billy, since she's a baby. She's like, I just was so touched by your story. I sent it to Maggie and Maggie showed it to Billy. And Billy was like, oh my God. Fucking awesome. Dude. And she's like, so I start following Maggie. Maggie's, I think at this point, already following me. I love Maggie, dude. Best, dude. We start DMing and I'm like, yo, you got to go to my friend's place, Taco Vega. You're going to blow your mind. I'm yes. trying to tell her about Jared's stuff. Nice. And we're like bonding over my like, you know, toe in the, the pond of veganism, yes. which we're all going to have to be eventually. We know, but yeah. <laughs> I'm not there yet. And so that's so cool. And I'm growing down with her. So then cut to all these people. Now somebody sends me a video two years later. Billy's on tour. COVID's like safe enough to at least tour I now. I remember that tour, yeah. Plays the forum. Somebody sends me a video from Nashville. And I'm like, what is that? They're like, Terry Apart's playing in the pre-show mix on the Billy tour. So over, she, over the speakers, she yeah. puts it in every night. And I'm tripping, bro. Yeah. And so I hit Ma Maggie. I'm like, I really want to meet the family. We got to meet. And Coachella can't. So Maggie gifts us family tickets to go see her at the forum yeah covid bubble i was there too I was at the show yeah yeah, COVID bubble. I remember that. yeah, yeah. so show. i didn't go backstage i Same. watched like right by the runway flora's yep. tripping took bowie and his friend from school i was yep. i was fangirling i'm sitting there like chris she comes out to the crowd and kind of comes around too. yeah yeah it was incredible great. with the crane right incredible incredible dude. yeah so my boy chris holmes who is an incredible producer and just brilliant person who did a remix of Terry Apart is standing behind me and he's like how weird is this that Terry Apart's playing and all these young girls are discovering it so it's all this so happens cool generations, man. it's so ill dude so then Coachella happens and I go Maggie I'll be there guest pass I mean artist pass we we gotta meet fuck COVID yeah watch the show it was super strict in the bubbles during that for sure super strict yeah Coachella's gonna be more chill right so yeah. go to Coachella um, stand in there realize I'm next to in the little friends and family pocket realize I'm next to Maggie show ends. And I'm like, dude, it's me. She, and she's <laughs> like, Oh my God. So the craziest thing was at one point I'm standing there and I'm looking on stage and I'm standing like pretty close to Maggie. Like it's not far from the catwalk at Coachella. And this is like main stage, Billy Eilish superstar. Yeah. Right. So I'm like, this is insane. So I'm looking and she looks over and she like smiles and looks away and laughs. And I was like, Oh, that's weird. It looked like she looked at me and I'm like, I'm not a psychopath. I'm not self-obsessed. Clearly, she didn't doesn't know what I look like. Yeah, doesn't know me. Next day, oh, so then I hit Maggie and I'm like, "Yo, blah blah blah, I want to come say peace." And then we left. And then she got my message late. She's like, "Come back, come say hi." And I'm like, "Oh, too late." I'm like, "Well, I'm gonna watch Phineas tomorrow because he's brilliant." Dope and uh, too, she's yeah. like, "Yo, yo, so let's let's meet up." So I'm watching Phineas, and all of a sudden I see Maggie, and she's like, "Oh, come here." And Billy's just standing there, surrounded by people. No one notices her. She's wearing all black. She walks right over, does a little. And I'm like, oh my God, dude. And I'm like, you have no idea. She's like, dude, you have no idea. Oh, and, that's cool. And man. I'm like, yo, thank you so much for the support. Like, it's crazy that you rock with us. Like, I love your music. You have no idea. She's like, dude, I love your music. You have no idea. And then I'm like, I watched last night. She's like, no, dude, I looked over and saw you and like broke and like laugh. Like I smiled and that had to walk it. away. Wow. And I was like, you weren't bugging. I go, honestly, I don't want to sound like a psychopath. I kind of thought so, but I was like, it couldn't be. She's like, no, I totally saw you near my mom. And I was like, oh my God, he's right there. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, that's so crazy, bro. And so what happened as a result of that, the reason I tell that story, besides I know you're friends with Maggie and she's an amazing human yeah. being. What she does is, is so amazing. Um, 
you know, besides running that whole world, but you know, yeah, super mom, super everything, right? and just doing you know food to you know yeah, food deserts feed, and support and feed yeah, with what it does with you know underserved communities and and food and 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 real healthy. compassionate family man, just really a real back. real family, yes. And same crib they grew up in that she grew up in. I know, bro. Everything. And so then like I meet Phineas and everybody and we all hang and she introduces me and it was so lovely. And then, you know, the band gets back together, not because of Billy this time, but because (laughs) I'm start going to shows and I'm like, I fucking miss she wants revenge, man. And Adam and I talk and we connected on a way we never did and spoke and, and communicated in a way we weren't able to before and we grew and we worked nice. through stuff and we put this new lineup together and we hit the road and we toured Europe and last year dude we toured we we did better than we ever did except for the very beginning and we would be playing and there would be 16 year old kids in the front singing b-sides and i'm like the power of discovery the power of streaming the power of billy the power of gaga and like dude it's it's crazy it's really cool man it's crazy bro and you guys just played that festival too uh the sick world sick new world it was so i saw saw footage of that yeah was that fun it was fun dude it was so crazy i mean (laughs) it's you know i i became friends with jonathan davis from corn years back and he's become a really good friend and so i think that like the guys from Surge and Shavo and those guys from System are just so, so cool and interesting. Yeah. And so the top of the lineup was crazy. And then, you know, it was just crazy that like, who would have ever thought that like bands like KMFDM and Skinny Puppy were like going to go on before us? It's like, dude, like we played Sunset Junction years ago and like the Buzzcocks went on before us. Like, how is it possible that people whose records I've spun or like, it's just, it's, I'm just super humbled by the journey and it's yeah. like it's like i feel like my whole life in music has been about taking my influences yeah finding my voice and speaking to people and telling my story even if it's not literally my story like we've just done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's how I see the world. Here's how I see love. Here's how I see friendship. Here's how I see loss. Here's how I see humor. Whether I'm writing on Instagram, whether I'm writing a screenplay, whether I'm writing music, I'm trying to speak about the human condition through my eyes and my experience. Yeah. I'm working with people that I can't believe I get to work with, that I can't believe know my music. I. It's It's about the circle and cycle of mentorship of the people I've learned from over the years. And now I do A&R and independently work with artists who are developing and help them. I manage an artist named Fleece Kawasaki, who's from Bed-Stuy and lives in LA, who's an incredible musician and songwriter. I just discovered him when he was busking on the street and I was like, how can I help? Wow. And then it turned out that he was a She Wants Revenge fan and like had covered <laughs> my songs before and we became friends and he opened a sold out show at the Fonda for us. That's awesome. And like he just played a show in Brooklyn the other night, Friday. He's killing it and we're making a new record. I mean, the things that are happening in my life musically and creatively are insane. Like the fact that like I could like meet you on a skateboard ramp and, mm. and bond over like, I go, okay, this dude is like, a really good guy, like a family dude, like a, a talented musician, a skateboarder, 
a straight edge vegan like <laughs> activist PMA dude and I feel a connection there and then years later you don't know this dude but when we were when when Eric Bean Rock him played downtown I was there you were sitting side stage on the edge of the with stage Rappaport. with Rappaport <laughs> yes. and I was so jealous that you were sitting oh. on the side of the stage but I was watching you and I was like that dude is a real fucking b-boy and a real fan Thank of you, yeah. i was watching you'd have no idea that's, i was there and wild. i saw you on the edge of the stage and do you, have, awesome. do you have a rock tattoo yeah, on yeah, the back yeah. of your head yeah when i saw that earlier i was like i'm gonna tell you but i want to save it for on the air because i watched you that night and i was like wow you're a real one like you really really understand it and live the culture and i watched you and uh and it was really cool man and so then when you mentioned this uh I was like such a cool opportunity to be able to talk with you because even like Dave Kushner is one of my closest friends. Yeah. He's awesome. And like, he's mentioned you before. And I was like, I have all these people that like are interconnected. Yeah. I was like, what you're doing is so dope in having an opportunity to get better get to know your friends and and get to know new people in new ways that you didn't know and also let other people come along on that journey 100 it, it's really dope dude we and just tell your story and just like have these conversations and we're face to face we're hanging out it's beautiful conversations don't really happen anymore that's why yeah. i like filming anything no lights it's just us talking like yeah just really getting to know you because i've seen you throughout my life and skating with you and your band yeah. and and, and, and all the hip hop stuff that's incredible, which I knew nothing about until I started deep diving you. Yeah. And then when I saw you with things like we have to get into hip hop, I'm like, I know. I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just saw your shit. Like, holy fuck. Yeah. Because yeah, I only like know that. you as the She Wants Revenge guy. I know nothing I know. about that. I know. And, and now, the, now, the, now the listeners are about to get fucking their minds blown with it. It's awesome. Your whole journey, dude. And that's Thanks, up, up to 14, 15 years old. It's like you did so much. Dude, like, and like when I hit you, like, and I was like, yo, come through to my birthday party. I'm turning 50. And and you were like, uh, yeah, like, come do my pod. And like, we were talking about like tattoo removal. We were talking about like all this different <laughs> stuff. And like, I was like, I had already gotten to know your son from, mm. from Taco Vega when I used to go there. Yes. So like next, so the dude who hosted my 50th, Brian Ling, Right. Who I was saying um, in the context of a story earlier, who started the pizzeria with yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. with with biohazard yeah, with, Evan, uh, yeah. with Evan and my boy, Adam Tomei, Brian Ling, that dude, he was running no name where the party was. And it was two doors down. And he has in sheep's clothing hi-fi on Fairfax. He was always there and he's good friends with Jared because Jared started cooking in his kitchen. That's at right. No name. And that was next to Chris Uvain's bar. Rest in peace. Oh, the, really? That bar, the dime. Right. Die, right yes. so what happened was the person that put him in the kitchen in the position to be the head chef was brian and that's when jared went plant-based and that's oh. when he started his plant-based menu was cooking at brian's restaurant and bar no name wow and so then when i started meeting max i was like yo this kid's super cool what's up with this dude they're like yo that's toby morris's kid i was like oh, of course like <laughs> no he's like ripping surfer but you skated with him back then. he was a little skater at the ramp we used to go to rapaport's that's kids to crazy to brooklyn projects ramp too i later became friends with rapaport's kids totally separate from him and that crazy? yeah and that's right i met him before jaywalking originally we got jaywalking tickets then after that we really connected at brooklyn projects all the kids. Jaywalking tickets. he was like yelling at the cops showing his new york i don't live fucking live here like going off dude i was like yo i'm with dick ritchie from true romance right now what the fuck and that's how we met yeah that's amazing fuck man 
Do you have any major major regrets in your life? Um, I, I, I definitely believe in like whatever first comes to your mind is a thing you should usually say. That's how <laughs> I write lyrics. The first thing that comes to my mind when I'm writing lyric, I keep those words. Yeah. Like when I write lyrics, I'm writing in the car always almost. And and whatever the first line that comes to me, I keep that first line because I think that's the key to the door and you have to I honor love that. it. Like if I'm riding in the car and I say something, I don't know what the song's going to be about, but that first line can't change because like it got given to you. You can't yeah. turn your back on that. It's a great point. So the first thing that came to mind is like, I don't want to say regrets because I'm so involved in my son's life, mm. but I definitely sometimes wish that the balance that I have between work and home life Family. and personal things, I sometimes wish that when he was younger, it was more balanced like it is now. The good thing is he just remembers me being around because he was so little. It's great. But I do sometimes wish that I could have been more present yeah. for my family because the balance I have now is so healthy. Yeah. How old is your kid? He's going to be 16 in September. Ooh, teenage years, man. It's just crazy. Tomorrow's his last day of freshman year high school. It's crazy. It's crazy how fast it goes. Also how fast like. Not I always talk about with dads on here, like not to get morbid, but like now I'm 53, you're 50, and it's like they're grown, we're getting older, like we're like halfway to whatever, and it's just like you just want to be there forever with them, and like we don't own our kids, we just raise them, we make them, and then they go out into the world. But it's beautiful and it's stressful and it's emotional and it's it's the most amazing thing I've ever done, you know, in my life has become a dad. At what point did you? Because for some people, it's when their kid's born, when their when their partner gets pregnant. Yep. For some people, it's later. At what point did you have that mental shift? Because I know based on what little I know of you and the way I see your, your kid turned out and the kind of family you have, at what point did you go, it's all about this dude now. I've done what I've done for me, and now everything or most of it is going to be about him and us. I mean... That's a great point. I mean, you all of a sudden you see the world different. Um, I didn't like seeing violent movies anymore. I see commercials with dads and I get emo. Just everything changed how I perceived this the whole world. And then also I was touring with this band Hazen Street I had yep. back then. So we were touring like six to eight weeks at a time. So I was leaving him at the beginning, but I was out there. Then, then it became, I'm not just a big kid following my dreams and playing music to have fun. Now I'm like, now I really got to hustle. And I remember coming back and fucking working. I never been to Coachella, only been there once to build all the stages one year, 2004 or five. And I was out there in the trenches for two weeks in the sun building these stages because I had no income. My bands were on hiatus and I was like bugging about money and taking care of my family. And this is very, I want to say humbling. I've always been a humble person, but just working out there with like dudes with like sketchy tattoos and this whole group of like people who like love to build stages in the heat. And I was just fucking like, this is, I mean, I got to do whatever I can for my kid. Like, fuck, like, being a musician forever, which i lucky I get to do still. But, yeah, I mean, as soon as that happens, you're just like, wow, now my son's going to be growing up in this crazy fucking world. I have to be there for him. I have to protect him. My dad died when I was three. I had no fucking father figures until I found Ian McKay, Minor Threat, Kevin Seconds, Milo Descendants, all these other bands I looked up to became my father figures. But now I had to be a dad. So that whole thing was such a been an emotional roller coaster for me. That's why I'm in therapy now, talking about all that stuff that I blocked out as a kid. But then you become a dad, and then it's like, fuck, this is I don't know what to do. Like this is all brand new. You see your girlfriend you've been with becomes your wife, 
And then in 24 hours, she's a fucking mom and she's breastfeeding for the first time. And then you see your partner turn into all her maternal instincts and she's a mom. And then here's this kid for the rest of your life. Take this child that's yours. It's fucking bananas, bro. It's so, so bananas, crazy. and you get it's scary. Like you can never be financially, mentally, physically, whatever, <laughs> prepared to have a child. If you want to make it, I love just fucking make it and deal with it. For any listener, you don't have to, you can't plan making a baby. You just got to do it if you do it. You know what I mean? And I'm 100%. lucky we made my son out of pure fucking love and the way he turned out in our communication. We talk about everything. There's no secrets. He he would text us from school going, "Hey, um, all my friends are skipping eighth period. Can I skip eighth period?" Like, ain't nobody texting their parents asking. Them, but we have that open communication. Sam. It's Sam, so important. It's crazy. It's so important, dude. Because if you don't have that, <clears throat> then they're going to be getting it from other people. They're going to be doing sneaky shit. But like, there's such trust with my son. It's unreal. And the communication and, and the telling us everything. I had to dead it when he started hanging out with girls. I'm like, all right, too much information. I know you're safe. I know where you're yeah. at. But he would tell us everything. You know what I mean? Like that bond. That's so important. Yeah. And just like I've always hustled. I never just had H2O. I did so many other things. I was always doing merch or doing anything else I was doing. I didn't count on the band. At one point, maybe the 90s was a full-time thing, but then when you become a parent, you have to fucking really be more creative and do other things. You know, I started the pod. I have a nonprofit. I speak at schools. I had a crazy merch line. I worked for some other random jobs here and there, but yeah, man, it's it's definitely scary, and it's even now, at 20, he still lives at home, and it's like that kind of leave the nest syndrome I'm having now. Like, fuck, he's going to leave. Are we still going to have this bond of course we are, but like he's in my house, like all that shit. Yeah, and then you'll have a different relationship with your wife because it'll be like dating all over again. I know, but then <clears throat> what's that going to be like? Does, yeah. she, does she still care about me? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. We just had her 27 years, but like then we're in this house and it's just me and her and like empty nesters. Yeah, it's crazy. I should have had another kid, but I got my shit snipped. My wife and me go get my shit snipped. Um, but just all that stuff. Yeah, like, yeah just like now it's not about just you and your your wife and your lady. Now you got a fucking child that you right. made together and like, yep. yeah. but then it's, but then, but then when the kid leaves home, it is back to just you two. I know. And then he's you, always going to need us. They're no, no, but us. it's different though, because when I your know. kid does leave the house, then you, then it's like, okay, then now it's like, oh, it's you. And it's, but it's just us two. It's like date night all the time. All the time. Yeah, man. It's, it's crazy. I know. And it goes by so fast too. the different chapters and different everything about your child growing. I've always wanted to be a dad. I've always wanted a son. He was very planned. It was but then it was like there's never a good time. And it was like, never. OK, well, we have a little money. The band's popping off. I could afford to do a bomb wedding for us and we can afford health care. We can get pregnancy insurance, all this. Let's do it. And we did it. And then. The next year, it was like the global financial collapse of like 20, 2007. That's right. And the election that brought in Obama, McCain. And I was like, is the economy going to go to a recession, depression? What's going to happen? The major label structure changed. We went from being a band that was on the had a billboard on the side of Tower Records and being sold in like Target and, and Best Buy and Walmart to Napster and streaming. Yes. And the bottom fell out under us and there was a lot in early years. And I tell Bowie, which that's our son's name, of course. Wow. <clears throat> awesome. I tell Bowie, I'm like, dude, there was some years where it was pretty rough. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, yeah, man, like this one Christmas, bro. Like when you were like, like, you know, three and we we're going to go into Cabo and like, we were super broke, but we had enough money for Christmas. And like, I was supposed to get this record deal and like I literally got a call Christmas morning from the guy who was supposed to get us or give us a record deal going, wow. oh, like it's not happening on Christmas morning before Dang. you open your presents. And like I was broke and like your, your grandma like 
like was already taking us to Cabo for a vacation and we went, but like, I barely had any money in my account and he's just like, you got super emo. And I'm like, but dude, like we made it through that. And then we crushed it. And like, it was like, it wasn't all just fucking like platinum records and like being on the radio and like that rock star. And I, and I was like, the other day we were in a, this restaurant that we love. And I saw this dude who's like, like my brother. And I'm like, yeah, we used to live together. And he's like, what was that like? And I'm like, Oh man, like it was before I met your mom and like we put together money and it'd be like, I went to my dad's and I got some groceries and he gave me 20 bucks and he's like, yo, I got five. And I'm like, okay, well we could afford cigarettes, laundry, a pint of ice cream and Taco Bell. Like, and we pool our money and and I'm like, it's good to know that. You know what I mean? Like, that's obviously not the most healthy way to live, but the point is, is like that you was get a, through it though with your you partner. You get through yeah, it, and, and that was me solo. And then when I look at the journey we made, but like what everything you talk about in your journey with your family totally resonates. Because for me, I guess that like I always felt like the focus was him. The focus was him, but I was still sort of on the hamster wheel of the band and everything. But when the band broke up, when I quit the band for the first time in 2012. That was when it was like, whatever I have to do yes. to support my family, I've achieved. I mean, like, I was like, come on, man. Like, what, 2012, I'm already at that point. I'm like, dude, like 39, whatever. I was like, come on, man. I've achieved so much. Like, I achieved so much by 16. I'm like, yeah, I got nothing to prove. All I need to do is put a roof over this kid's head, yeah. is be there for him physically and, and mentally be present and provide for him and then the real next level was when he discovered what his passions were right Mm. seeing live music and going to the cinema and being a film student it's awesome then i was like oh the lifetime of of access and opportunity and and privilege that i have accrued is really all here for him so yeah. Oh, you want to go see the Tyler Creator show? Like, well, that th- that's our people. Let's go yeah, watch it I love and watch from the good spot. Let's yeah, go. My son, yeah. yeah, yeah. They're spoiled. <laughs> yeah, let's go to see um, Travis Scott. All the yeah. different hip hop shows. That turn or into. oh, you you're a film student now. Cool. Let's go to the American Cinematheque. Let's go see the Q and A with Paul Thomas Anderson, with yeah. Damien Chazelle, with Paul Schrader. Let's go to the Q and A. Let's do the thing. Let's talk about movies. Everything that I get to do now is like, how do I just stoke this dude out? 100%. And provide peak experiences for him. And but also keep in reality like this is not every kid gets these kind of things. Bro, you're like, so fucking lucky. My son can text Rappaport and get, he wants to be an actor. My son, he wants to try. Like he can yeah. just text Rappaport or Brolin and ask them tips. And Brolin just sent him like a list of one of the best acting teachers you know what i'm saying he has these things that like to him it's amazing and to bro. him these are just my homies too and they are family he doesn't see them like they're these big people they're just people he knew since he was a kid and that's pretty awesome it's it's so amazing and i don't take it for granted I'm, no. i always say to him like i'm like dude like every festival we go where we have an artist pastor Lace. side stage do you know i'm like do you realize i used to go to Lollapalooza on a ga ticket by myself with like i got 60 bucks from my food for gas yeah. to get home and I'm going to watch it from the bleachers. And I remember being yeah. a kid because even though like if I was an outsider and I listened to this pod, I'd be like, yo, that dude had a lot of crazy experiences. Yeah. Real inside industry, all that. But like people from the outside think like that my whole life has been spent behind like a rope or something when it's like in a part of it was, but like when I wanted to go see like, you know, 
Nirvana or Sonic Youth, or like Sonic Youth or I mean, I've seen so many shows. I mean, yeah. we could talk for days about the shows that I got to see. So, you know, Sonic Youth with Pavement and Mud Honey, and Kurt Cobain comes up and does Lead, Lead Belly Song, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? Damn. At Castaic Lake, out in front of the water outdoors, and I'm watching a show. I wasn't anywhere near backstage or an artist yeah, guest speaker. Yeah. I was a dude who paid his ticket and, and double park, you know, parked yeah. and stacked parking and got out late. Like most of my peak experiences as a fan and person who absorbed enough to put it back out into the world creatively were spent in GA being, having my mind blown. And yes, at times there were different experiences. And at a certain point I would go to Coachella and I'm like, Oh, we played opposite Kanye West this year where we get artist passes. We get to do this. Yeah. But you work for all that stuff. You worked hard. You had to work I worked you had, hard. Your whole life you had to work out there. And I say please and fucking thank you every time I yeah. get to go, man, because it is such an amazing experience. And like, dude, like the fact that we get to do this, the fact that we get to do any of this is so mind blowing. Basically be our own bosses, make up our own rules or anything. We, you know, we're very lucky, man. And I have mean, wives who back us too. Like 18 dude. years, 27 years, let us around, run around and be big kids, play music, travel the world, where they're holding it down when they're, you know? And it's not always easy and it's that's not, such dude. a dude. Like it, Relationships are hard, man. They're not the easy, man. Yeah. And like it goes through peaks and valleys, but like, yep. dude, like I just feel like I'm entering a crazy chapter now and I'm really hyped to see where I mean look dude like a year and a half ago it never occurred to me to make a she wants revenge record yeah I'm sitting there now working on it with Adam going this is some of the best shit I've ever done that he's ever done it's incredible like if I was a awesome. she wants revenge fan I'd bug out and it's because I had enough dif distance and time and space away from it yeah. to see what it needs to be and go how do we get back to the purity of where we were in the beginning without trying to replicate it and just come from the most honest, open place and, and have fun and have no fun. expectations. Yeah. Just playing. You already have the fan base. You already made those records. You had the hits, all that stuff. It's like, yeah. Now I just got to get fuck really deep in the cold plunge. Yeah. I'm going to get you in there for next time you come here. Yeah. Brolin, right? Yeah. Well, Huberman got me that. And then I got, I just got, I just got Brolin one. Yeah. yeah. I gifted him that. Yeah. Yeah. He loves it. I got Travis one too. And now Travis is like a, a portable one he's having on on this blink tour right now right from stage into the ice bath i gotta do it i have a couple friends that do it that are really serious about it i love muller is one of those guys because yeah, yeah, he's yeah. friends with laird and does all yeah. that like i'm going to train with ladder on saturday me and my son got invited i'm super nervous i'm doing so the training dope. in his pool with him saturday kind of shook to be honest but my son's gonna hold me down that stuff is real bro like my you know, we we're talking about like Hakim and stuff like yeah, my, my next phase is just I'm getting back into running because I used to run on tour. I just started running recently. We got to run together, man. We live far from me. Damn it. Yeah. It doesn't matter how many like, miles apart we live. We can do the half run. Dude, I, I used to run on tour. I used to run before shows. That's sick. I know a lot of friends are running all around Europe on tour. It's, I want to start doing that. It sounds so One cool. of the best runs I ever had in my life was in uh, Barcelona. Uh, incredible run. Uh, running on tour is so great because I would I always I would always go and just not know where I was running and I would usually do like between three and seven miles just get lost in some just small little village or town or, or one of the best runs I ever had was around uh, Central Park oh yeah dude I, I want to do that I want to do that it's incredible I want to do that when I go out there in this, uh, in it was September. it was a special run like Damn. I got on the subway afterwards because I was just exhausted after like eight miles and sweating and I got on the subway and I was just like 
Are you running now, like at these days? As of the no, morning? but I'm about to get. Let's I like go. mentally I just started, committed. I'm 53. I just started, man. I it's, love it's it. It's the best, dude. I want to do a marathon. That's my goal. In my 50s to do a marathon. <laughs> Me too. I really want to do that. Me um, too. I wanted to do it before 50. And I have friends that did it. I have friends that are now doing tries. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's hardcore. What's up, Chappelle? Sorry, we're almost done. I, I oh, you're Chappelle. That's my yeah, boy, yeah. Chappelle. Oh, okay. What's up? I'm Justin. <laughs> Yo, this dude, man, he's killing it. I want to keep talking all night with this motherfucker. Oh, bro. Um, we're going for a run actually after this. Me, you're gonna run. <laughs> That's hard. We're gonna run. Me and you. I plan about all day. What? When? Oh, how you? You did your mile? Nice. Are you lying? Because I was gonna take you on a three mile and not tell you how long it's gonna be. You promise? Okay, whatever. <laughs> I know you went here. I know you went here early for all the hip hop stuff we talked about. It's fucking. Ins- okay, okay, okay. It's it's, it's, not, it's nothing like Dante's episode, but it's good. Whatever. Uh, we love you, Dante. Um, so, what would have been your last real job? Like you had to clock into. Shut that door, Shippo. Thank the you. The last real job I had to clock into was. Well, I mean, I consider myself to have a day job right now. Okay. Yeah. Like the first thing I do when I start my day is not about she wants revenge or me or my interests. I check my email on my Slack because I have a company that does independent A&R, consulting, creative direction, and um, That's awesome. management. And so like I make sure that the people I work for, that their needs are being met and that those emails are handled, that the communication's there. Awesome. Whether it's like sorting out remixes or record releases or Spotify, like I've have a, a few clients that are very intense and like really it's a pleasure to work with but it's not the same as punching a clock because i still love it so like yeah. the last punch a clock punch a clock um when she wants revenge was really really starting i was doing art department just like on a set where it was like hey oh, that's right yeah, yeah go go windex those mirrors for the <laughs> shot okay you know yeah and um and then stylist work that's i mean right. it's still like not my first real job ever was like I used to write cue cards on game shows. Oh wow! So like when you would see like the Newlywood game or dating yeah, game yeah, yeah. back in the '90s, me and my boys were the ones who drew those cards that they hold up. Wow! And we were all graffiti writers. That is cool. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. That was wow. fun. And you work with Fishbone now too. You said the way I'm working with Fishbone is because Norwood is like the sort of co-founder and yep. creative director of this thing called Afro Bowie. Okay. So there's a promoter named Kenzia who they were doing an Afro Bowie celebration and it was like an immersive thing downtown with crazy visuals. And so there's a visual component, there's a music component. And so the first one I did, I was a guest vocalist and Seal came out and rocked. I ended up doing Let's Dance with Seal. It was amazing. And uh, and like all the Fishbone or several of the Fishbone guys, Angelo, Chris Dowd and Norwood would do it. Um, We had other guests. We just did an Afro Bowie on David Bowie's birthday, and we did it at the Terragram Ballroom. Nice. It was a little bigger. It was sold out, lined down the block, people trying to get in. And we had, I brought in Saul Williams, who's a good friend. We brought in Georgia Ann Muldrow. We brought in uh, Kamasi Washington to play sax. And so that time I got more involved and I became like a co-music director because Vernon Reed came in too, wow. which is awesome. a real throwback. Oh yeah. Because I hadn't seen him so, and, and what was so crazy, dude, was I was sitting there with Fishbone and, 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 and Vernon because the Living Color guys are good friends. And I was sitting there with them and I was like, for those that don't know, <laughs> I saw this these two bands in 1988 at the Santa Monica Civic, Jesus. and it was Living Color, Fishbone, Stetsasonic, and Public Enemy. Woo-hoo-hoo. 
And it was known and it's legendary. Wow. The flyer's still online. You could see Golden Voice promotes. And I had a conversation with the founder, with the head of Golden Voice, Paul Tillett, recently yeah. reminiscing about this show. I think I was talking to Bill Fold, who you're probably homeless with. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. The best dude. Best. And so I was talking to Bill about this, but dude, like Bill and Paul, like that show I was at, I was 15 and it's famous because there was a riot because all the different gangs converged there at once. So it was all the Venice Shoreline Crips. It was um, a couple of other sets of Crips. It was um, the Suicidals who were there. Yeah. And it was probably V13 there. So all the different gangs converging and then outside Crips. So it was like a Crip on Crip fight. Fuck. And it was the gnarliest. I'd seen riots at Public Enemy shows before, like bad. This was like the gnarliest one I ever saw. And what I found out from the Public Enemy and Fishbone dudes was it continued and they stormed the dressing rooms and like broke up the dressing room, stole the rider. Wow. It's like crazy. And uh, holy shit. So I'm sitting in the room with them rehearsing, hanging in. So I co MD it and help organize it now. So it's me and Norwood are like mainly the MDs of it. Angelo does vocals. I did a lot of the vocals and then we had guest vocals. And so it's something that we're, we're going to be doing more now and actually awesome. taking out on the road and stuff. So there's a couple of different Bowie tributes, but this is like, it's primarily black musicians and black voices. And so it's like a mixed band, but we have Kamasi's drummer, Tony Austin. It's incredible, bro. And it's like, for me getting to pay tribute to David Bowie and play his songs. So like the last one I did ashes to ashes. I did, uh, let's dance. Dang. I did, um, bro. I did so many, like That's I did awesome. like five or six songs and it's, <laughs> it's like the most, thrilling fun thing ever and people come up to me now and are like yo i saw you at the afro bowie oh that's cool and it's so cool and also like dude like fishbone we talked about that so like getting to, getting to rock with those guys now like that and guess like who's gonna be at the next one like yeah it's like it's like okay shoe on revenge living color fishbone saul williams kamasi washington on stage playing a david bowie song awesome it's and, crazy bro. and what's your playing i did heroes like i got to do heroes oh, that's awesome it's crazy and then what's your connection with zulu so years ago when I was like really I was like riding motorcycles and really deep into like biker culture I was on That's some crazy. super deep like it was super weird but I was like <laughs> I was building a bike an old vintage British bike with a friend nice. and I bought a Harley and I used to like ride with a bunch of Harley dudes and wow. um, I was looking on a motorcycle blog and someone posted this thing and it was like these two kids who were like 12 and they were like like mixed like black and asian and i was like it was like oh they're jamaican and taiwanese and i was like or something i was like wait what and it was like called the bots and i looked up their music on like myspace or something and i was like this is crazy and it was a drummer and it was a guitar player micaiah and anaya anaya played drums micaiah played guitar and sang wow. and i was like well they're amazing so i emailed them through their social media it was like so many years ago and I and it was their mom. And I'm like, oh yo, I love you guys. What's up? And they're like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, how can I help? I'm in this band. Like, I want to do something with Super you. Dope. And they're like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And like Tim from Rancid likes us. And I'm like, Tim's my boy. Like Same. it's awesome. And Tim's amazing. And I was like, well, let me connect you guys. So I hit Tim and I was like, yo, you gotta sign this. He's like, ah, oh, they need work, they're not ready. And he gets it more than so, I do. Yeah, yeah. I was like, he's probably right. Cause they were really punky. Yeah. And I was like, okay, they're not ready. Cool. And I told the mom, like, she was going to do a tour and she's like, how do we get a bus? How do we do this? I'm like, get a van. And I, I, I just told her how to DIY and I showed her exactly. I told her where to go, what to do and how to tour with them. Yeah. Never heard from them again. I gave her a couple of emails of advice. Never yeah. heard from them. I'd sent their music to my agent, my manager at the time and said, you got to rep them. They're like, yeah, no. Years later, I'm on the phone with my manager at the time. And he's like, yo, um, 
blah, blah, blah on the bots record. I go, wait, what? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, no, we're doing a bots record. I go, what do you mean we? He goes, well, I manage them. I said, Tom, do you want me to forward you the email where I sent it to you like eight years ago? Wow. I go, you do remember I sent it to you? He's like, yeah, I know, but like they were way different now. And he goes, they're signed to the fader. I'm like, fader has a label? He goes, yeah. And Damon Albarn took them all around on tour with this thing he was doing. And wow. he, he might produce their record. He goes, wait a minute. Why don't you produce their record? I go, well, hold on a second. Like, give me some backstory. Yeah. So he introduces me to their A&R guy who's like, dude, I rock with bomb the bass and my field trip and yeah. she wants her eating. I was like, Oh, okay. You know me. That's cool. And he's like, I would love for you to produce them. I'm like, dude, I discovered these guys. Like, yeah. and he's like, so long story short. Um, he's like, I want to do it. Can we do two songs as a test? I had him come in my studio. I did two songs. He's like, do the whole record. And then I started working with Fader doing all their projects, which led to me doing the Saul Williams record, Martyr Loser King. But Anyways, Anaya in that band, it was a very volatile combination of brothers, very oasis-y. In the end, like Anaya quit the band and he became the front man for Zulu. Yeah. So wow. we we reunited because he was working at Tyler the Creator Store Golf on Fairfax. And my son is like a huge fan of Tyler as well as Tyler being a friend of the family. So we spent all our time hanging out in the store when he was a teenager. And Anaya was there and we'd skate and hang out and talk. And so like incredible, man. Now he started Zulu and they're killing it, killing it, dude, killing it. Great kids. Great band. Like they really, I love it, man. It's I awesome. haven't seen him live. I'm sure it's, I've seen clips. I've seen clips. I've seen him live. But yeah. But I had him on the pod. It was, he was, he, he couldn't yeah. come. The other guys came. Some great. of those shows, like, like I'm just like, I'm not a pit guy. And like, You're it's crazy right now. Some of the shit you see on the internet. It's like, wow. Man. Yeah. And just like all, like all kind of hardcore. Like I like people like were telling me about turn sound. I was like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And like, I didn't get whatever I heard. And then I saw a live clip and I was like, Oh my God, they're amazing. Fucking amazing. dude. And I missed him at the thing we just played in Vegas. I really want to see them, but mm -hmm. now they're like, a, they're coming through a blink in a couple weeks. They're going to be like an arena. Band oh, they're soon. killing. They're opening for blink right now in this huge it's tour. Crazy. Right? And they kill the great kids. Like awesome band, man. Dude, speaking of blank, bro, I'm so hooked on Travis's matcha shake at Monty's. Oh yeah, the green one. It's banging. It's oh evil. Oh my god, it's evil, dude. I think about it's that still there? sometimes because I had it when it came out. It was so evil. Oh my uh, god. I think about that and I'm like, <laughs> uh, I'm like, I, I think I'm gonna go to because I grew up with Nick Adler. Okay, I got we you. met at Laker basketball camp when I was ten. Max's boss, yeah. Damn, that's the homie. That's crazy, man. And he's doing a lot for like vegan food oh, yeah, and festivals. Every, oh, and yeah, that's yeah. crazy. All the stuff at uh, Vegan Street Fair, everything, man. Everywhere you see it, man. Yeah, and Nick's got the pizza spot. Is he on Roxy too? Is he part of the Roxy? Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow, his family. Yeah, that's why we play the Roxy all the time. Is because I grew up with him. <clears throat> Roxy's a good spot though. Special. I love that room. We seem like you're in a good place in your life right now. I just turned fifty. Look great. Thanks, bro. I'm I'm about to get the fitness part together. Start running. Start cycling. Start working out. Just fucking get super fit because you know we're not really doing much much road stuff we're about to announce a a tour um but i'm not gonna be touring as much this year i don't yeah. know man it's interesting the fam hell the summer is i only surf in the summer because that's what is hot oh you gonna surf this summer what do you what do you surf at new york i surf more in new york than i do here i surf in montauk okay i'm about to go there in september my son wants to surf either asbury or like uh rockaway beach or maybe Rock long island or something yeah so I've never surfed Asbury. I love Asbury Park a lot. I yeah, think it's just it's a totally cool, changed. Such a cool, right cool scene. But I will say, dude, like I've never surfed Rockaway. I heard it's amazing. Montauk, like 
ditch plains and poles are two beaches there that are incredible. It's, I mean, it's super packed in the summer and it's kind of nuts. Um, so you go to New York to surf? Uh, it honestly, bro, like as a middle-class kid from the Valley, it sounds, I, I, I will say the most pretentious thing I've ever said in my life. We summer in the Hamptons. <laughs> hey, hey, dude. God bless, man. Um, man. We have, we are lucky to have friends there. And That's so dope. we go to Montauk. And so when you're out there, what months you're out there? We don't go there for that long. We go in July. Okay. After 4th of July weekend. I, That's dope, dude. if I could have a second place anywhere, it would be in Montauk. Yeah, you seem like a New Yorker at heart anyway, dude. Dude, I love Montauk. All your relatives, all your family. Yeah, it's awesome. It's like I'm comfortable there. Like as soon as I hit the city, I feel like, okay, let's go. Like I Man. hit the ground running. There's so many people in LA that are low key that New York is overwhelming. Yeah. As soon as I hit the ground in New York, I'm like, let's get a slice. Let's go here. What are we going to do? We're going to yeah. go out. Let's go here. You run into friends in the street. But like, I don't know. Also, the most annoying thing about Angelinos is every Los Angeles person who gets there is like, I know where I'm going. And it's like, look at a map. You're going to get lost. Yeah, every, yeah. every LA person who gets <laughs> to New York is like, I don't need a map. We're going here. And I'm like, I guarantee you once you get below 14th, you're going to get lost Yeah, dude. because everybody from LA wants to be the cool guy that doesn't use a map. Cause they're like, oh, I know New York. And it's like, you come once a fucking year. You know you shit. And like, <laughs> and so like, I'm not that dude. Yeah. Like yeah. I know my routine. I know my way around. I've been yeah. going there for 40 years. Yeah. Almost. But I fucking love it, dude. But no, like, I couldn't, I lived in the city one, one year the girlfriend I was talking about yeah, after yeah. we made a record, she moved to New York. So I went back and forth Yeah, and we had a place in East 28th and second and it was dope. So I know what it's like to live there for a, a spell. Like, yeah, but like it's a different lifestyle, bro. My last question, you optimist or pessimist? Oh, um, <laughs> I'm a neurotic optimist. Okay. Sick. I, I never I, heard that one before. I, I have a supreme confidence that everything works out the way it's going to. I'm just not I love, I, I'm the same. I like that too. Yeah. I'm just like, dude, it's going to work out. Yeah. Like the way I look at it is like all evidence of the past suggests that I will be looked after. I will be taken care of. Everything will be fine. And everything is going to work out the way it's supposed to. At the mm. moment, I might not like the way it looks. Yeah. But that's because I also don't know the road ahead and where I'm supposed to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so like when I think about like higher power shit or like God stuff, I'm like, as somebody that grew up in that culty church with a super aversion to it, yeah. I've come to find a God of my understanding, which is a higher power that just says like, there's been times I've been so close to death. I've had the most scariest, craziest things happen to me, whether you're like getting carjacked and there's a gun to your head or whether you're in a bad situation yeah. or car accidents or self-inflicted, like unforced errors that you're doing because of a lifestyle choice. Yeah. There's just no way that there's no one looking after me. And so like when I think back towards the future, I just have that sort of confidence where it's like whatever I want, as long as it's not hurting anybody else or myself, I know it's achievable and I'll just do it. Love that. Like I never look at something and I'm like, oh, it's not possible. And like, it's funny because I mentioned Tyler, the creator. I knew him when he first put out his first mixtapes and I met him right after they, um, I went to a second show ever and wow. then went to the third show at the Roxy, second show at the Echo, third show at the Roxy, met them through their manager, met them at the Coachella. He knew my music. I was a super fan of his. Awesome became friends years later when Bowie became a fan. I'm like, Oh, that's our boy. And he's like, sure dad. And I was like, yo, like Tyler loves your mom, like trust. And like, we saw them wow. and we like developed this relationship. But what I learned from Tyler is he had something that I had when I was younger, but in a much more powerful, much more refined, much more realized and more talented way, which 
he just had supreme confidence. He knew he could do anything he wanted and like yeah. whether it's start a festival, a clothing line, a luxury brand. Dude. And so like even being in my middle age years, being around Tyler in close proximity and watching him build, I'm always, I keep it 100 with him and I'm like, you're inspiring me so much and showing me that anything's possible. Yeah. So like I've learned, from, I've learned from him yeah. and I'm old enough to be his fucking dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I watch him and I'm like, you've achieved stuff that, None of us have like yeah. anything is possible and it's so inspiring. So I'm way more optimist. Like, yeah, I can see that. I worry. Mm-hmm. We all do. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm neurotic cause I'm fucking neurotic Jew and I'm like <laughs> crazy. Like, yeah. But like, I'm also, it's like my friend always, who's like a amazing, talented rocker, but shockingly neurotic for someone who's not Jewish. He would always say like, if I had half the balls you had, I would be a huge rock star because he's so talented, but he's super insecure. Mm. And he would always be like, yeah, that's the black side of you. It's definitely not the neurotic <laughs> Jew. He's like, you feel like you just could do anything. And yeah. it's like, I have that sort of like, it's a weird combination of like swagger and humility. Mm. You know what I mean? I think yeah. it's healthy. It's like we, no one gets on a fucking microphone like us. If you don't feel yourself enough to be like, I can do this. Totally. Right? We're also insecure, sensitive souls too, musicians and artists too. Right? Totally, just wanting approval, like <laughs> yeah. like being in a crowd, not good enough or harsh on ourselves. Yeah. yeah, and like, oh, I'm so hard on myself. This Same. this stage of my life is learning about how to be a little bit more LeBron and a little bit less Kobe. And what mm. I mean by that is like, how do I put those around me in a position to win? Yeah, and trust that if I pass the ball, we can still win the game. How That's- do I trust that like? by empowering people and making those around me who are, I don't want to say making them great, but you know what I mean? By allowing people to be great and facilitating their greatness, it will make me greater rather than me holding onto the wheel too tight and dribbling out the ball as the clock runs out. Cause I'm like, only I can take the shot. And like, that's where I'm at in my life. It's about delegation. It's about trust. And part of that is like being a parent, like letting your kid go out and you're like, okay, I guess you got this. Yeah. First steps, riding a bike, leaving the house, spending the night over somewhere, going off to school, going anywhere, traveling without you, getting yeah. on a plane. It's the same as like trusting like your partner in a relationship or in a creative thing to be great. And yeah. so I'm really working on like, how do I, because I've never felt like anyone's greatness takes away from mine. And also like in a town like LA where usually the people that give it a bad name are the people from come from outside that are super hungry or thirsty and will like do anything to achieve. hundred percent. Those of us who are really from here, especially who grew up in it, have a little bit of a chillness to it and like, don't like that sort of thirstiness. But I've always believed that success is a door that doesn't slam closed after one person walks through it. Mm. And like, it's been proven to me countless times that if somebody walks through a door and they win, that just means that, you're you're showing me that it's like rather than being like damn it got locked behind him and now i can't get in i'm like i was looking at a wall you saw a handle you opened the door now i know where it is and i'm going to open it and go through it too love that you know what i mean and i really believe that because it's about are you coming from a place of abundance are you coming from a lack Mm -hmm. and i come from a place of like because of where i grew up and what i've seen everybody can win yeah you just have to like find your thing but I like nobody else is winning means that we lose. True. I love that, man. You're so diverse with all, with everything you worked on, all your different music and styles. I love it, man. It's just a, such a eclectic palette of uh, inspirations. Thanks, you, man. You hold within and, and you, and you give out and you know, I love that. 
I want to gotta hear, give it. I want to hear another rap record though, for sure. Well, here's the thing, dude. I can't finish a whole album by 2023, <laughs> but because my first album came out in '93, and my mixtape came out in 2013, I have to release something. Got to do every 20 years. <laughs> every 20 years, <laughs> or every 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 three number year. Yeah, I mean, fuck. I'm gonna find some of those videos of you rhyming though. There's some something you said was online too. That's something you did. I forgot it was on this pod. There's a bunch. There's a funny one of me hosting. Send me a link of me hosting Rap City. I want that Rap City the basement. Wow, I hosted dude. it solo. And the root shout out. There's a lot of for the listeners. This is really we got deep and a lot of great gems here, man. The mixtapes. So if you peep out the Black Cash mixtape, I sampled that roots thing. It starts with okay. It. Nice. It starts with it. <laughs> I was like, I was like, here. This is who to. I am. You yeah. got to know. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge like shout out. That's incredible, man. But it's funny, dude. Like the last thing I'll say is like, I've got nothing to prove. Like at this point, that's one of my favorite albums we did. By the way, same the same with my favorite H.O. records. Nothing really, to prove. yeah. It's such a good. That's great. <laughs> but I honestly feel like the only area, even with film, like I haven't made my first film, but I've yeah. directed videos. But I don't feel like I have anything to prove. I'm just gonna do it soon. But with rapping, I really feel like I have something to prove. Like, I feel like my best rhymes have not been written. My best flows have not been created. And I am very like, like I don't care. Like, whoever rocks with me, she wants revenge, new fans, old fans, yeah. whatever. But with hip hop, I still have a chip on my shoulder where I'm like, <laughs> I want. Like, when Tyler found out that I rhymed, yeah. he was like, his engineer put it on from the studio for him. And then he hit, when I saw him, he's like, bro. He's like, I had no idea. He's like, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. He just knew me as like, she wants revenge, dude. Totally. And then he's like, wait a minute. When I before I was born, you were rapping, like, that's and I'm like, awesome. dude, I put out vinyl before Jay Z, like, dang. But I, I'm never as good as those people. But I feel like, like when I saw Tyler play a little underplay at the El Rey, like last month, I was like, I want to do a hip hop show. Yeah, I want to, yeah. I want to rhyme. I want to go out there and do this. And it's like. I'm so hungry to do it. And that's crazy to be 50 and be like, I'll that, show though. them I can yeah, still yeah. do it. <laughs> You're going to do it though. I'm going to do it, bro. You have like a dream collab I, with somebody hip hop? I think that the next proper album I do will actually, what I did with the Black Hash Cult was to be like, I don't need that. This will be the opposite. It'll yeah. be calling on all features. So like, there's so many people I come up with that people don't even know. Like I used to be friends with like Raskast back in the day. Like all like, like dudes, like there's new rappers, Coast Contra. Uh -huh. There's like I I heard that name. so many, dude, they're Raskast's sons. They used to work around the corner at, uh, at My Two Cents. Like, and I was at like, My Two Cents, what? Yo, they were the, I love they were spot, the, yeah. dude, they worked there. And now they're wow. two of the illest rhymers in the game. Dante's got a new kid. I just saw yeah, Sko yeah, yeah. or some, I saw that. dude, there's so many, but like to me, I'm going to just take it back to the beginning and be like native tongues. Like let's yeah, rock. Yeah, let's do this. Real, and like yeah. call people for, for beats. I'm doing beats on my own, but like I want to do rhymes that are about me and my life and what it's like to be a 50 year old man. Totally. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Man. But when I hear things like young things, I still listen. Like Same. I went to all, I went to the last Brockhampton shows and I went to like, I, I, I need, too, yeah. I need to see like all the young kid energy because people rhyme about personal stuff. Yeah. Especially now. Even the new Kendrick record, super deep. I loved it. So deep. Masterpiece. Man. Like it just, there's just so many great hip hop is in a great place right now. And I don't know if it needs me, but I need to find my place in it again. You know yeah. what I mean? I'm looking forward to it, man. Hearing that dude. Yo, this has been so fun. It's bro. so good. Thank you for being here, man. I really appreciate it. We, yo, I love this like 
getting to know people, just having them in my kitchen that I've known for many years and never like sat and talked to, you know what I mean? It's awesome. No, for sure, man. I, uh, I always feel weird when, um, when it's less conversational and I'm not asking you as many questions yeah. to learn about somebody, but I know the format. I know what it is. Cause I'm not the dude who's like, listen to me and here's what I have to say. <laughs> but I also feel like it's a way for you to get to know me. It's a totally. way for other people to get to know me. Yes. And just like, because I know I'm hitting on touchstones that resonate with you and are meaningful to you. Yes. You know I mean? 100%. There's a hundred other stories about the minutia and the bullshit, but I'm like, here's the things. And it all through the ramble, it all finds a through line of like, yes. what is this about? Totally. About discovery, about where you come from. Yeah. Dude, if you would have told me at 14, when I was sitting there with my boss, Dr. Rhythm and two turntables, that I would be making hip hop a new wave and that the culture of hip hop and the things that I saw and the movies and breakdancing, all that would inform my life or the new wave bands that I would be into would be uh, peers. Yeah. And now there's like emo hip hop and like goth kind of rap. There's all these things that are all like all the genres are meshed together, which I think is fucking beautiful. That's a whole other podcast. You know yeah, what I'm man. saying? Like, it's I do. Amazing. It's amazing, bro. Fuck. Well, I appreciate you, man. All the music you've done, everything you put out into the world, and like, stoked to see what you do next. And I'm uh, looking forward to skating with you and getting you in the ice bath. <laughs> Dude, I can't wait to do that. We have, ice to, bath. have to come back. We we'll do it. Yeah, yeah. Hell yeah. Well, thank you for being here. Thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, you can find you on social media, yeah, right? Yep. Do, you, do you answer your DMs? You check messages all the time. Okay, cool. Yeah, man. All right, hit them up. Bye, everybody. Peace. Hey, we're back. Uh, part two, uh, Chris Lighty story. <laughs> we're back in my kitchen. What's the story? So here's the deal. We were just talking about all the amazing album covers on, oh, yeah. on your wall, and we were reminiscing about some. And then I realized I never followed through on the Chris Lighty story. So Chris Lighty, baby Chris, rest in peace. Rest in peace. One of them, we were talking, then we got off. We were talking about how he was originally, would carry the records and be a security for Red Alert, yeah. right? That's why they're called the Violators, right? All of that. Then we went into Deceps and we went off right. So going back to that, <clears throat> I'm in New York. I had just hung out with Prince Paul. We were making plans to go do tracks at his studio in yeah. Long Island, which was his house, right? Yeah. So I just hung out with Guru and Premier. Smoked a blunt with him, yep. Smoked a blunt with them, which was incredible. Hanging out, 17 years old, epic, hanging with them. We go to a club one night. And right this is before I met Guru and Premier, or my all the same week, big week. So I'm hanging out. <laughs> I go to the club, and I see I'm with Jerobi. We walk in, and I see Baby Chris, and I'm like, oh shit! All his homies call him Baby Chris. He was also huge and big one dude. of one of the most intimidating people I've ever met, and like truly yeah. terrifying. But because he was rugged, like yeah. he was the real deal. Yeah. Like when you're a security in the '80s at hip hop for like the biggest DJ, no one's stepping to you. Also had a scar in his face from being stabbed. Like you're yeah. like you're not fucking with this Legit. guy. Yeah. So like, I see him and he like he's talking to Jerobi, and then he's laughing and then he walks over. He goes, "Yo, what's up, Just?" And I'm like, "Hey, what's up, man? Really good to see you." He goes, "Yo, what's up?" And he pulls me in really close. He's like, "It's good to see you, brother. It's been a long time." I'm like, "Dude, so good to see you, Chris." He goes, "Yo, check this out." I go, "What's up?" He goes. I heard your new single, Season of the Vic. I'm like, yeah, you like that? He goes, dude, that shit's hot. I'm like, thanks, man. He goes, check this out. When your album drops, if it sounds like Tip, I'm going to fuck you up. And he walked away. Wow. <laughs> and I'm 17 years old. Q-Tip. Riding high. 
Everybody in New York's like, I was literally buying weed in Harlem one day and these dudes follow, like whispered behind us and started following us with their shirts off off a stoop. And I'm like, yo, Jerobi, those guys are going to jack us. And I, I turn around and they go, yo. And I turn around and they go, see another Vic. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> you're not going to kill me. This guy basically comes and says it right to your face. Like, this is, this is baby Chris, damn. most feared dude in New York. And he's like, yo, if your album sounds like tip, I'm going to fuck you up. And I go, oh, my God. And I just go full fucking Larry David for about 72 hours where I am so shook. shook. Bro, shook. So he walks away. He goes and talks to Droby. They laugh. I go, Droby. I tell him everything that he said. I'm like shaking. He's like, bro, he's fucking with you. I'm like, he's definitely not fucking with me, bro. And he's like, I'm like, you don't even understand, dude. Like, Droby, you know. And he's like, dude, you don't have to explain. I'm like, but, but, but. And he's just like, dude, it's all good. I'm like, he tries to calm me down. I probably have a drink or whatever, chill. A couple of days later, now I'm sitting with Guru and Premier. We're hanging out and we're smoking a blunt and everything's cool. And I'm like, yo, we're just kicking it, talking. And then at one point I'm hanging out with their ma manager and he's like this like New York dude who went on to be a very, 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 very successful person in uh, electronic music. Like one of the most important people in EDM. Okay. <clears throat> and I'm not going to call him out by name. And so he goes, he says, uh, he goes, yo, what's up, Joss? Hey, what's up? And he's like a white guy in the industry, but like very, you know, and he works with a very big band who I'm with. So he's obviously got some entree and he's like, what's up? And I'm like, nothing, bro. And he's like, what's the matter? I'm like, I'm just a little like shook, bro. Like, I'm just nervous. Like, he's like, well, I'm like, dude, I, uh, and I tell him and he's like, yo, he said that, yo, fuck him, man. Fuck baby Chris, bro. Like, da, da, da. and I was like, yeah, no, not that. But like, seriously, I'm scared. He's like, he ain't going to do shit, man. But I was like, yeah, I don't know, dude. Like he seems pretty serious. fucking serious, dude. He's like, I don't give a fuck about that. So then a couple days go by. I'm super shook. We're out of the club. I'm with Jerobi. I see Chris walk in and I'm just like, fuck. And I go, dude, talk to him. And he's like, dude, I'm telling you. And I go, Fucking please, Roby, go talk to him, dude. Like, uh -huh. you got to sort this out. Like, I can't, like, have my New York pass revoked by the fucking gnarliest dude in New York, yeah. right? This is before he managed Busta and 50. You're just yeah. running the industry. Violator Records, management, you know. Huge. Everything. He was just baby Chris on the rise and terrifying to me. I'm like, Roby, go talk to him. And he walks over to him and he whispers to him and Chris starts busting up laughing and doubles over and he walks over to me and he goes yo bro you thought i was serious and i fucking pushed him as hard as i could <laughs> had my good fellows moment i go do you know how fucking scared i was bro do you know that i was walking i was shook for days and he's like oh and i'm pushing him in the chest and now feeling myself i'm like bro i thought you were gonna bomb on me i thought i was a dead man he's like bro you know your family you know you're cool everything's cool in that time i forgot to tell you i saw tip and I was like, tip, bro. Chris, he said this. He goes, bro. I go, everybody's talking. The source is shitting on me, bro. Bob. Source was shitting on me. He's trying to bite Q-tip and stuff. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, bro, like, you know, I met you like when I was a kid, bro. Like, I sampled you. It's an homage. Like, I love you. You're my favorite rapper. Dude, you know I'm influenced by you. I'm like, baby, Native Tongues, West Coast, bro. You know what it is. He's like, <laughs> he, I'm like, Bobito doesn't fuck with me. This and I'm getting blackballed. He's like, bro. He goes, you, you and I know what's up. Your family, bro. I rock with you. You and I know what's up. You don't sound like me. You sound like you, and you're doing your thing, and you matters. know you have my blessing, and we're good. 
So then I'm back to Chris and I'm like, bro, you fucking scared the shit out of me. You have no fucking idea. I'm like, bro, I was scared. I told everybody, bro. I told fucking homeboy the other day and he was like, man, fuck baby Chris. He goes, wait, hold up. Who said fuck baby Chris? <laughs> so in my race to tell him the story, I was like, I was a primo the other night with, with Keith, bro. We were smoking a blunt and I was like, blah, blah, blah. And I told, dude, I told blah, blah, blah. And I said, dude, he said that he's like, oh, he's not going to do shit. Fuck him. And he goes, wait, hold up. He, he said fuck baby Chris Damn. and I'm like he kinda, somebody else gonna catch it I'm like he kinda did he's like thanks brother and he like gave me a hug and walked away and I was like at least it's not me <laughs> <laughs> that's fucking awesome dude he never stepped to the other guy probably who knows no he's still alive <laughs> damn very successful too but it was funny as fuck. That's a great fucking story. Yeah. Rest in peace, Lighty, man. And it was like Goodfellas. It was like a Goodfellas moment where I was like, wow, I really had no idea he was fucking me. Why yeah. would I? Do I amuse you? All that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I was like, of course I thought you were serious. He's like, bro, we're family. It's all good. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm really inside now. I'm good. <laughs> but it was Amazing. scary. He was like the East Coast Suge Knight in a way, in a sense, kind of. Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't say that. My bad. Well, no, no, no. Hey, no, Joe, no. cut out the podcast. I'm trying to get, trying to get in trouble either. He was a dude who was a brilliant businessman who also... Maybe scary-wise or big-wise. He yeah. was very intimidating. That's a, my, my He was super wise. intimidating, whereas the West Coast counterparts who were known for that stuff were like criminals and scary. Facts. Like, this dude was like a street dude who is a brilliant businessman who created an empire, ended way too soon, very tragic, left behind family, but a great dude, super loyal... But like, I just knew him as like, that's the dude on the back of the of Done by the Forces of Nature holding it down in the picture with like yeah, yeah, yeah. Sammy V, Mike G in Africa. And like, that's the road manager. And he's like one of the most intimidating dudes in New York City. And he basically put a fatwa on me. <laughs> <laughs> and then like he took it off and it was a joke and it was all good. Fuck. Amazing, yeah. man. Yeah. I feel like you have way more stories. We do a part two someday for sure. Someday. Thank you for sharing your story, man. I had to tell you, man. It's a great fucking story. All right. You have no top five before we go? MCs? Yes. Ooh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I have a problem with, with, with something that people do in top fives nowadays. Okay, tell me. I have a problem, and this is no disrespect, but I anybody that puts Andre 3000 in their top five, I think is signaling that they're from either from a different generation or looking at it too academically or body of work musically and don't understand the question. Mm. So a lot of people sometimes put Andre in there because he's an innovator and because he's so creative. Yeah. But it's, that's not what we're talking about. No. Right. So raw is one. Yeah. Always, always the R number one. God. If MC. this is, if this is in, no, I will say he's one and then the rest I will just put there. He's one for me too. He's one God, for me MC. too. I would say the others that have to be in there for me are Jay, Busta. Mm. Busta. Um, Busta will eat anybody. Anybody. I just saw him destroy Wu Tang last year. He'll kill anybody me. in a. I've, dude, I told you, I saw I him. I saw him freestyle. Just literally have a five percent battle with ODB, and right. I watched him rock live shows. He'll eat anybody. Okay. He's the illest. Okay. They're, him with the verses. I don't care Incredible. what it is. He'll I kill know. anybody. Facts. He's a machine. He's the Terminator. So, <laughs> Ra, Jay, Busta, Biggie, Nas. Woo! But here's the thing. That's exactly mine, minus the Busta. Here's yeah. the thing. I put KRS-One there, yeah. Here's the thing. I could easily, and this is going to be very controversial. 
if you actually ask me in my heart of hearts, I would drop big for KRS. Okay. Because I know that people okay. love him and I know he's a great, one of the greatest. Yes. But people lionize people and put people on a pedestal after they've died and it mm. clouds the vision. The way people feel about Pac, the way people feel about big, about everybody. Yeah. It's, it's, it's cloudy. He was still young in his career, like Kurt Cobain. There's only a few records. We don't know what he would have been. But nice. I will tell you this. I shared a mic with KRS. I had him come and perform at my friend's 40th birthday party, Balthazar Getty, up in a crib. And I sound checked the sound system, rocking the mic for him. And when he got there, I escorted him into the venue. And I told him the story of how I went back with him and his DJ doc to Power Play Studios and that Amanda Demi was throwing the party with me. And Chris Parker, all that shit. Yeah. Bro, I told him everything. And yeah. I said, just know you're not walking into a bougie Hollywood party. This is a room that respects you. And at one point, he saw me rocking next to him and handed me the mic. And I went and I finished his rhyme. Dang. And then I, I dropped a line and I handed it back and he goes... Damn, you just killed it. You did it so raw. I might fuck around and even take you on tour. And I was like, whoa. So I will tell you that if That's I, sick. let me just revise it. Okay. I'm revising it. It's, because it's, it's, it's my honest feeling. It's my mind, dude. Go ahead. It's, it's, it's J. It's. God MC. It's, it's R. It's J. It's Rakim. It's J. It's Busta. It's Nas. And it's KRS. It's six. No. no, I dropped big. Oh, yeah, shit, yeah, my bad, my bad. Yeah. I dropped big. Controversial take, but I'm just telling you, like, my philosophy through, ri me. through rhyming right in front of him, Incredible. It, it speaks to me more. And Chuck is special, but he's a different kind of artist. And guru. <laughs> <laughs> Very talented. I just saw Karis one... Less than a month ago, he's 56 years old and destroyed it. He's with incredible. With Kooji Rap, incredible. I mean, that's my honest five. I love that. I appreciate that's that. That's my honest five. Okay. But then there's like favorite groups. Yeah. There's all kinds of layers. But to me, those are just like pure bars. Now, anybody like, and here's the thing. Eminem is one of the most technically proficient rappers of all time. But because of the voice he can't beat any of those dudes. Mm. If he had a different voice and if yeah. he was his ability in one of those guys, he's on the list, but it's like Eddie Van Halen was a shredder and he had tone and he knew how to write a song like Steve Vai shreds. I don't know a song of his, you see yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, so yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. technical proficiency and dexterity and will eat almost anybody except Buster. I'm convinced mm. by the way, black thought, one of the best rappers ever underrated too. Yeah. One yeah. of the most incredible. His bars, I don't remember as much as some of the other guys. True. There's so many factors. But when people are like, it's it's Andre and it's this, I'm like, you guys, he's amazing. He's a visionary. He inspires me the way I dress. Every, he's an, imper he's an yeah. important person in the culture. But don't get that twisted with like hearing the intro for fucking the Genesis from like Illmatic. Incredible, dude. Like, I so, mean, when I first heard Live at the Barbecue, like I'm friends with Large Professor. Like I like... You know what I mean? Like I, it's incredible. I remember that stuff happening in real time. That's like unparalleled rhymes. So, so groups: Dayla, Tribe, Gangstar, Mob Deep, Wu Tang. That's solid. Not mine though. Uh, <laughs> That's good. All right. So, what's yours? Groups. Yeah. Jungle Brothers. Oh yeah, I forgot Jungle but JBs. Yeah. Tribe. Dayla. Dayla. No Gangstar. No Mob. Wu and Mob Deep. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. 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 
pretty close to it's mine. It's two yeah. real different sides, but that's yeah. the way I like it. Super grimy or super hippie. I know. I love that too. I, <laughs> I, don't I, I like to mix it up. Yeah. Fuck, man. All right, this is pretty go. good. Okay, we out. Thank you, guys. Bye. I always ask my guests if they have any regrets. I personally don't have any regrets. Even when it comes to my tattoos, I have the silliest tattoos. Even my ET on my leg, it's still a childhood memory for me, and I love it. I've had tattoos on top of tattoos strictly because I wanted more tattoos. I started getting tattoos when I was 18. I'm 52 now, and I can't stop. I've had lazy treatment before on something on my arm. It's four tattoos on top of each other, and that experience at that place was pretty fast. It was pretty cold. It was in and out, swipe the credit card, don't really tell me much, didn't give me much details or anything was going to happen. So I never went back. So as of most recently, I'm so lucky enough to have had two sessions at Removery Tattoo Removal. My tattoo on my arm that looks like a big black blob is now super light. I've had two sessions. I have a long road ahead of me. None of this stuff happens overnight. You cannot take a tattoo up in one sitting. You have to be patient and it's painful. They ice you up, it's super fast. To me, it felt like a bunch of rubber bands. But what's more painful than that is looking at something on your body that you think you're stuck with for the rest of your life. That sucks. But now for me, I'm really happy I started this journey. I'm slowly gonna get this tattoo removed. I never thought in a million years I have any kind of real estate on my arm. I don't even know what I want, but it's exciting. I'm so honored to announce that One Life, One Chance podcast is now with Removery. I have a code. Use TobyH20 and get $100 off your first session. Call 866-934-4570 or go to removery.com. One of the most experienced tattoo remover companies in the world. Over 600,000 removal treatments done. 100 locations. U.S., Canada, and Australia. State-of-the-art peak-away laser technology. Cryotechnology to reduce any discomfort. This is so exciting for me because all I do on these podcasts is talk about tattoos. From day one, if you've been listening to this podcast, we talk about tattoos, talk about getting removed, talk about getting covered up. So this is such a perfect fit for me. Once again, go to removery.com or call 866-934-4570. Use my code TOBYH20 and get $100 off. These guys are located everywhere. Try it out.